Your favorite band's about to play a sold-out show. You got in. Over here. With a friend. And found a spot close enough to see the set list. They're definitely playing your song. When you're with Amex, it's not if it's going to happen, but when. American Express. Don't live life without it. From world conflicts to falling financial markets, natural disasters, and more. Wish the headlines would just stop. It's not a newsflash that life can feel like a pressure cooker. From managing work to building relationships, it's easy to feel overwhelmed. And for many of us, anxiety and stress are constant companions. But you are not alone. Support is out there, just waiting to meet you. And you can find it through friendly people at churchescare.com. At churchescare.com, we know that finding your community can feel intimidating. That's why we do the heavy lifting for you. Churchescare.com helps connect people like you to churches that can support and serve you. In your new community, you'll find a group of people ready to talk, listen, and help you navigate life through its twists and turns. All you have to do is come as you are. If you're ready to find your community, visit churchescare.com today. That's C-H-U-R-C-H-E-S care.com. We look forward to serving you. Never speaking to me like that again. Better be wearing a cup. Big step Welcome to Dave and Dave Unchained, a Van Halen podcast. I'm Dave. And I'm Dave. And we are at episode 65, Dave. The podcast is officially a senior citizen. All right, let's start collecting that Social Security now. That's right, that's right. Because there won't be any left by the time you and I are eligible. That's for sure, that's for sure. So I have to admit right at the top, Dave, right at the top, i got to come clean. I I did something... uh, did something a little untoward that I, I have to come clean with. What is it, my son? Last night, I podcasted with another man. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> I feel so dirty. <laughs> I have to say, I did not talk about Van Halen. It was not for anything for our podcast, of course. I would never do that. But I was asked to be a guest on the Classic Rock Album by Album podcast because... Guy, one guy dropped out of the episode. He was unable to do it. So they asked me to be a guest, and they asked me to submit a list of albums of suggestions. So I sent in a bunch of suggestions, and they were cool enough to pick one of them. Actually, one of my rare favorites, The Four Horsemen, Nobody Said It Was Easy, from 1991. And we discussed the album for three Hours. Wow. <laughs> I do know you are a big fan of that album. Yeah, I am. I am. I'm, I'm a little obsessive with it. That's going to be coming out, I believe, soon. So that should be out. Wow. Well, next. that's cool. Look at you. You're getting around. No, I'm not getting around. I just felt dirty about it because, you know. You didn't feel dirty. I think that's awesome that they thought enough of you to invite you on the podcast 
to discuss an album, quite frankly, that not a lot of people know about, but should. Like I say, you you say you're obsessive about it. I know you love it. You've been bragging about that album since it came out for as long as I've known you. I know, I know. It's so weird the way I got that album. It was given to me when I was an intern at Rolling Stone by one of the writers who just didn't wanted it off his desk. <laughs> He just said, here, take this. Get out of here. Get it off my desk. So that was really fun. So I want to thank them for letting me do that. It was a good time. So you guys want to check that out. The Classic Rock Album by Album Podcast. And we promote them sometimes with a bumper on our podcast. They do a really good job. And they do every episode is a different album. So it's still different. But I have to say, Dave, you know, at the end, he didn't hold me the way you do. (laughs) (laughs) Ain't nothing like the real thing, That's right. Of course. Of course, of course, of course. Enough with the uh, admissions here. I feel like I got that off my chest. I feel a little clean now. We're going to get right into Van Halen News. Van Halen News. Believe it or not, we are going to start Van Halen News with a piece of news from Alex, which is a rarity, which is why I'm putting it right at the top. We heard from Alex, although he didn't say much, but we did hear from Alex. Now, we have to wish him a happy belated birthday. He turned 68 on May 8th. You know, Alex is getting up there, Dave. He's not a spring chicken anymore. No, no, he's not. We're we're happy uh, he had another victory lap. Absolutely, absolutely. And a new picture came out of him, and he's looking good and healthy, so and strong. So he said in his message, which he sent exclusively to the Van Halen news desk, so kudos to them for getting that. And this is just a quick quote, and it said, First birthday without you, Ed. The view from my drum set will never be the same. VH forever. Hashtag Van Halen forever. Alex Van Halen, May 8th, 2021. Then Wolf also followed up. Happy birthday to my badass Uncle Al. Love you. And that was really nice. It was good to hear from Al. Curious to see if he does anything drum-wise. The more and more I think about it, the more I think... It would be really cool if he did like a supergroup type of thing. And it doesn't have to be something that tours the world or anything. But if he did like a nice project with a bunch of guys of his class and level of playing, like a real classic rock legend like himself, you know, to come together in a band. Even if it was just for a project or maybe if they even did a couple of handful of shows, he's probably not going to be touring around the world at this point. But what do you think? I really don't think that's going to happen. Really? I mean, yeah, because he never guested on anything. Never. Any Never even dropped like, in on people's shows. No, I, like he did once, but only because Ed was there. Right. I mean, I think that was like Kenny Chesney or something right, like that. Right, yeah, yeah. So that's why I don't think he's going to be doing anything with anybody. He played with Ed, and that's really all he ever wanted to play with. I know. It's so crazy. I, honestly, I think he's just going to retire from music and just, you know, enjoy life. Yeah, well, that very well could be. But I would imagine it's got to be very hard to just let go of the instrument that you've been playing, my God, forever. You know what I mean? I would imagine. I don't know unless he's, he's got aches and pains or he's not feeling good i mean that's a whole other story but you never know i'm not saying he's not jamming at home or whatever but i just don't get the sense that he's going to do anything organized like an album or shows or a tour you know maybe a tribute to ed when they finally get around to doing that i really think that's it yeah 
Yeah, well, we'll I think he's going to be like the drummer from R.E.M. Remember when he quit R.E.M.? Yeah. Like, he quit the music industry. That was it. He was and done. And that was it. Yeah. And you never saw him until R.E.M. got into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. That's true. That's and I true. remember, because we were there, because that was the same year Van Halen got in. Yep. And I remember the three guys came out, maybe two out of the three guys came out, and they were like, I forget the drummer's name, like, where's the drummer? I, I think it was Bill, like, is it Bill Berry or something? Something like I that. I think you're right. I think you're right. Yeah. And they're like, where's Bill? And Michael Stipe was like, he's gone. He's already left. He has literally <laughs> gone back to the farm. That's his life now. Well, Bill had a scare, too. I mean, he almost died on stage. Yeah. You know, he had a life-changing event. Right. So who can blame him? That's true. But along those lines, I think Alex... You know, he's got the horses, yep, and he's, right. you know, he's, he's enjoying the rest of his life, so good for him. Yeah, absolutely. Moving on to Wolf. Wolf dropped a fifth song since we last podcasted. He put out Feel, which is the fifth release off of his self-titled album, Mammoth WVH, which is coming June 11th. Oh, my God, Dave, we're less than a month away. It's hard to believe. I know. I'm so excited. It's so be- excited. It's beyond. So Feel really has a lot more closer kin to your to blame and don't back down it's got that hard kind of rocking crusher it's got some really sharp guitar riffs here's a clip tell you about 2:20 in that that bass breakdown into the guitar solo into the drum solo is just incredible and the background vocals are killer here where he's really howling in the background there what did you think of feel dave i gotta tell you i love this song just for me it was instantly awesome accessible i think it might be my favorite song wow so far but i love the breakdown in the middle too yeah i love it i think it's just a straight-ahead rocker, and it actually reminded me a little bit of U2's Vertigo in the chorus, where he sings Feel. That's that true. reminded me of the line from U2. Yeah, little, wow, I, I really know. from the U2. I never thought about that, but I get that. I totally get that, yeah. Right? Yeah. right? Not, now you hear it, right? Now I hear it. it yeah, head, right? now I hear it. Wow, that's incredible. <laughs> yeah, but I love it. I love it. And interestingly, I was reading some other reviews of the song online, and not as many people were enamored by it like I was. Wow. Like, not to the level, like, I loved it so much that it's almost my favorite song. Other people liked it, but some other people were like, eh, this is not, this is, eh, it's nothing great, it's just there, and I was just like, wow, I was, I was just so surprised because I loved it so much. I was surprised that the needle was kind of going the other way for some people, but different strokes for different folks. The instrumentation is off the charts. I mean, it's so good, and it's so rich, and let me tell you, Elvis Biscuit is going to be the hottest producer going when this album comes out, because my God, did he make this album sound amazing. Yeah, I got to tell you, Wolf has got the songs, and sonically it sounds good. Yeah. Although with my usual caveat, my ears are shot, so you're really asking the wrong person. Yeah. But to me, it, it still sounds good. 
I mean, we're up to what? This is song number five, Dave? Five. Is that right? Five, yeah. Right? So yeah. even though we've heard five songs already, I mean, all of them have been thumbs up. Some I like more than others, but it's not like he's released anything where either of us were like, wow, that was absolute crap. What yeah. a disappointment. I, have I mean, to, we haven't yeah. said that at all. So no. I'm really curious how the rest of the album plays out. I thought this was great. I have to say, I'm five for five for me. I love them all. I think they've been great. I can't wait for the whole thing. It's hard to believe that we are on the eve of it coming. It's unbelievable. So We interrupt this program to bring you a special report. Hey guys, since Dave and I went into production on this month's Van Halen news segment, Mammoth WVH dropped a sixth single called Mammoth. Here's a clip. This song has a real uplifting vibe and the lyrics are very inspirational. The driving guitar riff has a touch of aggression to it, but it's also very melodic. This is what makes Wolf's music so intriguing because he rocks out, but he doesn't chintz on the lyrics and his melodies are always rich. This is another winner and puts Mammoth WVH on track to have an incredible debut like Van Halen did in 1978. Dave, what do you think? I think Mammoth is a great song, very catchy, another two thumbs up. Every song so far has been pretty good, and I just can't wait to hear the whole album. Although at the rate they're going, I think we're going to hear the whole album before it comes out. I'm just as excited as I was before. Really good stuff. We return you now to your regularly scheduled program. Now, Wolf did a full-blown interview in Total Guitar. And of course, Eddie's on the cover <laughs> because every guitar magazine, anything to put Eddie on the cover. And Wolf does make it on the top right-hand corner as like a postage stamp photo of himself. But he did a full in-depth interview with Total Guitar. And this is some of the things, the takeaways from here. He talked about popularity, right? He says, I didn't see it winning this many people over, meaning his music, so soon or at all, really. I just made the record for me. For it to resonate with a bunch of people has really been awesome. When it comes to distance, he says, it certainly wasn't the first song I was planning on releasing. It's a bit to the left of the core sound of the album, but I think it still fits. It seemed right. In addressing the ending of Don't Back Down, we talked about this in the last episode. The interviewer asked him, is that a wink to So This Is Love? And he says, yeah, except Dad does this little kink with the pick on the strings, and I do a little phaser pick slide. He says, I'm surprised how quickly people caught that. In dealing with haters online, he says, it's an up and down thing. Sometimes you just need to take a little break, and I ignore it for a while. But every now and then, some asshole lobs you a really big softball that you just fucking knock out of the park. And he says, it's really fun. Then he addressed the song Mr. Ed, which is obviously a nod to his dad, and he's tapping on it. But the lyrics are not about Ed, so he wanted everybody to know that. And he said that You're to Blame is probably the most representative of the album's sound, which is a good sign. He said he did two vocal takes at his home studio, but mostly he recorded at 5150. And he says he tracked everything to tape so it sounds extra crispy. 
He used a Gibson ES-335 and a Black Wolfgang Custom. He also used Frankenstein, which is Eddie's famous guitar. And he said that there's a solo on the song Mammoth and the solo on the song Feel. He's using Frankenstein. He says, you feel the history. Let's talk about holding the and playing the guitar. I know it's terrifying holding it because it's the most famous guitar in music history. In terms of the amps he used, he used 5150 amps in Marshalls. His favorite guitar part is You'll Be the One. He, he did a song called You'll Be the One. There's a talk box, which he really enjoyed. He said Ed's favorite song was Think It Over. We have talked about that before. And he very often referred to it as the song with Wolf's George Harrison solo. So that's kind of an interesting insight from Ed on the album. He started playing the guitar at the age of 12 so he could play 316 for his sixth grade talent show. Can you imagine this? Unbelievable. So this kid specifically wanted to learn guitar so he could play his own song, which was dedicated to him in 1991, 316, named after his birthday, so he could play that song in a sixth grade talent show. He said Ed taught him power chords, but then he learned the rest from kind of listening to records. He says he feels more like a stronger rhythm player than a lead player. He said he's not a shreddy guy. And his influences, of course, are Van Halen, but also ACDC, The Foo Fighters, Nine Inch Nails, Tool, Jimmy Eat World, Alice in Chains, and Queens of the Stone Age. In terms of his dad, he says he's dad and not Eddie Van Halen first. He was there to cheer me on. He was happy to see the process, but it's not like I was doing everything to appease him. It's because I generally wanted to involve myself in music, and I think that's all he wanted, that he never really forced me into anything. But his dad also never taught him songwriting. He says it was an osmosis thing, that he just happened to be around it. And then he talked about something that I thought was really interesting. He talked about how Eddie's writing changed, and he said here... Dad wrote music very differently later in his life. I think people weren't a fan of that. Take Van Halen 3, for example. Dad's melodic ideas changed over the years. I don't think that's generally a bad thing. I think it's great when an artist expands and changes. But it was important to kind of go back and look at what made the classic stuff sound the way it did. That's why I thought it was a good idea to check out some of the older demos for a different kind of truth. Very interesting. He talked about some Van Halen album tracks. He said that he would always add as many as he could to his set list. And he said, I was happiest with the 2015 tour because we really got to dig in. We played Light Up the Sky, Dirty Movies, In a Simple Rhyme, Women in Love, Drop Dead Legs. It was really fun to go deep into the vaults and play those. And he said, in regarding Van Halen, he says, I think going into it, I really knew what the fans wanted to hear. So I did my best to be like, come on, guys, let's mix it up. So he was pushing the band throughout that process. And we've always said this. He was very instrumental in that whole last leg of Van Halen. Now, in terms of what he remembers about Van Halen when he was a little kid, he says he recalls them recording Me Wise Magic. And also the album closest to him growing up was Balance. He says diving deep into it as time went on, it was just fun to go through my dad's history and everything. Everything that he hear that 
Is that America cheering or a sausage patty sizzling to perfection? It's time to cheer for Egg McMuffin and fresh cracked eggs at McDonald's. It's time to wake up to the aroma of freshly baked biscuits and treat yourself to a real honest-to-goodness morning meal. Breakfast, it's on at McDonald's. Choose any breakfast sandwich, buy one, get one free. Available only on the app. Price and participation may vary. McD app download and registration required. Single item at regular price. Family. It looks a little different for everyone. For some, it's mom and dad. For others, roommates who feel like family. And for others, it's your significant other, their golfing buddies, your children, a high school soccer team starting lineup, and oh look, they're all taking you up on the offer to stay for dinner. Really testing the limits of that phrase. The more the merrier. But no matter where you call home, GEICO makes it easy to bundle and save on home and car insurance. Easier than making three frozen pizzas and assorted frozen veggies into a cohesive meal. Did. And he said the clip in the video for Distance, it's an incredible clip. Everybody talks about it. When Wolf is sitting on Ed's lap and Ed is playing the piano, it's like absolutely adorable. He said that was a small clip from a 15-minute video where he was teaching Wolf how to play Why Can't This Be Love on the piano. Very interesting there. And he wrapped things up with addressing eruption. He says he got to watch his dad play it every time we were rehearsing, so it wasn't like, oh, so that's how you do it. I just figured some of it out, and dad was like, no, you got to do it this way. I got little pointers here and there. But he says it's not like he made it his life's goal to, like, by the time he was 16 to learn eruption that it was just something fun that he did when he recorded himself playing Eruption. But that was kind of cool. What did you think of this interview, Dave? I thought it was really good. It was more in-depth than we typically see with Wolf. Yeah. Although usually it's with interviews, with radio DJs, and after a while it's the same old, same old questions, and they only have them on for 10, 15 minutes anyway. And I thought it was just really good insight on what he likes, his influences, and things like that. It was a very pleasant read. Good interview. Yeah, it really was. I tell you, there was some good crunchy stuff in there that we didn't get before, so kudos on that. Speaking of an interview, Wolf also did an interview with KAAOS-TV, and he says, if there's one thing I don't like is music elitism. There is something good to be found in everything. So blocking yourself off like that, you're kind of doing yourself a disservice because you can definitely find something to enjoy other than what you're comfortable with. And he talked about his favorite bands, and he says he even has a, a favorite German band called the Intersphere, which he's really getting into. And everything else in that interview is pretty stock. Mammoth also released some more dates. They're doing a whole bunch of festivals, Dave, in September. So these are a lot of the radio shows. BuzzFest at the Cynthia Woods Mitchell Pavilion in Woodlands, Texas on September 4th. And he's playing with The Offspring, Chevelle, P.O.D., Candlebox, and Aaron Jones. Then he's playing BFD 2021 with The Offspring, Chevelle, P.O.D., Candlebox, at the Dos Equos Pavilion in Dallas, Texas. Then on the I'm tw- seeing a pattern. Yeah, I know. Then on the 25th of September... He's playing the WMMR BBQ, which is Jane's Addiction, The Offspring, Cheap Trick, Dirty Honey, Mammoth, WVH, Dorothy, Aaron Jones, and this is at the BBNT Pavilion in Camden, New Jersey. I'm actually going to that show. And Louder Than Life, 
which is the Highlands Festival Grounds at the KY Expo Center, Louisville, Kentucky, with Metallica, Judas Priest, Mudvayne, Seether, Pennywise, Fozzie, and there's a whole bunch of bands, because that's a four-date event, and he's on the fourth date. So, obviously, he's getting out there and tipping his toe into the water. What do you think of that? Good for him. Nice to see him doing some shows. Yeah, I, I can't wait to see like what this is all going to be about. Should be interesting. So now, Dave, tell me about Chad Blakely. Do you know who Chad Blakely is? I do not know who Chad okay. Blakely is. He's a comic book artist, and the reason why I bring that up because Dave is a comic book collector, and his family has to own a shop. It was in Valley Stream, right? No, it was Lindenhurst. Lindenhurst, Bailey's Comics. That's right. I always get confused. Which is still there, actually. It's still there. That's right. The comic book artist Chad Blakely did a design cover of Mammoth WVH, Wolfgang, almost like a Wolverine type of thing, and it's actually Wolfgang Van Halen. He says, I'm really looking forward to listening to the debut album from at Mammoth WVH, at Wolf Van Halen, who has been releasing some tracks from it, and they are all killer. So I did a Wolfgang-inspired homage to the iconic Frank Miller ink cover of Wolverine 1. So he played off of that, and that was a really cool design, and Wolf loved it. He tweeted it out, and thanked him for it. It was a whole thing. What did you think of that cover, Dave? That was a cool homage. Homage. Very nice cover. Well done. Yes, but I tell you what wasn't nice. Somebody did this and this was not cool. So there was this weird YouTube video posted by an account called Channeling Eric and it's this kind of like afterlife interview with Eddie Van Halen. This is not cool at all. Two women appear in the video. They're talking back and forth and a woman is asking Eddie questions while the other one is giving his answers like she's in contact with it and this pissed Wolf off to the umpteenth degree understandably of course says you people are batshit fucking crazy fuck this and fuck you he also told his followers that they should unfollow him if they believe any of what this so-called psychic had to say he says if you follow me and believe what my father has visited some psychic youtuber bitch from the afterlife to talk about that he liked animals or not please unfollow me and seek medical attention <laughs> So that Don't was, hold back, Wolf. Oh, hold no. Back. You know him. He, he's, his fangs come out. Remember, he is a wolf. So it was wrong and it was disrespectful. I mean, that is just unbelievable. I, I don't understand why anybody would do something like that. I mean, take into consideration, you know, I understand they're trying to be kitschy and cute, but there's people that just lost somebody and it's just gross. But on the other side of things... This was kind of a fun thing. Valerie did the season premiere of Valerie's Home Cooking on the Food Network. And what did she do? She did a movie night motif where she invited Wolf and his girlfriend, Andrea. She cooked for them and was having them over to watch a movie. And she made this incredible meal. It was, oh my God, and I'm dieting, and it was making me crazy. It was so good. So it was these pickle brined fried chicken sandwiches with pickle slaw, onion ring wedge salad with homemade ranch, and movie theater bark. Oh, it was so fucking good. It was killing me to watch this thing. So now, one thing that was interesting. So we talked about onion ring wedge salad. What the hell is that? So it's like a steakhouse salad with the wedges of lettuce and stuff. But then she cooks homemade onion rings, or what she teaches you how to do. And then she layers them on top of the salad. Now, the joke here is, if we all remember back in, I don't know, like oh my God, five, six months ago, maybe, maybe less than that. Wolf was over for dinner at Valerie's house, and she didn't know that he was filming 
and he Instagrammed her burning onion rings and then sent it out there. Now, consider the situation. She does cooking for a living on the Food Network, and here she is burning something, and her wise guy's son is putting it on the Internet. So I guess Val had to prove herself, and she made these gorgeous, incredible onion rings. So then when Wolf came in, he comes in at the end of the episode. He doesn't say much because he's a pretty quiet guy, but he comes in with his girlfriend. She hands them the plates to bring to the table, and when he looks at the onion rings, he says to Val, what did you do with the burnt ones? <laughs> she pushed them out the door, which was really funny. <laughs> and then when she served it, and she's like, oh, you know, here's a salad. And he goes, oh, that's what they're supposed to look like. So he's a real wise guy. He loves to kind of rib his mom a little bit there. It was really kind of funny. And then she also made this incredible chocolate bark where she made homemade chocolate. And then she put movie theater candy, bits of movie theater candy in the bark. So there's like little gummies and little Kit Kats and oh my god it was insane so Valerie continues to be the best she's unbelievable I think she's incredible did you see this Dave? No I didn't get a chance to see it but it sounds delicious it does it sounds delicious and we all know why you didn't see it you want to explain why? because I don't have cable and you don't have cable because? because I don't watch cable because you're a cheap bastard well that's true But I honestly don't, the reason why no, I'm I cheap when it comes I'm, to that I'm, I'm is because I really don't watch a lot of no, TV. I know, I'm, I'm teasing. I just love to call you a cheap bastard whenever I get a chance. <laughs> I wouldn't want you to miss a golden opportunity. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I can't help it. It's just, it's an old habit. Die, die hard. Your old habit. No, no problem. Uh, I know you can't make that kind of joke with your other podcaster. Oh! <laughs> that, you know, that was a rabbit punch right in the side kidney. <laughs> oh, my God. Oh, you see? I knew it was going to come back to haunt me in one way or another. Oh, you always got to toss it in my face there. Oh, of course. All right, that's score one for you. You got one up on the board. Congratulations. <laughs> <laughs> well, another thing that was really kind of cool was in the Total Guitar issue, it's definitely worth picking up because they had a whole bunch of other Van Halen things, a lot of gear stuff. You know, obviously it's a guitar magazine, so they're going to have a lot of gear stuff. But they had some interview with Mick Jones. Mick Jones, the guitarist and founder of Foreigner, and he is also the co-producer of 5150. So they wanted to discuss with him his experience with Van Halen. He opened up here more than I've seen him before in the past. I wanted to bring this up. So he said he got the job co-producing Van Halen's album through his relationship with Sam. And he said that Don Landy, there was a little concern at first and that it took a little bit of massaging, he said, let's say. He didn't get into the dirty, gritty details of that. As we all know, that got a little hairy. But he said that he wanted to branch out a bit, so co-producing Van Halen was viewed as a nice challenge for him. But he said when Sammy picked him up at the airport, he prepped him. He says, this goes a little bit higher and crazier than you and I are used to. So, you know, him and Sam are definitely guys who live a nice, high-end lifestyle. They're very well put together with clothes and homes and cars and all the stuff that they do, which is fine. But he said, buckle your seatbelt. Because he was preparing him for what he was going to face at 5150. He described, and remember Mick is an English gentleman. He described 5150 as funky. (laughs) He said it's 
smelled of smoking beer, and he said it wasn't the cleanest or most hygienic place I've ever spent time in. It definitely had a sound and a vibe. And he said when he got there, because everybody always wonders about Mick Jones. You know, there's always been rumors, oh, he came in at the end. You know what I mean? He was hardly there for the whole thing. But he said when he came in that they had demos going of the songs. They didn't have dreams. And he says, I really brought something to that song, meaning dreams, especially Sammy's vocals. I worked very long and hard with him on that. And he told me it was one of his all-time favorite performances. He was singing so high that he was hyperventilating and almost passed out. I really pushed him, but we got it. And he says he thinks that the band really wanted to show David Lee Roth that he wasn't indispensable. So I think he's expressing that that band had a drive and a goal with that album, for sure. Now, when addressing the song Get Up, he said, I never heard anything like it in my life. It sounded like four guys fighting inside the speaker cabinets, beating the shit out of each other. Which is a good description for that song, for sure. He also said that he didn't really offer Eddie any guitar suggestions. He said he was so talented, so there wasn't a lot I could add or suggest performance wives. But he said he just gave him some partial advice on songs, you know, not so much guitar work. But in terms of songwriting, he says, I think Eddie respected my songwriting. He knew I could write songs, and some of the songs need a little bit of tailoring, and I think I provide that as well as feedback. I wasn't afraid to speak up about how I felt. So I think really of all the Van Halen albums, especially with Sam, that one is definitely the most pop polished. Wouldn't you say, Dave? Yeah, I would agree. That's the one where, I mean, there's the keyboard influence, but they also, it felt like that was kind of like the beginning where it started sounding not so unique anymore. Like, I remember, I think it was Rolling Stone that compared some of their songs to Journey. And so when the songs take on a pop sheen, they kind of start taking on that Journey, that Foreigner, that Corporate Rock Yeah, vibe. that Corporate Rock And I know that's vibe, like yeah. a negative connotation. Yep. And I don't mean it negatively. I just mean it in terms of characterizations of what the song started to sound like. That would really manifest itself more so on the OU812 album, Mm -hmm. I think, anyway. But this was the start of that, in my opinion, anyway. Yeah. And also, Mick said, and regarding Eddie Van Halen, he said he was completely out there, not drug-wise. He just went into a trance-like state when he played. And then when they asked him if he ever jammed with Eddie, he said Eddie tried to teach him how to finger tap, but he said he really couldn't catch on. But they did jam a little bit. And he also said you could compare him perhaps to Bach or Beethoven. He is uncannily talented and driven by a need to express himself in a dazzling way. Overall on the project, he said he was absolutely and completely exhausted by the end of it. But he also said that the band and him were really running against the clock. He said they were late in delivering the album and the band had a tour book so there was a lot of pressure. The album came out on March 
March 24th, 1986. The first album to go number one, and he noted that Eat Him and Smile went to number four, and he said it was a pretty intense experience, but we achieved something very special. But he did note that beating David Lee Roth and proving that he wasn't indispensable was very, very telling. What did you think of that? That was very telling. It was a contest. Yeah. I mean, it was all about the music with Ed, but I'm sure they were not disappointed that they had beaten Dave, which wasn't entirely unexpected. But it's not like Dave did poorly either. No, no. no. His album went platinum. It went to number four. He had a top 20 hit with Yankee Rose. It wasn't like Dave bombed, but they still beat him, and I guess that's what counted. I think that's what he was focused on. So now, in regarding David Lee Roth, we heard a little bit from David Lee Roth. He didn't talk at all, but he did address some things in his soggy bottom. So in his soggy bottom with cartoon that he draws and designs and very talented guy in terms of, you know, his lyrics, his singing and his personality, but also artistically, he's unbelievable. So he did a little anniversary marking the 15th anniversary of him being on radio. Remember the David Lee Roth show? We did a whole episode on that. And he says he had a whole design about it and he had little things. Why can't you be more like Stern, meaning Howard Stern? Play Nickelback. He's playing ethnic music again. All the different complaints about him and he incorporated this into the cartoon. He also had the Van Halen logo upside down and he says, I lasted four months. The VH lamp was relit and people were banging on his door and then he starts getting into some of the history of Van Halen but he doesn't really address it directly. He just kind of says five 45 minute sets a night, 70 songs. Every nightclub, rodeo, frat house, and road bar in driving distance. If not, we slept in our cars. So everything's sort of like a little esoteric. He, you know, mentions these things. And then he has like a, a drawing of the four guys. And But again, you know, the faces are kind of blurred out. It's just sort of, you could tell it's the four of them from Van Halen. It says, every penny went into the gas tank or our stomachs. Let's go have a cigarette was exactly that. Four guys one smoke. thought that was interesting. A little taste of old Van Halen touching upon his radio days. What do you think of that, Dave? Well, I think the Van Halen one was the one that made the most sense. I was able to follow it along Mm -hmm. because I still need cliff notes when I read those things. Of course, yeah. It's tough for me to get into Dave's head. But it was interesting for him to go back and talk about the old days because he doesn't do that very often at all. So it was nice of him to incorporate it in a storytelling format that he's comfortable with. Yeah. Speaking of Dave, his Vegas dates. Now, remember, we went to Vegas, right, over a year ago now, and we were the young age of 50 years old now. Now that we're way into our 51st, we're actually in our 52nd year. We're already turned 51. But remember, Dave, he was doing the week that we were there where he was not doing it even a week. He was doing like three shows, the Wednesday, the Friday, the Saturday. We saw the Friday and the Saturday. Then he was supposed to come back in March. And we all know what happened in March of 2020. We had the pandemic. Whatever happened to the rest of those dates? Well, it sounds like that those went from being postponed to canceled. Because those six shows, which was March 18th, 20th, 21st, 25th, 27th, 28th, are all canceled now. Interesting enough, though, the guy who was doing a residency at the House of Blues at Mandalay Bay, where Dave was doing his residency, sent Family. It looks a little different for everyone. For some, it's mom and dad. For others, roommates who feel like family. 
And for others, it's your significant other, their golfing buddies, your children, a high school soccer team starting lineup, and oh look, they're all taking you up on the offer to stay for dinner, really testing the limits of that phrase, the more the merrier. But no matter where you call home, GEICO makes it easy to bundle and save on home and car insurance. Easier than making three frozen pizzas and assorted frozen veggies into a cohesive meal. Hurry into Mattress Firm. For a limited time, save up to $500 when you get a king bed for the price of a queen or a queen for a twin. Plus, get a free adjustable base with qualifying Sealy purchases up to a $499 value. Or get up to 60% off America's top-rated brands like Sealy Queen mattresses starting at $279.99 or Sleepies at $169.99. In stock for fast delivery only at Mattress Firm. Restrictions apply. See store or mattressfirm.com for details. Tana was doing it at the same time. Santana restarted his residency. It's very interesting. So it's not like the venue is shut down. The venue is back up. In fact, Santana, who was doing it at the same time as Dave, he started his shows back up. But according to Ticketmaster, Dave is also doing a handful of dates opening for KISS. I know some of our listeners were wondering about this, but the weird part is KISS has his whole tour booked, but Dave is only on three dates. I went through this methodically. Apparently, Dave is playing September 2nd in Dayton, Ohio, October 2nd in Tulsa, Oklahoma, and October 6th at Lafayette, Louisiana. KISS is... Touring from June 2nd to December 4th. That's a long period, but Dave's only on three dates. So I don't know if this is a mistake, but this is directly from Ticketmaster, and Dave is noted on those dates. Dave, what do you think of this? Interesting. I'm wondering if those were just the holdover dates from the last time, and that's all he was contractually obligated to do, and those are the dates he moved, and he didn't want to do anymore? I think he had more that he was contractually supposed to oh, do did he? last okay. time. Okay, yeah, I don't know. Very or, odd. You know, maybe they just haven't worked out the details yet, and they'll be announcing him as an opening act on other dates. I don't, I don't know. know. I'm not getting the vibe that he's going out on tour, although he did post that Instagram thing about him getting his new shoes ready. I don't know what the hell's going on with him. He's been so quiet, it's unreal, and we still haven't gotten that album. My God, he released that song. It's got to be half a year ago already, more than that. Yeah, and he released clips of those songs as part of that online comic book. Right, but there was just too. snippets. So it's not we're like still Holtz. waiting. Yeah. Yeah, still waiting. Very odd. Still waiting. Now, speaking of Kiss, Kiss came out, or they're coming out very shortly, with a new series called Off the Soundboard. The reason why I bring this up is because it's a new bootleg series, and this has happened. I think Bob Dylan did this, the Stones did this, Pearl Jam. The band does their own bootleg series, and it's like kind of a soundboard recording of a night here and there, and what they do is they highlight specific shows that they think fans want. For example, Kiss is launching it with this two-disc set from Tokyo 2001. Now, any Kiss fan knows... It's kind of a rare time in the band's history when the lineup was Gene Simmons, Paul Stanley, Ace Frehley, and Eric Singer. So that was a very short period of time, and a lot of fans wanted that, and that's what they're delivering. So this is something I think Van Halen should consider. You know, quick and easy way to satisfy the fans. It's very simple, and it's a way to preserve their legacy. What do you think of this, Dave? I think it's a great idea, and I don't think Van Halen will ever do it. Sadly. Well, they just, you know... Ed certainly never thought that way. I know. And uh, Wolf's doing his own thing, and 
Alex's heart has to be in it. I totally think they should do it. I mean, I'm willing to bet that, you know, on the reunion tours with Dave, they recorded a lot of those shows. Oh, yeah. All of them. Absolutely. Uh, so, yeah, I would love it. If I'm a fan of the band, I would love it. Give Kiss a lot of credit for that. I mean, listen, I know they're not idiots and they're financially driven. Yes. But I give them a lot of credit for doing that because not every band does that. Well, the KISS fans are very hungry, and they want content. So they're always delivering, that's for sure. Now, the interesting thing, if I were to suggest anything to Van Halen, and this is quick and easy. Okay, so Billy Joel did something 40 years ago, and I always thought this was the coolest thing ever. He did an album called Songs in the Attic, and what this was was... He was at kind of the real height of his fame at the time. He had The Stranger, and, and he had Glass Houses, and, and the 52nd Street, and all these hits. So his band was at its peak. And what he did was, he took all these album tracks that he really thought were good songs, that the band would play on tour, and they really didn't get a lot of attention, but he felt like the band was at its peak. And he recorded a live album, and he put it out, no hits, no hits, okay, on the live album. So all those Billy Joel hits that you know are not on that live album. It's all these album tracks, Summer Highland Falls and Los Angelinos and Miami 2017, which ended up becoming a popular anthem afterwards. But a lot of these songs, after he put out Songs in the Attic, became more famous in-concert favorite from the fans because of the attention that Songs in the Attic gave it. I think Van Halen would be good to do something like that with the songs that Wolf talked about, like Light Up the Sky and Women in Love and Drop Dead Legs, Dirty Movies, all those different ones that they learned. It might make a nice piece if they did a live album that had all of those different tracks over the course, let's just say, the Wolf years, right? The three tours that Wolf did. You take a culmination of all those album tracks, none of the hits, the album tracks, and put them out. I think that would make a nice package. What do you think about that? That is an awesome idea. Right? I, yeah, I think Songs in the Attic, I mean, conceptually, great idea by Bill to go back and revisit songs with a great band. So I think you're on to something yeah. there. But again, I'm not holding my breath for Van Halen to do that. These are all great ideas you to send to Alex where he will promptly file them under never. <laughs> I don't even think it would take Alex to do it. I just think it would take him to sign off on doing it. But I think if someone were to culminate those tracks together and clean them up, make them nice and, and crispy, and put them together with some good packaging, that would be a nice Van Halen piece that, A, wouldn't cause Wolf to have to go digging through the vaults to try to find someone. B, wouldn't cause Alex to have to record anything or you know do anything. This is stuff that's already there. It's existing. Yeah, I think there's something there. I think you could definitely have a nice project with that, you know? You could at least make one solid album with that for sure. Anyway, moving on to Sam. Sam and the Circle are getting out on tour date. Now, we talked about last time they were doing that Florida tour. There's even more dates. June 1st and 2nd, they're playing the Augustine Amphitheater in Augustine, Florida. And in August 12th, they're playing Springfield, Illinois State Fair. And August 21st, they're playing Albertson, Boise's Open. And that's in Boise, Idaho. So the Circle is getting out there, man. And I'm curious to see if Sam lets Mike take the mic and do some old Van Halen songs in the set. What do you think? What do you think the chances are of that? I think he'll let Mike do a song or two. Yeah. But I don't think Sam's ego will allow him to 
have Mike sing any more than that. Okay, okay. Because if Mike starts getting bigger applause for old school Van Halen songs. Oh, boy. Then Sam's getting for Van Hagar songs. That ain't going to last too long. That's true. Sammy also posted on Instagram and Twitter a photo of him and John Travolta, the disco king of Brooklyn, New York. He came to Cabo Wabo Cantina to share some tequila with Sam, and he came when Sammy was performing acoustically with the house band Julietta. And John Travolta said, my evening with a rock legend. Then he posted the photo, and Sammy was all happy to host him there, and they looked like they are having a good time. John Travolta, by the way, sporting the bald, shaved head, Dave. What do you think of that? He looks good. Yeah. I know you like anybody who copies the look that you're doing. Oh, well, you know, I've been pushing it for years. You know, we're now accepting him as a full-fledged member of the bald community. Ah, uh, see, well, I, I knew you came first, so I was wondering <laughs> if you were going to accept him or not. Oh, of course. Listen, the thing that we like least in the bald community is someone who wears a toupee and they hide their baldness. That's wrong. That's wrong. As Larry David likes to say, you know, if, if you shave your head, okay, and you're, you have a, you're a guy who has a full head of hair and you shave your head, no offense, but you're not exactly part of the bald community. You are choosing to shave your head. That's a style. It's not what God gave you. You see? All right. And that works? I see. So now, Sammy Hagar talked about when Eddie Van Halen died, he fell apart. He was on this weird show called The Celebrity Sleepover, which happens like in the middle of the night on NBC after Saturday Night Live. He says, when Eddie died, I fell apart. It was just such a miracle that him and I hooked up for about four or five months before that. And he said he really got into some soul talking about doing something next year. And he said that he was very touching to me that him and Eddie got back together. And he said, this is a quote from Sam that's going to drive you crazy. We wrote some 40, 50 million selling records and some of the greatest songs in rock history. I'm so fortunate to have that and to have Michael Anthony stand next to me on stage when we play songs like Right Now, Pound Cake, Top of the World, Finish What You Started. It's like, yeah, this music lives and this is what Eddie left. Now, he also said that after four or five months of communicating back and forth with Eddie, suddenly he felt like he was being ghosted by Eddie, only to learn that the guy's health was rapidly declining. And he said one time he texted him, hey, dude, what the fuck? You didn't give him any love. And Ed texted back, man, I've been in the hospital. And he was like, oh, fuck. And that was the last time he heard from him. And that was during an interview with Matt Pinfield, the guy from formerly from MTV. He said, if Eddie would have passed without a reconciliation. I'd think about it forever. I would take it to my grave with me, and that would have been horrible. So glad he didn't have to take it to his grave with him, and I don't have to take it with mine, and that's a big deal to him. So I don't know, Dave. What do you think? Is it me or is Sammy talking about this a little too much? It seems like he's really on a campaign to let everybody know that he reconciled with Eddie and that he was planning to do a reunion tour. And it seems very, I don't know, a little self-serving. Here he discusses all these personal texts. Now, what do you think of this? Well, Sam's always been a little bit self-serving. Well, he's the lead singer, right? Right. <laughs> and um, I don't know. I mean, people are going to ask him about that. He'll always answer. He loves talking about he it. Loves it. I mean, to be fair, he's celebrating the memory of Ed. But yeah, he's always going to push. Yeah, if he would have been alive, we would have done the reunion. Yeah, tour. it's like a whole thing. Yada yada yada. Yeah. And, you know, I always laugh when he throws out numbers. That oh are like my god! 10 times the size. Oh yeah. Well, he discusses the like, wrong figures. Come on, Sam. So here's the funny thing: is talk. We sold forty to fifty million. Okay. Now, Van Halen apparently sold something like 
56.5 million in the states or something like that and he thinks he's responsible for 40 to 50 of that i mean it's like he's unbelievable he just likes to take credit for all of it i don't know but you know what he did do and i'll give him credit for this van halen made more money with sam than they made with dave in the first portion, well, I'm not going to count the second one because they, they made a boatload when they toured with Dave as a reunion. But in the first six albums and the four albums of Sam, they made like quadruple what they made with Dave. So maybe he's talking about that because he's a dollar and cents guy. What do you think? Uh, is that true or is that what we hear? From oh, no, Dave? no, that's true. That's for sure true. That's not a joke. They okay. made a lot of money with Sam because Ed Leffler really knew how to take care of that band. So he got them paid, boy. That's for sure. And good for them. That's right. Awesome. Well, Sammy Dave making even more money. This guy's always making money. So he just sold his French Chateau in Lake Arrowhead. And oh boy, this is the one you were going to buy, Dave. And I, there's rumors that you might have bought it because it got down to the bargain price of $3.9 million. Everybody knows you're worth a lot more than that. So yeah, I, I went to my petty cash fund and I bought the house. Congratulations. And this was a getaway for Sam. And ready for this? He still owns homes in Mill Valley, Corte Madera, Desert Palm in California, Maui in Hawaii, and Cabo St. Lucas in Mexico. So don't feel so bad for the, uh, the red altacaca there. In the Lake Arrowhead home, it was built in 2009. And it has a granite and limestone boulders cut and carved on the site. And it's got 6,557 square feet. It's located 80 miles from downtown Los Angeles. He bought it in 2009 for $2.3 million, So he made a nice million plus on it for sure. And he had it as a vacation retreat for his family. Dave, eight bedrooms and nine bathrooms. Oh, you're going to have a field day. And it was listed originally for $5.2 million, And it sold for $3.19. So you got a real deal there, Dave. That's really something. What a bargain. What a buy. What a bargain, right? Unbelievable. So I can't believe this guy's got five other homes or whatever the hell it is. It's unbelievable. Must be nice to be Sammy, right? I was just going to say that, yes. Now, speaking of Sammy, he also is very charitable in addition to being extremely wealthy. He loaned his voice to a cover of the Steve Miller song, Fly Like an Eagle, for the group of Afghan children musicians going by the name of Miraculous Love Kids and Girl with a Guitar. They recorded a cover of the Steve Miller's Fly Like an Eagle with Sammy and Nickelback's Chad Kroger on vocals. And here's a clip. Girls dedicated the recording to the memory of the near 100 Afghan girls who died in a bomb attack of a school in Kabul and the last 11 years in the Middle East. Teaching guitar and organizing the nonprofit for these girls has been a big bonus. And Sam lent his voice there and he left them a message saying, I'm proud of what you're doing. Stay strong and fly like an eagle. And this was a nice thing that he did here. Sam's always been very charitable and giving of his time, money, and effort. So, Tim, he's always the first to jump in and say yes. So you got to give him credit for that, right? Yes, for sure. I mean, the guy does not shy away from charity. That's true. So now, Eddie Van Halen. Oh, my God, Dave. They keep selling his stuff. They don't stop. His personally owned and driven custom 1934 Ford sedan, which is a hot rod car, 
and it's also the color red. And the car comes with a copy of Eddie's signed original State of California Certificate of Title and the transfer date, which was 6-26-91. And the lot also comes with a beautiful Fender guitar signed by the original Van Halen lineup. Eddie, Alex, David Lee Roth, Michael Anthony with an Eddie Van Halen signed frame piece. The final bid, Dave. How much do you think someone got it? Take a guess. The car and the guitar. What price you put on this? $150,000. Oh, you're close. $133,100. Also, another thing that they were selling was Eddie's stage played and signed Charvel EVH Art Series guitar. So now, this is a unique one because it's a striking yellow and black striped guitar, which Eddie played in concert. For a specific night in Tacoma in 2012, made by Charvel EVH Art Series, and it was played on stage by Eddie, and it went up at the Iconic Auctions, and this was on the Different Kind of Truth Tour, and this is at the Tacoma Dome in Washington, May 5th, 2012. It's even dated by Eddie and signed by Eddie with the date. I think they have a photo of him playing it on stage. And it comes with a certificate of authenticity. And that's signed by Ed. And it's inspired by his original 1979 Bumblebee guitar. That's the one that was buried with Dimebag Daryl. And it also features a single humbucker pickup and master volume control labeled the tone and a Floyd Rose tremolo bridge. And this was a collaboration between Charvel and Ed. And it resulted in this series. Take a guess what it was starting to bid at. What it started to bid? Well, or what, the, well what it, the last time I checked what the bid was at. Oh, it's still live? Well, it ended, but I don't have the final what it went for. But the last time I checked, oh, take a guess. I don't know, $25,000? $13,310. I wonder what it went for. Unbelievable. I'm curious. We'll, we'll find that out and we'll let everybody know. But that's interesting, right? I never knew why he buried that guitar with Dime. I always thought that was a waste. Not Nothing against Dime. It's just that, you know, you put it in the ground and that's the end of the guitar. I mean, it's just kind of weird. Well, I guess Ed wasn't playing it anymore and he wanted his friend to have it. One thing to give it to a friend, but it's another thing to give it to him when he's not alive. Well, that's, that's, that's Ed's choice, I guess. That's Ed's choice. That's Ed's choice. So now... Weezer is finally released their album Van Weezer, Dave. And this is dedicated to Eddie Van Halen. Came out on May 7th. And Dave, I bought the album and I listened to it. And guess what it sounds like? Sounds like Weezer. It sounds like Weezer. And nothing against Weezer. I actually like Weezer very much. And I enjoy the album. But this whole thing about it being heavily inspired by Van Halen and all these bands, I don't understand what he's talking about. It's just weird. Every now and then, you'll get a little snippet of Eddie tapping. It's not Eddie. It's just... Family. It looks a little different for everyone. For some, it's mom and dad. For others, roommates who feel like family. And for others, it's your significant other, their golfing buddies, your children, a high school soccer team starting lineup, and oh look, they're all taking you up on the offer to stay for dinner, really testing the limits of that phrase, the more the merrier. But no matter where you call home, GEICO makes it easy to bundle and save on home and car insurance. Easier than making three frozen pizzas and assorted frozen veggies into a cohesive meal. You know, his Eddie style of tapping. But the album sounds like Weezer. 
which is fine. I love Weezer, and it sounds like a good Weezer album, but it doesn't sound like this big, bombastic rock record that they keep drumming it up to be. It's the strangest thing. They kept drumming this up. This is the big rock album. We're going to call it Van Weezer. Dave, Weezer recreated the Van Halen 1 album cover. Did you see this? Yes, I did. And they also recreated the 1982 merch with the Weezer logo instead of the Van Halen logo. They are very big fans, for sure. But I guess they didn't drape from their original sound too much, which is fine. But I guess you could say that album influences them by yeah, Van Halen. That's for but sure. they're not cloning or copying. No. So that's that. They're going on tour this summer. So, But they dedicated the album to Eddie, and they felt bad that Eddie passed without even hearing the album. But I don't know if Eddie would connect with that album. But nothing against Weezer. And I like the album. I actually do. But it doesn't sound like anything even Van Halen inspired. But speaking of Van Halen inspired, Nancy Wilson from Heart put out her solo album, You and Me. And she actually has a song in there that she dedicated to Eddie. It's called For Edward. It's completely inspired by the first song he played for her on acoustic guitar. She gave Edward his first acoustic guitar. It's a closing track on her album, You and Me. And here's a clip. She had gifted Eddie an acoustic guitar. We talked about this before. And he played this song over the phone in the hotel in the middle of the night. And she thought it was so beautiful. So she created this piece that was similar, I guess, to what he had played her. It was inspired by that. It's, it's her take on what he did. What did you think of this, Dave? I thought it was a nice little tune. I hear some Van Halen songs in there. Really? When I hear her play. Yeah. Like what? can't remember now because I only listened to it like once or twice. But okay. if you listen to it, I definitely hear some Van Halen songs in there. Okay. All right, cool. Well, also paying tribute to Eddie is George Lynch from Dokken and also Lynch Mob. He went out on a show that he was doing in Dallas at the International Guitar Festival, and he started playing an impromptu jam of Van Halen's Ain't Talking About Love. Here's a clip. <laughs> The jam was caught on video by a fan in attendance, and he uploaded it to YouTube, and he said right in the middle of this kind of cool, spontaneous jam, George was jamming and playing an improvised Van Halen classic, and it looks like he was having fun with it, and he was paying homage. You have to remember, George Lynch was a peer to Eddie because he was in that band, The Boys, and The Boys was his prior band to Dokken that Gene Simmons and Paul Stanley came down to see the night they went 
went to see Van Halen, but they ended up trying to sign Van Halen instead of the boys. But they were initially going there to see the boys, but they got wowed by Van Halen in the process. So at the end of the performance, Lynch plays some fiery licks and, and says, in remembrance of our fallen brother, one of the greatest inspirations of my personal guitar journey. So it was nice that he paid tribute to Ed. What did you think of that? Very cool. Very cool. Like that George gives kudos to somebody he was on the scene with at the time. And, you know, George is no slouch on guitar himself, right? Oh, he's amazing, yeah. Yeah. That's true. So that was cool. Now, a new Eddie Van Halen book is coming out. Dave, they're coming out fast and furious. This author by the name of Paul Brannigan, who did the Dave Grohl book, This Is a Call, and he also did the Birth School Metallica Death book, and he also did the Into the Black book, Inside the Story Metallica from 1991 to 2014, and he's got a new one coming out in October called Eruption, and it's going to come out on the anniversary of Ed's death, and this is so weird because I had Dave Deja vu when putting this together and Dave had sent me this piece of information because we talked about another book coming out at the same time called Eruption and the photo on the cover it's from the same photo session it's black and white I mean it's hysterical although the the other one that we talked about is from the like the, the years of Eddie doing interviews with Guitar World this one I think is definitely more of an overall biography so it's going to kind of take you through Eddie's whole life. Whereas the other one, which I think is done by Brad Tolinsky and Chris Gill, those are the guys from like Guitar World. They're going to have more of kind of the interviews culminating through the years. There's probably a lot more gear stuff in there as well. What do you think of that, Dave? Like you said, they're coming fast and furious. It's so funny when I sent that to you and you're like, wait a minute, isn't this the book we talked about already? You got to do a double take when the picture is similar and the title is the same. It's hard to keep track. And it's coming out at the exact same time. It's it's hysterical. Crazy. Now, sad news here is former Montrose singer Bob James, Robert Bob James, died, Dave, recently of stomach ulcer complications. Unfortunately, he's the guy who replaced Sammy Hagar in Montrose. When Montrose did the albums Warner Brothers Presents Montrose in 1975 and also Jump On It from 1976. He was in that band during that period of time. He was also in the band Shatterminx. He is also survived by his son and songwriter, Brendan Willing James. And uh, he was only 68, very young, same age as Al. So it's sad to hear that. Yeah, and you know, those other two Montrose albums... I don't think they're as good as the first two, but there are some decent songs on Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, they're always good for a spin to get a few songs off of. So, yeah, sad to hear somebody else in the Van Halen-related community passing away. Ronnie, of course, passed away, you know, I think it was almost a decade ago now, something like that. Right. Our heroes are moving on. They're all moving on. Now, one person who did a nod to his hero was Eddie Van Halen, Steve Terraberry. This guy put out a YouTube video where he plays Eruption using 20 different styles. Here's a clip. On 
on this clip, he's playing blues and thrash and progressive metal and ACDC style and alien core and flamenco. It's like all these different styles on here. I thought this was very cool, very inventive. What did you think of this? I thought that was crazy cool. Yeah. The way he just switches from style to style and makes it work. It's totally worth a listen. It's amazing in its execution of various different styles to a Van Halen song. I liked it a lot. Yeah, that was very, very cool. Another thing that was cool on YouTube was this mini documentary about, remember the famous Van Halen photo, Dave, of Dave and Eddie outside McDonald's from like the late 70s? Yes. Yes. Okay, they show Eddie and Dave, it's in winter, they're wearing winter coats, and they're eating cheeseburgers. They look like they're wolfing down like tons of cheeseburgers outside McDonald's. And it was taken during the promotion tour of the first album in the suburbs of St. Louis in Crestwood, Illinois. And the DJs, Mark Klaus and Ron Stevens from Casey Radio, they did this mini documentary about that specific photo, which was taken by Richard Upper, the photographer. It's one of his most iconic iconic photos and he said the guys were in these army surplus jackets that they picked up on the road and they kind of took a break and went to McDonald's because they were hungry and he got this incredible shot and they went out of their way Dave to go back to the McDonald's and stand in the same spot and show you the difference of the road and the different signs and the businesses and what they were doing was they were raising money so they took this shot and they blew it up and they had Richard Upper the photographer sign it and they were all it off on keeplivealivestl.org and it's $25 per chance and it's a $500 value and really, really cool. And they also recounted how the guys came into the radio station. They were pushing You Really Got Me at the time in the winter of 1978 on their promo tour. What did you think of this document? I thought this was really, really cool. Yeah, that was crazy. I know we've spoken about this picture before. Yep. And how people were trying to find out which McDonald's it was right. and all the homework that was done. So it's really amazing Unbelievable. how this seemingly random picture of the band has gotten so much attention. And it's just amazing what, what Ronald McDonald can do to people. I mean, every time this picture comes up, I'm always like, wow, again? Like, yeah. Everybody just loves this picture and where it was, the story behind it. And yeah, it's just an interesting early time in Van Halen's history, right when they were breaking. Yeah, it's iconic. Yeah. And that's iconic photo, yeah. for sure. Yeah. Now, our last item is incredibly, incredibly, incredibly sad. So... As you guys have known, Dave and I have been excited about this new Talus album coming. We're still excited about it. However, some really sad news came down that Talus singer Phil Naro passed away after his long battle with tongue cancer. He was only 63 years old, and Phil was a fantastic singer. Dave and I had seen him in the spring of 2019, and we saw that Talus show, which makes even more special now and it was special as it was before and this was a really hard blow he died in his home in rochester new york and that album is still coming out and it was worked on even though he was really struggling it's really just an intense intense situation so sad for his family and talus worked so hard on this album in fact dave and i 
before this episode, did a very special interview with Billy Sheehan in memory of Phil Naro and about this album. So that is going to be a big portion of this episode. Dave, this was really sad, right? I mean, to get this news was horrible. Yeah, I mean, we were really hoping he was going to beat the odds and and, you know, he wasn't that old. No. And to hear, it, you know, it was tongue cancer, I believe. Yep, yep. And again, you know, it's just really sad. Yeah. But on the flip side, we're just so fortunate that he was able to finish the album. Yeah. Before he passed oh, away. Yeah. In retrospect, you know, the guy was not at 100%, but he was giving it his all. Like I said, we're really lucky. And I'm now, it, it'll be bittersweet, yeah. but I am looking forward to hearing this album. It's the Talos album we all thought would never happen. Right. You know, it's sad that he, he won't be around to enjoy it coming out, but, uh, you know, as a fan, I'm just grateful that we're even getting that chance to hear it because that's one of those things you never thought was going to happen. Yep. And here this guy's recording this album and, you know, he was going to die a few months later. So yeah. we're, we're really very lucky. You know, like you said, condolences to the family. Oh, yeah, horrible. And, Just horrible. Uh, you know, by, by all accounts, he was a great guy, and yeah. he certainly was a fantastic singer. Yep. Uh, and he will be missed. Yeah, very, very sad. I'm so glad we saw that show, and it was a lot of effort to see that show, because remember, it was, it was like the early spring or winter, and it was, I remember it was cold, and it was snowing, and it was like the middle of the week, and I remember you came down, and it was like, it was, remember how we, we went to a lot of, like, hoops to go to that show. I remember, yeah. like, when we, because we saw that show, and we had almost found, not the last minute, but like, we yeah. did not know about it, it was, when the tickets yeah. were released. No, no, it was and sort we of under the radar. It, after the fact, and we were like, so are we going? Yeah, like, we This are. is going to be, yeah. like, when's this going to happen again? Exactly, right? exactly. And the, you kind of knew. Right, and like, the timing was lousy, and we were just like, screw it. Yeah. We're going to make it happen. Yeah. We're going to go. And we're so glad we did. It was a great show. Yeah. Great band, and you know it was it was 2019. We didn't know we weren't going to be seeing shows. Yeah, that's right, year. that's right. But that was a special and, uh, one because it was like I mean, it was just so many things that had to happen in order to make it happen. But we like right. we did it, and then you had to leave like early in the morning. Remember, you had to go all the way back to Connecticut. Oh my god, it was insane. So it I was, know, I know. But that was always one of our like bucket list bands. Yeah, it we, was. It was. It we was. never got to see any version of Talent no. because we would always find out about. And I don't know how this happened. Yeah. But we would always find out about the reunion shows after they happened. I know. I you know, know. Admittedly, this was like pre-internet in the early days yeah, of the internet. Yeah, I know. I know. But we'd be like, oh, there's a live album coming out of the reunion show? Like, <laughs> how do we not hear about this? Yeah. Now, admittedly, Buffalo is not around the corner. No. But you and I would have been crazy enough in 1997 or 8 to do the drive to see it. That's for sure. But we we were lucky to see Talos version 2, as it's called. And like I said, we're looking forward to hearing the the studio album, to hear the songs they never got to properly record. Yeah, he squeaked this out and delivered, according to Billy, an incredible performance. So unfortunately, we're ending Van Halen News on a sad note, but that wraps up Van Halen News. And that's the way it is. Good night. We are going to get into all kinds of stuff here. So, we have a special throwdown here that I posed to Dave, and he got all excited about. So, we are doing a post-Van Halen album throwdown. And what does that mean? This is what happens 
when you get let go by Van Halen, and what do you do afterwards? Well, this is Sammy's album outside of Van Halen, his first one after he got whatever, fired, let go, forced out, whatever you want to call it. That was in 1997 with Marching to Mars. And we pair that against Gary Sharon's album by Tribe of Judah, Exit Elvis. And that is from 2002. And Dave and I do a full deep dive into both of these albums. And of course, Dave has to throw in Edom and Smile in there because he's got to get the trifecta going. And he wants. That's right. That's right. I know we covered it already, but there's no way we're having that conversation without that album. That's right. That's right. So he insisted on that. So we're doing that. Followed by our interview with Billy Sheehan, like we mentioned earlier before. Billy Sheehan was kind enough to do an interview with us, Dave, a week, maybe five days after Phil's death, right? I mean, it was really very soon. It was soon really soon. It was really, really very gracious of him. Very gracious. And Billy really talks about Phil. He talks about the album, gives us insights into the album, what it took to make it, Phil's situation, how he met Phil. Like, a lot of cool, interesting stuff. And Billy's just amazing. That guy's unbelievable. I mean, he's one of a kind. I mean, there's not too many out there like Billy Sheehan, and not only is he unbelievably musically talented, like, just beyond it. And let me tell you something. One thing about him, Dave, he's on so many albums as a guest star, I don't even think you could possibly calculate it. That's how many guest appearances he has on stuff. And we Oh, I know. His, his discography oh, must be impossible it, to track. I would guess that I don't know if there is a discography out there that is full that encapsulates everything he's on because there's so many little albums that he did guest appearances on I don't think anybody could possibly track all that in addition to his own bands that he's been in I mean, you know, Winery Dogs, Sons of Apollo, David Lee Roth Band, Mr. Big. You go down the line, he's got so many different talents, of course. I mean, there's so many different bands and outfits that he's in, so many guest appearances. We get into all of that stuff, but we, we talk mainly about memorializing Phil. His house is part of the Van Halen family, for sure, and we wanted to get into that. But, Dave, before we get into that, you know we have to do the mailbag, and we have a nice, juicy mailbag to get through, and that is all coming up next... Family. It looks a little different for everyone. For some, it's mom and dad. For others, roommates who feel like family. And for others, it's your significant other, their golfing buddies, your children, a high school soccer team starting lineup, and oh look, they're all taking you up on the offer to stay for dinner, really testing the limits of that phrase, the more the merrier. But no matter where you call home, GEICO makes it easy to bundle and save on home and car insurance. Easier than making three frozen pizzas and assorted frozen veggies into a cohesive meal. Sometimes life can feel like a pressure cooker. From our work life to our personal lives and relationships, there's so much to balance. It's easy to feel weighed down when you're experiencing anxiety, stress, or sadness. Guess what? You are not alone. Support is all around you. No matter where you are, all you need to do is ask. Let us help you find a community at churchescare.com. Churches are communities of care. Go to churchescare.com to explore the possibilities. Churchescare.com. Take a listen. 
And it is that conflict, it is that collision, that sound, mm-hmm. in, you know, in that, here's that Japanese shit again. In sumo, that's called tachiai. When they collide, boom! You can hear that all the way across the arena. And that's the sound of Van Halen, is that there is a mutual push-pull, like you found on all the most colorful football teams and baseball teams, you know. reason that uh, people still wear, you know, that Oakland Raiders logo, you know, come from whatever city it's in today, it hails back to Oakland, California in the late 70s, you know, when they were the the wildest bad boys. If you need a dose of the H, get a taste of the closest thing. Romeo Delight, the ultimate Van Halen tribute band, playing all the hits from the David Lee Roth era, first classic six albums plus deep cuts, some of which have never been played live before by the band. They even throw in popular tracks from the Sammy Hagar era and solo hits. The most viewed Van Halen tribute band on YouTube, Romeo Delight, doing customized recreations of staging instruments and costumes from the classic Van Halen era. They even perform entire Van Halen albums in sequence. Romeo Delight plays theaters, casinos, summer indoor and outdoor festivals, and special events. They're also available for private parties. To contact them, call Bud Blanche at 215-704-5144. That's 215-704-5144. Or via email at sonicparade1 at yahoo.com. Romeo Delight, the ultimate Van Halen tribute band. Author Greg Renoff is back with a new book, Ted Templeman, A Platinum Producer's Life and Music the new biography of the record producer Ted Templeman, who went on to produce Van Halen, the Doobie Brothers, Van Morrison, Aerosmith, Sammy Hagar, and more. The book, which runs 1995, and it's currently available at Amazon.com. From the man who brought you Van Halen Rising comes Ted Templeman, a platinum producer's life and music, written by Templeman as told to Greg Renoff. Available for only $19.95 at Amazon.com. Order it today. Hi, this is Dweezil Zappa, and you're listening to Dave and Dave Unchained. Hello, loyal listeners. Wanted to let you know about our new Patreon. If you like what we do and you have the means, drop us a donation to keep the podcast going. Go to Patreon.com backslash Unchained. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash D-D-U-N-C-H-A-I-N-E-D. Doesn't have to be huge. Any side's contributions are greatly appreciated. Those who contribute $40 or more will get the Unchained package. Trust me, it's worth it. Contribute $65 or more and get the Romeo Delight package, which is Unchained plus more. And $95 scores you the Top Jimmy package, which is the Kitchen Sink. If you're Van Halen hardcore and listen to this cast, this is stuff you'll appreciate. It's ear candy. Go to patreon.com backslash Unchained. Email your contact information to Podcast at gmail.com. What is understood need not be discussed. 
Check out the new podcast, The Rock Quarry, your place to hear in-depth interviews with some of Rock's most colorful characters, with your host, entertainment journalist David J. Criblay. The Rock Quarry is available for free on Spreaker and iTunes. You can check us out on Facebook at The Rock Quarry Podcast, on Twitter at Rock Quarry Pod, on Instagram at The Rock Quarry Podcast, or email us at Podcast at gmail.com. From very early on, that it was kind of ingrained on us that if, if you're doing something that you like, then that is of the utmost importance. Because uh, in our family, there were two two opposites. There was my dad, the musician, the guy, the happy-go-lucky guy, you know, and let's have a drink, that type of thing. The other side was our was our mother. <laughs> he says, you know, without without a suit and tie, you ain't diddly. You know, <laughs> you're, you're nothing. Uh, you come by, you know, visit today or tomorrow, and and she'll say, Alex. Uh, when are you going to get a job? <laughs> you know, she's 75. And she, Mom, does it really make any difference? <laughs> All right, Dave, you know what time it is. Well, my buddy Dave, you don't want me around. He says he's tired of watching me let him down. He just wants a good mail back. He wants only the best. But he hates disappointment better than all the rest. And he says that he thinks that I'm headed for a whole lot of trouble. Well, he thinks that I'm headed for a whole lot of trouble. Well, he thinks that I'm headed for a whole lot of trouble. If I don't nail the mailbag in trouble. That's right, it's mailbag time again. And we have a nice bunch of letters. We're starting with letter number one, Dave, coming all the way from Sydney, Australia, from Stephen Halmerick. And he says, hi, Dave and Dave, Steve from Sydney here. That could be my new nickname. Two things I wanted to ask. KISS have announced that they are touring Australia in November this year, COVID-depending, as part of their latest farewell tour. Any word if David Lee Roth will be supporting them like he did in the States? There has been no mention of David Lee Roth touring in the local press. Second, who do you think has the most influence on Wolf's new music? I know he said many times that his favorite band is ACDC. Well, at least the band he and Ed enjoyed together. But Wolf's new music sounds nothing like ACDC. To me, Wolf's music has a real 1990s sound to it. Do you think that comes from his association with Mark Tremonti, who, of course, has an influence back from the 90s with Creed? I think I'm correct in saying that the drummer from Tremonti is also in Mammoth WVH. Thanks, and keep up the great podcast. Stephen Halmarek from Sydney, Australia. Well, Steve, number one, David Lee Roth will not be supporting Kiss in Australia. In fact, I looked it up for you. Wolf Mother will be as well as Tumbleweed. And if you go and want to see Kiss, Wolf Mother is a fantastic band. So definitely want to check that out. In Townsville, you're getting both. And in Brisbane, it's just Wolf Mother. Number two, Wolf's music is clearly a blend of commercial pop stuff like Blink-182 and Jimmy Eat World, along with heavy stuff like Tool and Black Sabbath. And he does have some sort of ACDC hooks a little bit in there, but it's not exactly like them for sure. And number three, Garrett 
Whitlock on drums is definitely from Tremonti. He was in Tremonti from 2011 to 2018. Dave, what do you have to say? Wow, you hit the nail on the head on everything. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I was going to say, I think Wolf's music is somewhere between 1990s and 2000. If you're looking for a decade to point to, it's somewhere in there. But, you know, it, it just rocks. Number two, letter number two comes from John Citrone. And he has a nickname, but we're going to save it for the end because it's sort of a special nickname. And it it's is... Citrone. Oh, Citrone? Come on, he gave you the pronunciation for crying out loud. You're right. Loud. You know what? An Italian name! Come and, on! And just like your name, Marconi, Citrone. Look I'm, at that. Come on, come I'm, on. I'm, I know it's late. This is part of the shtick. I'm supposed to be the tired one. Oh, let me, wait a second. Who wanted to start an hour later tonight? I did. <laughs> I did. I did. Well, that's what time I thought we were starting. You are unbelievable. But come okay. on, man. People are giving you the pronunciation. You're right. No, you're 100. You are 100% right. I glazed over it. I apologize. John E. Citroni from Jacksonville, Florida. Hey, boys. Longtime listener. First time writer. I am sure you have seen the Panama Outtakes video that recently resurfaced and the date stamp says it was posted back in 2017, but it's recently making the rounds again with tons of unearthed Van Halen footage, much of which you guys have covered in depth in the past episodes. But in the outtakes video during Alex and his drum storage portion, there is a banner on the wall that reads, Fuck Bruce. And it can be clearly seen about 14 minutes and 25 seconds into the video, along with other places in the clip. And sluice that you often prove to be, I am wondering if you have any leads on who Bruce is and why he should be fucked. And he also says, I need a Van Halen handle. How about John Bruce Fucker Citroni? That's... John E. Citroni from Jacksonville, Florida. Number one, I don't know if that's a good nickname for you. Bruce Fucker, I think you might want to try something a little more clever than that. That's a little harsh. However, I believe that is Bruce Springsteen, and I'll tell you why. Because at the time, Van Halen was competing on the charts with Born in the USA, and Born in the USA was really dominating at the time when it came out. Dancing in the Dark and Jump also competing singles as biggest songs of the year there. My I guess and my educated guess would be that is Bruce. What do you think, Dave? I had no idea, so I think that is as good of a guess as any. Well, we're going to go with that. On to letter number three, coming from David Storm in Orlando, Florida. He says, Dave and Dave, no nickname here. My parents bless me with David Storm. Got to give it to him. That's a great name. It's a rock star name. So really appreciate the podcast, and I've been digging into the past episodes during the lockdown doldrums, and I was hunting for insights into the Jack Daniels base as I was building a replica and your interview with Doogie was helpful. I love how you guys ask insightful questions and don't shy away from your opinions and, and express the passions of true lifelong fans while being open to new music and ideas. I was watching Eddie's interview at the Smithsonian for what it means to be an American and was fascinated by the immigrant story of Eddie and Alex. Roth, whose grandparents are from Russia, Anthony's parents are from Poland, and they all end up moving to California. Incredible story, and I wondered if you'd be interested in diving into that deeper. I appreciate it very much. Your discussion is Van Halen a metal band? For me, they are not. They are hard rock. As you discussed, they did serve into the lane in the 1983 to 1985 period, but what always separated them from heavy metal and hair metal was their sense of humor and fun. Last thing, I am working on the Jack Daniels replica for 1984, the ultimate tribute to Van Halen in Central Florida, Orlando area, which is coming out of COVID lockdown for June. 
June 6th for a tribute to rock and roll at the alley. And we'd be honored if you could mention the gig and give some Central Florida fans an opportunity to hear the greatest rock and roll played by musicians who take it seriously and have a blast doing it. Tickets are at thealleylive.com and we are at facebook.com slash 1984 Van Halen Tribute. Looking forward to hearing more from both of you and thanks for what you do. David Storm in Orlando, Florida. Well, Dave, it's great to hear from you. Thank you so much for the kind words. I'm sure we will get into that Smithsonian interview. I'd like to definitely pinpoint that one day. I don't know when we will do it, but it's definitely a deep dive that needs to be done. That's definitely an interesting thing. Number two, Van Halen is definitely not a hair band. However, they certainly inspired hair bands. In my opinion, Van Halen is a 70s rock band who evolved in the 80s. They're sort of interesting because they're very much a bridge from 70s rock into 80s rock, but that whole hair band thing became way more of a whole other genre than Van Halen was. Certainly inspired by Van Halen. What do you think, Dave? I don't think Van Halen was a hair metal band, but I think they were very inspiring to hair metal bands. I think they had hair metal tendencies, especially towards the 1984 period, as Dave pointed out, or as David pointed out. Mm-hmm. So I don't think they are, but I I waffle sometimes because they were certainly the forerunners of it. And they were certainly making some metal-like music in the 80s during that time. They aren't completely absent from it. They set the table for it, in my opinion. That, that's just my opinion. And that's a fair yeah. way of saying yeah. it. Yeah. That's a fair way of saying yeah, it. Yeah, definitely. So now, letter number four comes from Rick Bellaccio. How's that, Dave? Is that better? A little Rick Bellaccio? Does that sound a little more Italian for you? Rick Bellaccio. There we go. So, hey, guys. There you go. <laughs> Uh, Hey guys, I heard a little bit about the cover being the same as Wolfgang's from you guys and from letters from others that had wrote in. He's talking about Wolfgang Van Halen's new album, Mammoth WVH, self-titled album coming out on June 11th, having the same cover as Violent Eve's album from 2016. I finally went to Spotify to check it out. My guess is Wolf decided to use this album cover. Then if he found out it had been used by Violent Eve, he went to Spotify, saw that no one listens to them and said fuck it and decided to use it anyway. Violent Eve's music may be good for some ears, but it is unlistenable to me. Their most popular song has less than 4,000 total downloads and I'm guessing many could be attributed to Wolfgang's decision to use the artwork anyway. Had they been even remotely successful by any measure, he would have probably reconsidered. Wolf did them a huge favor, though looking at the number of downloads, I say not huge enough. Peace and Chicken Grease, Rick Bellaccio, and that's line number four, and my guess is that Wolf found out after the fact. That is totally my guess. That he found out after he used the image, set up the merch, and everything, and it was too late. However, it wasn't addressed. It doesn't seem to be something people are bringing up with him, but it doesn't matter how popular the band is, in my opinion. It was used. It exists online. It's on iTunes. It's on Spotify. So, I don't know if the band is huge, if it's not huge, if that really matters. I mean, it's used, so I don't know. What do you think, Dave? I don't know anything about the band or their music, but I would bet along with you that Wolf found out after the fact. Yep, it has and, that you know, I mean, whatever at this point, like, you'd already been committed to using it, and, you know, what does it matter, really, at the end of the day? At the end of the day, what does it matter? Letter number five comes from John McDonald from Melbourne, Australia. Wow, really going down under this one. On the subject of proposed name changes when Sammy joined the band, I'd suggested that there was more than pride in the family name driving the brothers' 
resistance to the idea. The notion that Van Hagar name was mooted has been suggested many times over the years and attributed to various people. I dare say the fact that the name of the band was also Eddie and Alex's surname, allowing them easy access to the moral high ground during the debate. The real issue was surely the value in an established band name with millions of album sales under its belt and a reluctance to take the risk of starting over with a new name. They didn't seem to use the term brand value as much back then, but it's more or less the same consideration. I think Quiet Dave has the right end of the stick on this one. On to that point, I find it highly surprising that Warner Brothers pushing for the commercially riskier option. They took the opposing approach with Black Sabbath over more or less the same time frame. At least one of Sab's 80s albums was irrefutably originally intended as Iomi solo project, and depending on who you believe, the Dio era albums and at least two subsequent releases were also intended to be under different names. Each time, the suits played safe with the Sabbath moniker. I suppose it's possible that Warner Brothers had more faith in the strength of the material in the 5150 than in Seventh Star, Born Again at Al. So, a higher degree of confidence in its commercial potential as a standalone entity, if that's the case, few would argue the logic. It sounds, though, that it's being suggested all the chest beating happened before the recording process was even underway. However, the case that you'd expect the corporate behemoth to be the one who is more inclined to stay the course with a proven successful entity. John McDonald, Melbourne, Australia. This is what I think here, John. I think the identity of David Lee Roth is what was causing the whole issue. Although Ed and Al were named Van Halen, and obviously, you know, continue, always been, but Dave's image, his physical look, everything was tied to the Van Halen name. The reason I think they floated the Van Hagar thing as a possible name for the band with Sam is they figured if the Van Halen-Hagar situation flopped, they could still have that Van Halen name to go back to and keep that format. This really was stemming from Ted, and I believe he mentions that in his book. Ted was under the impression that this Sammy thing was very temporary and that they were just going to get back with Dave, which always blew my mind when I read that book. I, I didn't understand how he saw that, but that was the view he seemed to have there. It's really interesting, that perspective. The band even said it, that the members of the Warner Brothers company weren't all that confident. Warner Brothers was pretty skeptical. The band was very confident in the material, but there wasn't a massive promotional campaign for 5150, if you remember, David. It's not like it was downplayed, but it wasn't really boasted, right? Well, I don't know about that. I, I felt like they were giving it a, a big push. I don't, well, I don't feel like they were downplaying it or anything. Think about the time, Dave. What kind of big promotion did you see? There was no videos. There was nothing on MTV. They, no, took, I know there were no. That's there was no video promotion. That's yeah. for sure. The only thing that I saw at the time was when they finally did that Unleashed special from 1986. That was the 
only thing I could get my hands on or even sink my teeth into that had any sort of anything. Think about it. They weren't on Saturday Night Live. They weren't on The Tonight Show. Like, you didn't see them, like, out and about. Ed Leffler had this kind of attitude, like, let them pay a ticket to go see them. I don't want to give it all away. That was his sort of, like, attitude about it. But if you think about it, it was a very risky, risky gamble, which they won handily. For sure. They really scored on it, but very risky what they did. I mean... Yeah, and I was always surprised that the record company wanted to change the band's name, especially in light of the Black Sabbath comparison that The Last Rider made. Because usually the record company fights, like, really hard for you to keep the band name, even if you don't want that band name anymore. And it just seems like such a slam dunk that you would still call Van Halen when the people named Van Halen are still in the band. And I was always like, I can't believe the record company is asking them to change the name of the band. And not because the drummer and the guitarist are named Van Halen, but because it's such a well-known name. You know, we've had this conversation before, like, why are you going to risk that? And why are you going to potentially make less money? John Karabi, you know, you've mentioned this before, Dave. John Karabi tells the story that Motley Crue would have been paid a lot less to play live if they were playing as another name band instead of Motley Crue. It's true, but here's the way that flopped on them. Everybody goes, "Uh, that's not Motley Crue. Like, almost like, listen, you buy a chocolate ice cream cone and you bite into it and it doesn't taste like chocolate when it looks like chocolate it's called chocolate on the label and you ask for a chocolate ice cream cone and you bite into it and it tastes like butter pecan I mean you're going to be like uh, excuse me I ordered chocolate this is not chocolate I mean that's what they're going with and let's be honest okay think about the time Dave was the brand he was the face of the entire band you know, think about how much more we knew about Eddie Mike and Al after Dave left the band they were so much more brought to the forefront than they were before eddie playing was incredible and always at the forefront but the face the voice everything was dave 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 you showed someone a picture of dave and they wouldn't say david lee roth they'd say van halen so he was sort of like almost like the bat symbol you know what i mean like you see the bat symbol and you think batman it's like one of those things and i think he was so ingrained i mean for christ's sake he even the early days, the club owners would call him Van. He's such a big personality that they didn't realize how they would overcome that. The way I see it with the Sammy thing is, Sammy was a known guy, right? So I think that they were going for almost like a Hassas thing, like let's put their names together and this way they know the name says collab. You know what I mean? Like Van Hagar, it's that collaboration between Van Halen and Sammy Hagar. You know, kind of like the way Hagar and Halen kind of work together it just seemed to flow i mean you know if his last name was gibson i don't think they would have called it van gibson but i think you could still keep the vh and you know you still keep the logo and i think there was some sort of playing around there it was probably a discussion that they had one afternoon in a board meeting but i think that they really thought especially ted ted was convinced Ah, oh, dave will be back 
And this is during Eat Him and Smile. Like, this is not during, like, Crazy from the Heat. He's like, ah, he'll get Eat Him and Smile out of his system. You know, Eddie will do the album with Sammy, and then we'll get back and we'll do the thing again. And that never happened. I mean, I don't know how he didn't see the writing on the wall there, but it was clear. Anyway, on to letter number six, and that comes from Paul Davis, Dave, and he said, L-M-A-O, I can't believe that Quiet Dave didn't get the Doogie reference in my letter. That's okay, I still got a big laugh out of it. Thanks for all you guys do, Paul Davis. He was calling you out there, Dave. Remember that? At the end of the mailbag, you got tired, and I did that whole joke, and then you were like, oh, yeah, I know that. that's rough. That went completely over my head. <laughs> I see he's not calling himself Vegas Paul Davis. Yeah, I think he might have just forgot, but we, 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 he's certainly Vegas Paul Davis. However, Dave, letter number seven comes from Southeast Nice Guy Kurt Lancos. Look at that, Dave. I think I got it right. Isn't it right? Lancos? Uh, I, don't, I don't think so. It's not. <laughs> All right, let, let, me, let me try it again. Lawn. I think it was Lon Lon Swa. I don't know. This poor bastard. But let me tell you something. Let me tell you something. This guy's piece of work. Hey, Dave's. I just completed a fair warning 40th anniversary episode with Martin Popoff and Eddie Trunk. Once again, I mentioned your podcast on the show and referenced the listeners with your fifth anniversary show where you spoke to Dweezil Zappa about fair warning. I mentioned it in the episode, and I also linked to your episode in the show notes. Check it out, and he sent it to us. I am just now completing your conversation with Dweezil, and I enjoyed the Vargas interview. Great stuff. Have a wonderful weekend, my friends. Southeast Kurt. And Kurt is becoming a little bit of a promotional machine here, promoting his podcast with every uh, word he writes. <laughs> he will be nice guy Kurt to me, because oh, he really does go out of he, his way. He is. He's very, very nice. I just break his balls a little bit there. But he is very nice, and he's been incredibly kind to Dave and I, sending us the Van Halen beer. He, he got us that. He's been always referencing our podcast and praising that and promoting our podcast. So, yes, I'm, I'm just teasing you, Kurt. I'm just joking around. You can promote your podcast. In fact, he's the Retro Zest podcast. You guys want to check it out? Retro Zest podcast. He has a fair warning, 40th anniversary episode, Martin Popoff and Eddie Trunk. Check it out. Letter number eight, Dave, comes from Steve Ustick in Michigan. Okay. Hi, Dave and Dave. First, I want to say congratulations on your fifth anniversary. I enjoyed every episode from the beginning, and thank you for the podcast. As everyone knows, in 1987, when Valerie Bertinelli was a guest host on SNL, Eddie was there during the week leading up to the show and hanging out with the musicians in the office. G.E. Smith invited Ed to play with him and the band for a special jam on Stompin' at 8H, in which Eddie proceeded to melt everybody's faces on the night of the show, but something strikes me as interesting and odd that no one discusses. The scheduled musical guest that night was not Eddie, rather the Robert Cray band. Cray was an 80s era Clapton protege, a lead guitarist fairly well known in the guitar world. Other than showing as a musical guest, he is never mentioned in any discussions related to that episode. Nothing about whether he met Eddie or being on friendly terms with him. No pictures of the two of them together. No interviews of the two of them mentioning each other. Don't you think this is odd? Two guitars strongly influenced by Clapton and they've got nothing to talk about or to be buddies over? I wonder if Cray was less than thrilled about Smith inviting Eddie to jam, by which Eddie proceeded to blow the scheduled musical guest out of everyone's memories. Or perhaps Cray was invited to jam with Ed, but because Cray was part of Clapton's inner circle, which did not include Eddie, he was similar to Clapton and in that he just didn't like Eddie's playing. Therefore, 
choosing to keep his distance from Ed. Curious what you think, Steve Ustick from Michigan. Well, I tell you what, Steve, it is curious to me, but it might be a scheduling thing. Now, let's look at this. Okay, so Robert Cray at the time was touring heavily and promoting his album. He was doing very well, and he might have come in and out very often with SNL. And I know this because a friend of mine who works on the SNL staff, okay, very often those bands are kept completely separate from the actual show. So they're almost loading in, banging it out, and loading out. Because very often they're doing SNL in between shows. There actually have been bands that have played Madison Square Garden and then gone to SNL, played SNL, and went back on the tour bus and went to the next gig. So that, I know, has happened multiple times, and very often it's a tight, scheduled window. So there might not have been a lot of time for play. However, I will give you this little taste of information. I have interviewed Mr. Robert Cray. I happen to be an incredible fan of his playing. I think he's unbelievable. He's a very serious dude. Very, very serious guy. I don't get the vibe that he would be like a guy to jump in and jam impromptu. Not that he's not capable, but I think he's a little more methodical than that. I cannot speak to him exactly, but I just get that feeling. Eddie will pick up a guitar and play with anybody at any time. He always just loved to play, play, play. Some musicians are not like that. They like to be prepared. Or Have you heard anything about this, Dave? No, until that letter. I didn't even realize there was another musical guest on the show. That's a good point. I thought Ed was the musical guest. Oh, now you just hurt Mr. Cray's feelings. I know. I just had no idea. So... Who knew? Wow, that's, that's a true. revelation to me. It is. Letter number nine comes from Johnny Booth from Fredericksburg, Virginia. And he says, hey, Dave and Dave, really enjoyed the fifth anniversary episode, and thanks so much for letting me be a part of it. I say, Dweezil Zappa did a great job of expressing what Van Halen has meant from a guitarist point of view, and I related to everything he said, and now I started listening to his podcast as well. He talked about push comes to shove and wondering how that came about, and I think I were Call Billy Corrigan asking Ed about it back in the 1996 interview he did with Ed from Guitar World magazine, and most likely because Dave was on a reggae kick, he was pushing the band to try to do a reggae tune. Push comes to shove was the result. Maybe someone can fact check that for me. Also, this morning, which is May 4th, I saw a post on the EVH Gear Instagram page promoting the release of new gear, and the guitarist in the video is Frankie Lindia, who played with Dave in Vegas. He's jamming a tune that calls back to a VH demo we called We Die Bold, and it was really cool to listen to, and I suggest anyone who hasn't heard it to check it out. That's all from me. Thanks, as always, for what you do, and stay frosty. Johnny Booth! From Fredericksburg, Virginia. Well, Johnny, yes, Ed did say, for sure, I've heard him over and over say that Dave was looking to do some sort of a reggae vibe thing. But you know with Van Halen, whatever they do, it just comes out being Van Halen. So even though he was going for a reggae flavor, it's not exactly a reggae song, but it certainly pushed them in a different direction on that tune. And I want to say that Dweezil opened my eyes to that tune even more than I ever had before. I have gotten way more into that tune, and I really took to heart 
what he said, although I'm not a musician, I know nothing about playing guitar, but listening to him and his passion for that song and even following the intricacies of what he's talking about, I listen to it now with a whole new perspective on it. What do you think, Dave? That is a different kind of Van Halen song. It really is. Definitely not your typical one. There's a lot to like about that song. And you're right, Dweezil definitely adds an appreciation to that song that you wouldn't get just by listening to it. Absolutely. Letter number 10 comes from East Coast Rob, and he's known as Bob Yashevsky. I'm going to try it. Yashevsky. I hope that. It's a long Polish name, and it's not easy. Okay, so... Number 10 comes from from East Coast Rob, and he says, Hey, Daves, while on the nickname subject, I will be known as East Coast Rob unless East Coast has already been taken. I reside near Worcester, Massachusetts. And when you read my email... Worcester. Oh, Worcester. Pronounced Worcester. What's with the C? I know it doesn't spell that way. Okay, Worcester. Pronounced. Right, I know. You're in that uppity crust of Connecticut up there. It's, uh, It's Worcester. It's Worcester. All right, Worcester. Worcester, Massachusetts. When you read my email the first time I emailed you guys, you nailed the pronunciation of my last name. Wow, I just fucked it up. Thanks for that. Oh, the irony. (laughs) Unbelievable. Yashevsky. I'm hoping I get that right because I think I have a friend of mine who has a similar last name, but all right, whatever. So on the subject of keyboards in Van Halen, I never understood the debate. Some of the greatest bands from the 60s and 70s use keyboards, and I say, welcome to the club. Below is a link for Quieter Dave, because the Monkees are on their farewell tour, and I notice they are coming to Unixville, Connecticut, and Mohegan Sun. Everybody wants to feed your monkeys fix, Dave. I love how everybody's always letting you know about the Monkees. I, I think you're going to one of the gigs, right? Yeah, I'm planning on going to see them in Huntington, Long Island, actually, because wow. that's a uh, more intimate venue than Mohegan. Mohegan. I might see them in Mohegan too if the price is right. So, <laughs> let we'll me, see. Let me we'll put see. it to you this way. Tour, man. You the know, last, the last four, This so. is the end. So this let's is, see. This, this is, is. The, this is when you reach deep into that that cobwebbed wallet of yours, and oh, yeah. and you give Mr. Nesmith and Mr. Dolan's your last bottom dollar. Indeed. That's right. Because Indeed. you know, and you know, you like a nice intimate evening with Mr. Nesmith. You like to get close to him and I, uh, I do. really smell I the do. liquid paper. The, uh, I do. The keyboards used in Van Halen is so overblown, and I'm going to tell you where I think this fucking comes from, and I hate to say this because I listen to him every day, is Eddie Trunk. Eddie, as much as I love Eddie, he bashes the living hell out of Van Halen with the 1984, with the the keyboard album. There's nine tracks on Van Halen's 1984. Three of them have keyboards. One of them is not even a song. It's just an intro. So technically, it's like two songs with keyboards. The rest are smoking rock songs. But I digress. There's also a little keyboards on Diver Down. From world conflicts to falling financial markets, natural disasters, and more. Wish the headlines would just stop. It's not a newsflash that life can feel like a pressure cooker. From managing work to building relationships, it's easy to feel overwhelmed. And for many of us, anxiety and stress are constant companions. But you are not alone. Support is out there, just waiting to meet you. And you can find it through friendly people at churchescare.com. At churchescare.com, we know that finding your community can feel intimidating. That's why we do the heavy lifting for you. Churchescare.com helps connect people like you to churches that can support and serve you. 
In your new community, you'll find a group of people ready to talk, listen, and help you navigate life through its twists and turns. All you have to do is come as you are. If you're ready to find your community, visit churchescare.com today. That's C-H-U-R-C-H-E-S care.com. We look forward to serving you. Sometimes life can feel like a pressure cooker. From our work life to our personal lives and relationships, there's so much to balance. It's easy to feel weighed down when you're experiencing anxiety, stress, or sadness. Guess what? You are not alone. Support is all around you. No matter where you are, all you need to do is ask. Let us help you find a community at churchescare.com. Churches are communities of care. Go to C-H-U-R-C-H-E-S care.com to explore the possibilities. Churchescare.com. Keyboards on Fair Warning and a little keyboards on Women and Children First. So let's not get crazy. They pretend like Jump is the first keyboards that ever landed on a Van Halen album. Enough's enough with all that stuff. It dates all the way back to Women and Children First. I don't know why this is a big deal. But then the funny thing is, Eddie seems to have no problem with all the keyboards on 5150 or OU812. I don't know if it's because his buddy Sammy's in the band or what the story is. What do you think? It's because his buddy Sammy's in the band. Oh, that's, that's right. That's, that's right. But, yeah, you know, but, but this is a good point. They switched to keyboards, so what? Yeah. It's not like they were the first band to ever have keyboards in it. I just think it was because Ed was such a guitar god. Yeah. And here he is playing keyboards, and everyone was like, what? Like, I know. Why do you even bother? Him? End of the Come world. On, man. End yeah. of the so world. I, I think that was the big deal, and that jump was just such a huge pop song that catapulted Van Halen to the stratosphere, and they got catapulted not because of Eddie's guitar playing, but because of his keyboard playing. And everyone seemed to have an issue with that, except for Ed. That's true. That's very true. Letter number 11 comes from Shannon the Dude, David. He says, check out this shot. Machine just picked her up. What album goes first? 1984. Ease out of the lot with the title track "Car On." Roof open and get the feel for the wheel for some jump. Then let her open up to the highway to Panama. Good time. Keep the moving parts clean. I guess Shannon got a new car, so congratulations on that. Although I have to say, Shannon, I disagree. You should not christen that car with anything from 1984. And what is the song that Dave he should christen that car with? What Van Halen song? Come on. Oh, what Van Halen song? Yeah, come on. Uh, oh, I, I thought you were going to say I Can't Drive 55 by Sammy Hagar. No. Well, first of all, I don't want to hear about that because that is not a Van Halen song. I know everybody <laughs> loves to talk about that. It bothers me that One Way to Rock is on the best of both worlds. That bothers me to no end. It is not a Van Halen song. What is the ultimate Van Halen song that he should be playing to christen that car with, Dave? Come on now. You know the answer. Unchained. Bingle. That's correct. He's got it. All right. Well, that's for sure. Shannon, the dude, Unchained, that's the one that you crank up and let that monster riff come right through the speakers. On to letter number 12, and that is coming from No Nickname Thomas Howell. And I wonder if this is the Thomas Howell from The Outsiders. You never know, Dave. You never know. He could be a fan. Letter number 12, and he says, I have been listening since the first few episodes. Thanks for keeping Van Halen alive each month, and I listen every month on my drive to and from work and hate when each episode is over because I know you work so hard on the podcast. And one of my favorite podcasts you did was episode number 11 about the making of A Different Kind of Truth. I love every Van Halen album, and Different Kind of Truth has become one of my top three favorite Van Halen albums, and it should get more recognition. The band sounds great, and you could actually hear the bass. Dave's lyrics are so much deeper and clever than most of the early Van Halen songs. And I discovered Van Halen when he was 11 years old with Diver Down. He purchased every 
album back then within a few weeks. He says his main question for us is what audio bootleg would you suggest from the 1982-83 tour that you would suggest listening to in my car or when I exercise? And do you know if Live Without a Net is sold in an audio format? I know they have a quote-unquote live recording with Sammy, but I was looking for something to listen to while I worked out, and I used to have a live show recorded off the radio with cassettes, and I listened to that on my Walkman while I'm running. Thanks so much for giving us a monthly dose of VH. No nickname, Thomas Howell. Okay, cool. Well, the best diver down bootleg, and I think Dave will probably agree with me, is from the South American tour, the Diver Down Uruguay, 1983, the soundboard. You know that one, Dave? Yes, I agree. That is probably my favorite bootleg. Yeah. The one from Uruguay. I right. believe it's February 5th. But any bootleg, any show from the South America tour yeah. is worth getting because a lot of them are in great quality. And the band is in fine, fine form right, playing right. their butts off. There's also a great sounding one from Largo 1982. That's worth getting. I know there's bootlegs of the Live Without a Net yep. audio only. Yeah, yeah, if yeah. You look. Yep, absolutely. So you can you can find that. And but keep yeah, in mind, I, there's a full version and a shortened version. You want the full. Right. 82 and 83. Great live years. For the band. On that South American Diver Down Uruguay, they do Somebody Get Me a Doctor into I'm So Glad, and they also do a cover of Heartbreak Hotel on that. So that's really kind of cool. A little something there. Oh, yeah, there's lots of great covers on that show. Yeah, lots of good stuff. It's just, yeah, phenomenal. Love it. Yep. Love it. Letter number 13, Dave. Lucky number 13 comes from Scott James, and he says, Hey, guys, I want to say how much I enjoy and appreciate the podcast. It really takes me back and rekindles the excitement of when old Halen was together and kicking out the magic. You guys talk about bootlegs sometimes, and that's something I'm very interested in. I've been collecting for 25 years. I've done a lot of research, and I would like to open up a discussion with you guys about this, what you have and what's out there. I'm literally always on the prowl for Holy Grails, which, in my opinion, opinion there are several looking forward to hearing from you guys and learning about the subject from you guys keep up the good work scott james okay scott well we were just talking about the diver down uruguay definitely want to check that out like dave said that is a must-have i also want to say there's a 1998 one called unchained monsters i've mentioned this before this is the unreleased live album from pittsburgh on from the gary tour which don't be afraid gary doesn't bite this is a phenomenal album for sure Sounds great. There's also another one from 1995 from the Balance Tour, Rocks the Beer Hall. Van Halen, Rocks the Beer Hall. Love that one. I uh, personally have a strong favorite from the 1984 era, the Monsters of Rock Stockholm. That's really good. Also, the MSG from 1984, even though it's an audience, it's a good show. There's one called In the Club. It's also called Golden West Ballroom 1976 from the club days. Phenomenal. There's one 1977 Pasadena known as the Early Broadcast, also known as Die Laughing. That's another a great one. One of my all-time favorites from 1979, Light Up the Sky. Love that one. There's from 1980, Women and Children First Tour. There's the Complete London from 1980. Love that. Oh, this one's another one. The last Van Halen show ever. It's called The Last Eruption from 2015. The band's last show at the Hollywood Bowl. My God, it's the last time Eddie ever played on stage. Gotta have that one. Full Moon Fair Warning from 
1981. Love that one. And Martial Law from Philadelphia, 1981. These are my faves. What about you, Dave? I think you named a lot of good ones already. I think you said the one from October 15th, 1977, which is right before they broke big. That is a great one. You want to definitely look for that. Is that the Pasadena one? Yes. There have been some soundboards released in the last few years that were on very limited vinyl, but then made their way digitally. I think one is Wichita in 1978, and there's another one that was at the Palladium in 1978. There's some other ones, too. I can't remember, but there was definitely another one from 1979. So be on a lookout. I know there were like about four or five shows that have come out in the past few years, like out of nowhere, that were soundboards that are really worth looking for. And, you know, the band was like, you know, pardon the pun, but they, they were on fire at the time. Absolutely. So you you want to look for those. Like I said, the 83 shows from South America are definitely ones you want to look for. The 81 tour is really good, but it's tough to find good quality from the 81 tour. The, the Holy Grail to me would be a soundboard show from the 81 tour. Yeah, we, we have yet to really find that. But the two that I mentioned are good ones. Full Moon, Fair Warning, and Martial Law. That's about as best as you're going to get on 81. Yeah. Letter yeah. number 14 comes from Babelman, Dave. And he says, hi, Dave. And Dave, thought I would send you a short email to talk about Van Halen. I have one question for you, and I think you guys could find out more information and thoughts on this. My question is, when Van Halen started producing albums, I was told they didn't make any real money until 1984. Because the record producers had taken all the profits on the first albums. Van Halen was under contract and was borrowed money to make albums so they could pay it back. And it took until 1984 to pay all the money back and fill the contract. So when they did, 1984, they got to profit almost all the money. And at that time frame, Eddie Van Halen, I think, built 5150 and David Lee Roth parted ways. To sum it up, I was just wondering if the timing of the money could cause the split up of Van Halen due to the fact that they are super successful and they can do what they wanted. Dave wanted to be on his own and Eddie wanted to direct the band in a different way. So the impact of this new money, in my opinion, caused Van Halen to go in different directions. And I find it interesting that David Lee Roth and Eddie Van Halen took the split hard, more like they were in a marriage. The band is a marriage. And Eddie Van Halen took it hard, so it cost years of not talking to each other because of this trust being broken. I don't think it ever got fixed. David never gained the trust back. So, could you look up the information as if the producers took most of the money on all albums until 1984 and your thoughts on the large amount of money causing the breakup? Thanks, Babelman. Okay, Babelman. Well, I want to tell you this. You're a mysterious guy, but we know you like to talk, hence the name Babelman. But the band definitely made a lot of money on merch. Thanks to our friend Noel, who helped them set up that company doing their own merch. That was smart, number one. But when it comes to the recording process, it really didn't amp up until 1984. Like you said, you're correct in that assessment. However, the band made a lot of money. I said this earlier in our conversation. I believe it was in Van Halen News. They made a lot of money with Sam. During those years with Sam, the band really hit the gravy train. But Sam and Ed Leffler really cashed in and they made a lot of money. This is where Sam is correct in saying he was incredibly successful with the band. He was. Don't get me wrong. The albums were all successful. They made a lot, a lot of cash, that's for sure. Now, Ted Templeman, 
made more money on the Van Halen albums than the band did. And the band talk about that in that Different Kind of Truth interview where they discuss their percentages on the albums. Now, the Sammy years, like I said, were gravy train, but they were predicated on the massive success of 1984 and the albums prior. So it wasn't Sammy doing all that heavy lifting there. But then the band, Dave, you remember this? The band renegotiated their royalties. I think this was somewhere like in the early 2000s, I think, or late 90s, something like that. And the band made a sick amount of money on the reunion tours with Roth, for sure. And Eddie Van Halen, of course, made a lot of money with his endorsements and his guitar company. When it comes to the recording royalties, very, very tricky business because it's not their greatest income generator. A lot of it is from the road, from merch, and from uh, endorsements, different ways and avenues. But especially, this is why a lot of bands do a lot of things like meet and greets and VIP stuff and all this extra stuff because they make a lot of cash doing all that stuff. But when it comes to like the recording project, that's the seed of the whole band but very often they don't make a shit ton of money. However, i tell you where bands make a lot of money. If you have a hit song and then that song gets licensed and used in all different places on compilations, on TV commercials and I'll tell you what, the Who never saw as much money as they've ever seen as the money they make off of, what is that? CIS? That's your show that you uses their song over and over again. You know how much money Pete Townsend made from that? It's like unbelievable. Also from like Tommy the musical that they did on Broadway. Like stuff like that made boatloads and boatloads of money. And also touring. Touring is very, very lucrative, of course. The whole money thing is very, very brutal. Especially right now with the money in streams. And right now they want you to just hear their music. They don't even count music as being the money maker now. It's, it's a joke. What do you think? In the immortal words of Cindy Lauper. Money changes everything. Oh. And I think it definitely affected everybody in 1984. I also think there were drugs and alcohol affecting people in 1984. And all this is blowing up already big and fragile egos. And I think the combination of all that is what led to the breakup. Yeah, I also think, to be honest with you, that whole crazy from the heat thing blew him up way bigger than anybody thought that EP was going to do. That right. thing took the fuck off. And it was almost like a little kitschy, sort of fun, flighty thing, but it's just the timing of it. Those videos were so gargantuan, MTV didn't stop fucking playing them, and he became so big and such a big personality that he wanted to parlay that into a movie because he saw Prince do it. Dave was actually thinking about making it a lucrative thing, and he really wanted to take the band along with the process, but Eddie wasn't having it. Eddie was definitely going in a different direction, and Dave definitely wanted to be a big star, and that whole person Purple Rain thing really, really rubbed Dave. And let me tell you something. There's also some personal shit behind that because Dave was dating Apollonia at the time and Prince made Apollonia break up with Dave because he didn't want him hanging on her arm while he's at the premiere and all this shit. So then Dave really got jealous because he realized that Purple Rain was fueling 
massive amounts of record sales for Prince. So he saw, oh, wow, not only is Prince getting airplay on MTV with all these videos, but he's in the movie theaters, too, and he's on the album charts. So he was seeing, like, oh, I could do that because he was already doing so well with the Van Halen videos from 1984. And then he parlayed that into the crazy from the heat. Let me tell you something. Hot for teacher, jump. Panama, California Girls, and Just a Gigolo have to be five of the most highly played videos ever on MTV. So those five videos alone equated to a lot of Buco Dolores. So like Dave said, though, it blows up the ego and there's a lot of money involved. And, and he wanted the band to be like in the background while he does his jokey movie. And the band was like, what are you fucking kidding me? I'm, I'm not doing that. And Ed wanted to branch out anyway. And it just came time. It was a lot of factors there. Money certainly had a big factor. Letter number 15, Dave, comes from James Harrison. James says, hi, Double Dave. I apologize for the delay getting back to you. Thank you very much for inviting me to participate in your anniversary show. Unfortunately, I wasn't able to do so at the time due to some medical issues in my family. I originally thought of doing something musical as I am a musician, but that seemed to be too self-serving. Then I thought about, why not inject a little humor in my offering? Hopefully, you guys can still use it. He's talking about the last episode we had the listeners do all these different anniversary messages and feel free to omit any parts you don't like if you can't use it i understand no worries i have found the time to listen to your most recent podcast to hear what your listeners contributed so i hope mine is not too far off the mark side note why don't you give yourself nicknames like your listeners have done like numbers or monkey man or for quiet dave or loud dave could be like davy dynamite or perhaps davy dangerous oh my god please let Quiet Dave know that the monkeys are touring. Everybody's concerned about this, Dave. They are coming. <laughs> they are they are coming to Birmingham this fall. And I grew up watching their television show, and I'm so planning on making that concert. Thank you very much for all your hard work you guys put into this show. You guys remind me very much of the relationship my brother and I have. We are constantly discussing music, especially Van Halen. I love this show. All the best to the Atomic Daves, James Harris. Thank you, James. That was very nice of you. Very sweet. Yeah, we'll play your anniversary message and here's his message right now hey double daves this is top jimmy james from the great state of alabama hey dudes the tide is high and so am i i just wanted to let you guys know how much i love the unchained podcast i have listened to every minute of every episode. Nobody rules the podcast world like the Atomic Daves. You guys keep waving that flag high and proud for the mighty Van Halen. And by the way, a big congratulations on your fifth year anniversary. You guys are awesome. I live my life like there's no tomorrow. That's why I listen to Dave and Dave. Awesome, Jimmy. Thank you so much. That was absolutely incredible, and I will be using that in the future for bumpers. Well, I tell you, we let the listeners give us our nicknames. They called us Loud Dave and Quiet Dave. We don't call each other that. That just came from you guys. That's what we go with. I think it's funny because calling Dave Quiet Dave is like calling me Skinny Dave, which is kind of funny. It's more fun that way than us giving us our names. But what do you think, Dave? I got enough people calling me names, so I don't need to give myself uh, any more. 
I know. Oh, boy. Letter number 16 comes from Lane Spencer. Thank you so much for your awesome podcast. I look forward to it every month. During the lockdown, I wrote a short story about a middle-aged guy struggling with life during lockdown. He listens to a podcast and distanced by Mammoth WVH while sorting out his life. The podcasters are partially based on you, and I hope you will read it. Not on the podcast. Give me your thoughts. Lane Spencer from San Diego, California. Well, Lane sent us an entire short story. I'm not going to read it on here. It's way too long for sure. But he did a really nice job on it, and I really enjoyed it. Thank you for the short story, Lane. I appreciate you using us for inspiration. Uh, those guys, I would say, the podcasters in the story, get a little way more personal than Dave and I do. We're always talking more about the music and the band. A lot of, of these podcasts, I don't know if you recognize this, Dave, but a lot of podcasts, they spend like the first 25 minutes of the podcast just talking about their own personal shit. It's hysterical. However, I think your story really struck an emotional chord, that's for sure, maybe because I'm like the same age as the guy in the story, but I'm a very nostalgic kind of dude, and, and that kind of stuff really tears me up. You did a great job. Well done. I think there's some really cool stuff in there. What do you think, Dave? I thought the story was really interesting. Yep. A few twists and turns. Yep. Yeah, I'm of that generation, too. So, mm-hmm. yeah, you're right about the emotional chord. Some things in there that was really a, uh, a heart tugger there. Yeah, definitely. I so, really, uh, I didn't see that so, coming. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I was like, you know, and then there was, there was one, and you're like, wow. And then, you know, then there's another one. It's like, wow, he's not letting up on this. Nah, you know? I know, so, I know. Uh, so thank you for taking the time to write it yep. and send it in. We really appreciate that. Absolutely, absolutely. And letter number 17, Dave. You know it was coming, and here he is. Look, up in the sky, it's a bird! It's a plane! It's Midwest fucking Ron! That's right, Midwest fucking Ron comes in with a triple play, Dave. Three letters in one, I put them all together. First of all, he wanted to write you to congratulate you on your purchase of Sammy Hagar's Lake Arrowhead property and that you bought for $3.1 million, and he was very excited about that, so he was congratulating you. As always, he's praising you. And I'll be sure to invite Ron to the house. Oh, I tomorrow. know. I think you got enough uh, bedrooms to dedicate just to the Rons themselves. They can have their own. That, that, that's true. There's plenty that, in there. I, they can stay in separate rooms that's, over there. That's right. I'll, I'll have room for you, you know, and everybody That's else. right. That's right. <laughs> We're going to have the next Van Halen bash at Dave's Arrow, right. Lake that's Arrowhead. Right. There you go. That's the next one. So he also wanted to tell us there's a way to view the enhanced Eddie Van Halen mural that Robert Vargas did. He says if you put this photo on your screen and point your phone at it when accessing this URL, and he gave it to us. I'm going to post that up on the website. Ron is giving people a little tip as how they can experience that mural coming to life that we talked about Robert Vargas from our last episode. That was phenomenal. And of course, you know, Ron, he's got to get a little dig in here, man. You know, Ron, he, it's not Ron unless he gives me a little jab. So he says, not surprising that Dave C. doesn't remember the Mad Anthony Express. It didn't swing out east or west in the fall of 2007, but they did open for Sammy on 20 dates. And here's a clip of Michael Anthony doing Hear About It Later. Now, the band was comprised of Michael Anthony on bass and lead vocals, plus Vic Johnson on guitar and John J.D. Douglas on drums. He's correcting us here, Dave, because if you remember, we said David Lauser. Oh, yeah. I think he might have been Sam's percussionist. 
and drum tech on that tour, but he, he's also Alex Van Halen's drum tech, and I would love to interview that guy since he's been on both sides of the fence. Oh, he really? Great stories. Yeah. yeah, well, I'm gonna yeah. Try to, maybe I can try to reach him, but the only problem is he's got that common name. Might be hard yeah, to find. well, he'd be worth the interview. That guy would totally be worth the interview. Absolutely, absolutely. Letter number 18 comes from Darren McGuire, which he calls himself DQ Magoo, and he says, hey guys, sorry I couldn't get the recording in for the anniversary birthday celebration. Time got away from me as my fiscal year had wrapped up in April. Anyway, happy belated birthday, quiet Dave. I don't know why he's wishing you happy birthday. That was months ago, but I really enjoyed last month's podcast, and it came at a great time as COVID has started to swing down. Last month, my work Work travel schedule started to ramp back up, and the podcast is always a welcome addition to any long trip. Anyway, I started noticing something about five years ago in various airports in McDonald's. It hit me in the face again this month. In the cafe section, they have many red and white striped walls, even seen a few of these with white and black striped walls. As far back as I can remember, the Van Halen legal camp has been ruthless about anything regarding trademark or copyright. They even shut down Alex's ex-wife from using her last name for selling towels. For Christ's sake. When Eddie passed, that legal machine went into overdrive, stopping the flow of knockoff stripe and pictured items looking to grab a quick buck. This scorched earth policy even led to some things that had no connection with the band or Eddie's image receiving cease and desist letters. I'm no lawyer, but in looking at these McDonald's walls, I don't know how anyone could possibly think a case could not be made for trademark unless Eddie's signature stripes are not trademark. What do you say? Keep up the great work. DQ Magoo. So listen, this is really interesting. So it's hard to explain this to a person without seeing it. These are like these, and they're almost like screens. They kind of dividers that, you know, divide areas up. And it, it does look like Eddie's stripes. However... This is what I personally think, Mr. DQ. I think the person who designed them is definitely a Van Halen fan, but I, I think what they did was they probably came as close to the pattern as they could, but not close enough to sue. You know, sometimes they do stuff like that. I'll give an example. Remember when Van Halen did the Crystal Pepsi commercial with Right Now? Well, what happened with that was they were going to use a song that kind of ripped off Right Now without fully ripping off Right Now. So the way that happens is they get close to the song it's kind of got the vibe of the song but it does not have the melodic full hook and there is a very tricky way of doing this where you get close enough that someone recognizes the familiarity there but you don't go close enough as to where you're going to get sued and the reason why Van Halen let them use right now for Crystal Pepsi was they were like oh we're going to do this anyway so they decided well we might as well get the money for it we might as well just use the song and that's how that all happened however it might be something like that if you look at these screens that he's showing us here they're close to the pattern and Eddie definitely has copyrighted the pattern he owns that thing I don't even know how you own that but that's fine it's red with white stripes and a little bit of black but as you notice it is no black in this one the stripes are in a different position and it's like not as many stripes and so there's little touches that you can kind of tiptoe in and out in order to legally remain safe so what do you think Dave? I'm no lawyer and you know I really wonder if it was just like some big coincidence you know it was close but not quite the same so yeah well maybe you know so who knows 
Yes. Well, we've gotten to Dave's favorite portion of the evening, the last letter, because he is ready to stack out. I can I feel the sleepy time tea in his throat. He's drinking it. He's got his nightcap on. His teddy bear is in his left arm, and he's about to knock out. So we're going to go letter number 19 coming from... That's, that's fairly accurate. <laughs> that's right. <laughs> letter number 19, Jason the Dwayson Bay. And he says, do you think that the Sammy stuff would sound less poppy if he grew up in the Van Halen camp. Let's say he was the first singer in Van Halen in the 70s. Would they have done something more in the vein of the circle of chicken foot? It seems like the pop sensibilities really came out in Van Halen during Sammy's stuff prior to that, but much of it wasn't nearly as poppy as Van Hagar, which led me to believe that Eddie has way more influence on the poppy sound than Sammy always gets blamed for. What's your take? And he also wants to let us know he's a young Van Halen fan. He's only 32 and he saw them in 2004 and also three other times with David Lee Roth and the Reunion tours. Well, Mr. Dwayson, Jason the Dwayson Bay. Okay, this is what I think. Yes. If you listen to my interview with Sammy from 2017, it's episode number 22. Do yourself a favor and go back and listen to it. You can get it through Spotify and get it through iTunes. He addresses this issue directly. So it's basically, it comes down to this. That is what Eddie was writing at the time. Now, what does this mean? Does this mean that all those old Van Halen songs, if Sammy was the original singer, would come out the way they did? Obviously not, because Dave was the co-writer on those, and he made them what they are. But you would still have that work from Ed, right? So you still have those riffs, this and that. I think Sam definitely would have had a more heavier vibe. There was definitely grittier music back then, but Ed was Definitely working in a more pop direction when Sam came in the band. And in the interview that he does, he says straight up, that's what was going on, man. So, for example, like, you know, if you're a chef and someone's making pasta and it's like, hey, man, we were having pasta that night and this is the sauce that I made. You know what I'm saying? It's like that's what was being served. And Eddie was the musical base for it. And Sammy was doing the lyrics and the melodies and he was writing lyrics and melodies over poppy tunes. Now, if Eddie was delivering him hard rock songs, maybe he would be having more hard rock songs and albums, but he worked with what Eddie gave him, and he was getting a lot of melodic pop stuff, and he says that in the interview. Please, anybody, you should check out that interview. It's very revealing. Episode 22. Dave, what do you think? Yeah, it was totally Eddie's call at that time. I mean, he was in charge of the music, and that was the direction he was going in. Well, if Sam didn't like it, he wouldn't have joined the band, but he was totally on board with it. So I don't think anybody ever made any other statement about that that disagreed. It's very easy to say, well, Sam came in and, and turned it into a pop band. You know, if you listen to Sammy's solo catalog before that, he was a rocker. I mean, admittedly, his Geffen albums took on more of a pop sheen than his Capitol albums did. But his Geffen albums were also better produced and the songs were better written. So, yeah, he definitely had an appreciation for what makes a good song. But there's no way Ed would have gone along with that if he didn't want to and he hadn't written the music already. So Sam is absolutely right when he's like, hey, listen, don't necessarily just blame me for that. Ed was writing the music at the time and that was the kind of music he was writing. And that's what the rest of us in the band were on board and working with. That's the truth. And that wraps up the mailbag segment. 
And we are on to our throwdown between Gary and Sammy, which is Sammy's 1997 album Marching to Mars versus Gary's Tribe of Judah Exit Elvis album, which came out in 2002. This is what happens when you get let go from Van Halen. And this is Sammy versus Gary in a throwdown. And of course, like I said earlier, Dave's got to throw Roth in the mix because he can't get enough. And that is coming up next. But after that, we have our very emotional and deep interview with Billy Sheehan, bassist formerly from David Lee Roth's band, formerly from Mr. Big, also from Talis, Sons of Apollo, Winery Dogs. This man has a resume. Forget it. Unbelievable. Billy spoke to us literally like a week to a few days after Phil Naro's passing, the lead singer of Talis, and he got very reflective on Phil's life and his contributions to the new album. He talks about the new album, and he talks about his time in the other bands as well, and we get into all of that. So we have a stacked episode for May. We're all going full guns here, and that is all coming up next. Take a listen. For uh, Edward and I, there is a lot of whatever that chemical is in guys that, you know, we never lost it. We both are competitive with ourselves personally to an obsessive, uh, whatever you call it, obsessive compulsive. I mean, with or without an Eddie Van Halen in my life, you know, a, a lot of my time is spent with my head in my hands. Come on, Dave, come on, <laughs> like this, and still to this day, and he as much or more so. Then together with each other, there is that mutual support of, wow, am I glad I met you? Wow, we've done some great stuff together. And that also combines with, I think you're in my space. <laughs> Are you a guitar enthusiast? Want to learn all the tricks and licks of the trade? Searching for that Eddie Van Halen sound and speed? Want to play in the style of Alex Lifeson of Rush? Mick Mars of Motley Crue or Brian May of Queen, then sign up for Zoom lessons from the best. Lance Turner, the guitarist for the number one Van Halen tribute band, the Atomic Punks. Lance will take you on as his personal student in the comfort of your own home on Zoom. To sign up, contact Lance via email at lancetlessons at gmail.com. Lessons are at an affordable rate of $40 an hour. Email Lance today at lancetlessons at gmail.com. That's L-A-N-C-E-T-L-E-S-S-O-N-S at gmail.com. And learn how to jam like a star. Martin Popoff here. Hope you're enjoying this latest episode of Dave and Dave Unchained, the wise swamis on all things VH. Just wanted to remind you that uh, at martinpopoff.com, I've got uh, two Van Halen books that I wrote. Uh, one is Van Halen, a visual biography, which is basically a big hardcover coffee table book, 400 images, 20,000 word detailed timeline. And the other one is called Unchained, a Van Halen user manual. It's the uh, sort of 120,000 word, very academic, a lot of crazy chapters, a lot of trivia, a wordy book. Uh, that I did on Van Halen. So yes, uh, go to martinpopoff.com. Um, I sign and ship uh, those out of my office uh, here in Toronto. There's PayPal buttons for uh, the U.S., international, and Canada. Again, Van Halen, a visual biography, and Unchained, a Van Halen user manual. Back to Dave and Dave. 
From world conflicts to falling financial markets, natural disasters, and more, wish the headlines would just stop. It's not a newsflash that life can feel like a pressure cooker. From managing work to building relationships, it's easy to feel overwhelmed. And for many of us, anxiety and stress are constant companions. But you are not alone. You may not know it, but support is out there, just waiting to meet you. And you can find it through the friendly people at Church's Care. At Church's Care, we know that finding your community can feel intimidating. That's why we do the heavy lifting for you. Church's Care helps connect people like you to churches that can support and serve you. In your new community, you'll find a group of people ready to talk, listen, and help you navigate life through its twists and turns. All you have to do is come as you are. If you're ready to find your community, visit churchescare.com today. That's churchescare.com. C-H-U-R-C-H-E-S care.com. We look forward to serving you. From world conflicts to falling financial markets, natural disasters, and more, wish the headlines would just stop. It's not a newsflash that life can feel like a pressure cooker. From managing work to building relationships, it's easy to feel overwhelmed. And for many of us, anxiety and stress are constant companions. But you are not alone. Support is out there, just waiting to meet you. And you can find it through friendly people at churchescare.com. At churchescare.com, we know that finding your community can feel intimidating. That's why we do the heavy lifting for you. Churchescare.com helps connect people like you to churches that can support and serve you. In your new community, you'll find a group of people ready to talk, listen, and help you navigate life through its twists and turns. All you have to do is come as you are. If you're ready to find your community, visit churchescare.com today. That's C-H-U-R-C-H-E-S-Care.com. We look forward to serving you. Hey, Van Halen Army. This is Robert Vargas from Los Angeles, and you're listening to Dave and Dave Unchained. If you would like to send us a letter asking a question or making a statement or whatever you'd like to say, you can send it to ddunchainedpodcast at gmail.com. Pick up the new coffee table size book, The Decade That Rocked, by legendary rock photographer Mark Weissguy Weiss. This 376-page book has hundreds and hundreds of full-color photos that Weiss shot through the 80s for magazines like Circus, Faces, and Hit Parader, featuring bands like Van Halen, Motley Crue, Twisted Sister, Bon Jovi, Skid Row, Guns N' Roses, Ozzy Osbourne, and more. There's even behind-the-scenes stories to go with these colorful, eye-popping pictures. The Decade That Rocked, a new book by rock photographer Mark Weiss, is available for purchase now. Go to thedecadethatrocked.com, where there are exclusive bundles available with extra prints, t-shirts, and even patches. Inquire about the Van Halen bundle, especially made for Dave and Dave Unchained listeners. Order today. The Decade That Rocked. It'll rock your world. I just enjoy flying, period. Whether it's by myself or with people or with machines or just in my own mind while I'm going to sleep. Well, Dave, we've been cooking this one up for a while and we finally have come to this point. So we are doing a special on exiting Van Halen, the post-Van Halen albums from both Sammy Hagar 
and Gary Sharon. And obviously we're looking at 1997's Marching to Mars with Sammy Hagar, as well as Gary Sharon's Tribe of Judah album, Exit Elvis, which came out in 2002. We have two very, very interesting records here, both men in compromising positions, I guess. I mean, I guess technically they were both let go from the band, right? I mean, that's sort of... Well, it depends who you yeah. ask at the time. Yeah. Even, well, obviously, you can't ask Ed anymore. But no, of course not. You know, yeah. Well, Gary, I think they were both on the same page. But Sam, it was always a he said, he said situation. Yeah. Whether yeah. he was fired or he quit. I guess that's in the perspective of it all because we'll get into each one and we're going to start with Sam because he came first. Just in regarding the Sam situation, if you can remember, and actually, Dave, believe it or not, today marks the 25th anniversary of the whole Twister situation. If you can remember that, in 1996, when Van Halen released their last single with Sam, Humans Being, for the Twister soundtrack, and it was around this time that the band released that, and they ended up in a twister themselves as the band broke up a month later, which was crazy news, because I remember getting all excited to hear the song, love the song, freaked out over the song. Oh, yeah, it was one of their better songs. Oh, my sure. God, it was, like, tremendous. And then all of a sudden, I, I remember being at work and hearing over the radio the news about Sammy Hagar leaving Van Halen. I, I couldn't believe it. I couldn't believe it. I was shocked. I was more shocked about that than when Dave left. That's how shocked I was. I couldn't believe it. Yeah, it was crazy. I remember I was in New Orleans on vacation, and I read about it in the paper. Oh. And I'm like, I can't even go away for a week. And the same thing's up. That's right. It was incredible. Well, this marks the Red Rockers' return to his solo career. So now, obviously, Sam, he was in Montrose, two albums, had a solo career, went into Van Halen, even did a solo album after Van Halen's first album with him, 5150, did that I Never Said Goodbye album in 1987. Fast forward 10 years, we're at 1997, he's a solo artist again. So it's important to note that this album came out less than a year after him leaving Van Halen. So Hagar was determined to beat Van Halen to the punch for sure. He was sort of in a bit of a race. And I think it shows because the album feels a little rushed and it's a little bit all over the place. Not that there's not good stuff there, but we'll get into it. It's produced by Mike Klink, who produced Appetite for Destruction for Guns N' Roses. And he did this album for MCA Records, which was a strange sort of pairing because this album cannot be found on Spotify or iTunes. And I don't know what the situation is, but it's the only Sammy Hagar album that is not available on streaming services or for download. right? Even not for sale it's, is streaming? That's correct. Not for sale, which is the, the Sammy Hagar album. That's available. That is available wow. for streaming. That is available for purchase for MP3 download. This one wow. cannot be found. Well, that's interesting because... 
Well, I don't know what happened to MCA, who bought it, but I think he was on MCA. Yes, that's what I just said. they had bought Geffen Records, right? right? And Mm -hmm. that's how he ended up on MCA, because his solo deal was with Geffen. That's correct. And Sam, at this point, did not even have a band, per se. He was putting together musicians. He had Denny Carmasi on drums, Denny Carmasi from Montrose, Jonathan Pierce on bass, Jesse Harms from his solo career on keyboards and background vocals. Sam was on vocals and he played guitar. He even played bass on one of the tracks. This album is just, it's a very interesting album. I have to say, it is not what I expected. So when I heard this album, I was a little thrown off because it's it's just not what I expected from Sam. What about you, Dave? What was your initial impression when you heard it? You're right. It is not what I expected. Now, I do not consistently buy Sammy's solo output. Yes, I do yes. not have every one of his solo right, albums. Right. I don't even know that I have half of them, okay. actually. Okay. So when I heard the first few songs at the time it came out back in 97, when I first heard those songs, it didn't really move me mm. to buy the album. So I didn't. And in fact, in preparation for this podcast, and in full disclosure, I still don't own the album. Wow. And had to stream it to listen to it. Okay. Because it just, I was like, you know, whatever I heard, I was like, meh, okay, not yeah. enough for me to buy the album. Yeah, yeah. And after listening to it, I'm reminded why it didn't move me enough to buy the album. But we'll dive into that. Absolutely. Well, it is available on YouTube for those who want to check it out. I wanted to note to you, Dave, a few quotes that um, Sam did in an interview during the promotion of Marching to Mars. That's the name of the album, Marching to Mars. First of all, strange title, right? That's strange title. And you're like, oh, God, is Sam getting into his whole alien theory again? Uh, Oh, my God, what is he doing? So... This is one thing he said. He's talking about flying solo again. He says, I was forced to become a solo artist again. That being the case, I went straight ahead into it. I'm the kind of person that can pull things together fairly quickly and land on my feet. Don't get me wrong. I was pretty mad. But there is only so long you can dwell on it. I didn't want to sit around and procrastinate, nor did I want to take up much baggage with me. Then he talked about noticing some trouble in Van Halen. He said, I tried to write the songs with Eddie. This is talking about the Twister soundtrack. But they wanted to go left, and I wanted to go right. It was evident at this point that doing a new record was going to be difficult. And he said that he didn't want to do a song for the Greatest Hits record for a third time with a third producer. And he says, before I knew it, Eddie had gotten Dave back into the band to record a few new songs for a Greatest Hits album. Then he talks about how he started right away. He says, Eddie and I could sit down and write another great album tomorrow. But the point is, I was forced to become a solo artist again. I went to Maui for a few weeks to contemplate retirement and the future. Those were two of the most miserable weeks I have ever had. Here I was in one of the most beautiful places on earth, and I couldn't even enjoy it because I was upset. So I dove headfirst into what was now going to be my future. If I didn't, I would have gone crazy. An interviewer asked him about the new version of Van Halen, because at this point, during this interview, they had announced Gary Sharon as the new singer. 
So what happened here was he said, as far as the new version of Van Halen, I hope they are great. And if they flounder and ruin this big thing, I'll be greatly disappointed. There were times in the studio and on stage that I think we were the greatest band in rock history. We could have gone up against Led Zeppelin, Cream, or even U2 at their best. I admire all these groups, but I can also state that there were times when Van Halen was the creme de la creme. I'm not trying to destroy anything about the past, but rather preserve it. I would like our history as a band to be put on a pedestal so that it may be seen as special as it really is. So I'm still holding the banner for Van Halen to help preserve our past. Then he said this album shows a new side of him. He says, even the critics who dislike me for being irresponsible will see a different side of me on this album. I have exposed a lot more of myself than true Sammy Hagar. Marching to Mars, in my opinion, is the closest to who I really am. But he did say that Van Halen helped him along the way. I would have never been able to record an album like Marching to Mars if I hadn't been part of Van Halen. I'll be the first to admit it. Being in Van Halen helped me become a better singer and songwriter, a better player, and a better performer. And then he talked about not having a band for his solo album. He says, the only risk I can see is not going into the record with a band. It was less of a risk by not competing with Van Halen than I would have had to assemble some of the greatest rock players around. I didn't want to compete with them on any level. You don't leave a band like Van Halen and then try to put together another band just like it. So instead, I went in the direction of using different kinds of players. So that explains why he didn't put up a band. And I think he just rushed into this album to turn that around that quick. What do you think? Well, about that's that? pretty funny that he says, you know, I don't want to put together a band that can compete with Van Halen. Yeah. Because that's what Dave did. Yeah. Well, <laughs> I mean, he yeah. got top shelf right, players. Right. To, so he took the completely opposite approach, which I thought was interesting. I really think Dave was in a different situation. First of all, the breakup was way bigger. It was tremendous. I mean, for Dave to leave after 1984, their biggest album, and at the height in the middle of the 80s, I mean, that was gargantuan. And it was a huge breakup. Then the press ate up the whole Dave versus Van Halen thing. That became huge. The whole Sammy versus Van Halen thing really got bigger later in the years, if you think about it. It wasn't until later in the years in Sammy's career that it really became a pit against pit. He was actually calmer in the early years than he was in the later years. He got even more, more grisly and a little more gritty. Don't you think, Dave? Are we talking about Sam? Yeah, what the hell am I talking about? All right, well, I just want to make sure we're talking about Sam and not Dave. No, so. no, no, I'm talking about, listen, what I'm saying is, when Dave left the band in Van Halen, it was like a big, devastating thing. You have to remember, it was like monstrous, monstrous news. When Sam left, it wasn't like monstrous news. It was like, oh, okay, I mean... Well, it's the second time a lead singer left Van Halen, right? Right, right, right. It's kind of like, well, they replaced him the last time, they'll replace him again. Right, it's right. It's been done, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. And I think you know, people were so worried about Dave because he was just such an important fabric of the band and such a character people were really worried about that and you know when sam left i don't think there was that impression that he was so important to the band that the band couldn't carry on especially when they had already 
with a different singer. Oh, sure. I just think the times were different. Like, first of all, you know, the media just fed on the Van Halen breakup. It was like... I mean, they had magazines like Roth versus Van Halen. I mean, everything. They were coming out with albums at the same time. They were both on the same record label. It was they were both touring at the same period. I mean, it was really like drummed right. up. Well, right. Well, that's true. And I th well, I think it really came to a head with Sam before this album came out. It really well, got yeah. not so crazy. Yeah. In 1996, when it was Sam, then it was Dave. Then it was, oh, right. yeah. what's his name for five minutes? Right, yeah. and then, right? Mitch Kovar, yeah. Right. And then it was Gary. It was just like all over the place. It was just like, you know, watching the Titanic sink. Right. And you're like, oh my gosh, what are they doing? Well, I also... And then yeah. after that, it was kind of like, all right, you know, we're exhausted now. And all right, they got Gary Sharon. Good right. luck to them, whatever. And Sam had been a solo artist before. So it wasn't like everyone was sitting there going, I wonder what... Sam is going to do as a solo artist. Sure. I mean, he had like, what, at least half a dozen albums that already answered that question. Right. But I also think, and see if you agree with this, I think that whole MTV debacle took the pressure off Sam because it almost was like this big car crash that happened after the whole breakup with Sam that created all the headlines. It's almost like he sort of skirted that whole thing. Because he wasn't part of that. He left, and that was it. And in terms of the he left, he left, whatever, let's be honest. They put him in an uncompromising position. It wasn't a one, two, three thing. It's not like Ed called up and said, oh, we got, you know, Dave doing the songs, and that was out of the clear blue sky. We're talking about years of resentment building and building and building. And let's be honest, Sam was kind of, you know, slowing the process down with the albums and writing and this and that. There was more and more space between each Van Halen album, and they were getting annoyed by that. Now, we all know about the whole Cabo Wobble business deal left a really bad taste in the brother's mouth. But as time goes on, then you bring in the manager, Ray Daniels, and he's really rubbing the boy's nose in it. You know, it just went kablooey. But I really think, and see if you agree, that the whole car crash, the mess of 1996 with Sam leaving and Dave coming in, but wait a second, Mitch Malloy, but wait a second, Gary Sharon, and now Dave's out. Like, that whole car crash, I think really took the pressure off Sam. He wasn't in that. He wasn't part of that mess. He sort of skirted it. Well, that's true in terms of, hey, is it any surprise why I'm not in the band anymore? Look right. what's going on with all these other guys. And I mean, it's crazy. Does anyone blame me for not being in the band anymore? And the Dave comeback, number one, wasn't a hit, wasn't a big comeback. It's not like they came out with a big hit single from Dave. They struggled with Dave. And doing Can't Get This Stuff No More, Me Wise Magic. Me Wise Magic wasn't a big hit. The album sold very well. The Greatest Hits album sold very, very well. But, you know, there wasn't a lot of fanfare. There was no video. There was no tour. And there was a mess on television. They shot themselves in the foot right. because they just right. couldn't do what every band seems to be able to do. And then everybody's left with, wait a minute, the guy from Extreme is in Van Halen? Like, it became like that. So I think 
that the pressure was off Sam a bit here. So as we get into the album, it starts with the first single, Little White Lie. And here's a clip. Now, this was the first thing we heard from Sam uh, coming out of the gate. It was the first single, and obviously it addressed the Van Halen situation. It is definitely a direct blow to the brothers. It's almost like Sam was couldn't wait to get this out. This was like him throwing the first dart. But to be honest with you, it's almost kind of passe in a way, because by the time this comes out, they had been through so much already with possibly bringing Mitch in, Dave not working out, now I have Gary in there. It was almost like too little too late type of thing. So I happen to love this song. I think it's sort of a quick and dirty, a bluesy groove. It's got that real nice, cool, wild stomp slide guitar. I know Slash is featured on here. With Huey Lewis is on harmonica. So he really amped this one up. This was Sam's big F.U. to Van Halen, for sure. I think it's a little too short, though. It needs a little more meat on the bone. I love the song. I have no problem with him dealing with the Van Halen thing. That's all right. But I feel like it's just a little thin in terms of amount of material here. I think it needs to be a little thicker, a little more verses, or a little more attention paid to it. What do you think? This song was underwhelming to me when I heard it, okay. and it still is. I don't think it's a great song. I think Slash is underutilized. If oh, you hadn't told totally. me he was on the song, yeah. I wouldn't have even have known. Yeah. And that's the problem. Like, it doesn't rock out. It, does, it starts, but it the, never fully right, runs. Right. It never really right. kicks into next gear. Right, it's right. like towards the end of the song, they start rocking out, but then the song's over. Right. And it, it takes too long to get there. Yes. I mean, the slide guitar part is nice. But it's almost like a really long introduction yes. to a song that doesn't happen. And by the way, that's not the first time I'm going to say that about a song. Absolutely. On this, on this album. That is, it's almost like a running theme for this album. Yeah, yeah so it, yeah. I was kind of like, eh. And, but, but I do agree with you 100% that, yeah. The, I mean, the reason they picked the song as the lead single yeah, is yeah. because it's basically F you to Van Halen. Right. And that's what the lyrics are about. Right. And that's why it got picked. It's almost a glorified album track, really, that became a single. And it's almost like it became a single because of the subject matter, you know? Yeah. I mean, yeah. there's other songs there that were, well, I was going to say, you know, single worthy, but maybe not in 1997. Right. But yeah. anyway. Yeah, that's true. Moving on to the next track is Salvation on Sand Hill. And this is co-written by Damon Johnson, a former guest on our podcast. Great guy, Damon Johnson. Very talented, from originally from Brother Kane and Black Star Riders and stuff. A great guy. Love Damon Johnson. And here's a clip. But I didn't worry.
we go again, though, he starts off with this kind of moody whispering thing, which he does a lot in this album. And he does this on another track. It's very similar, leaving the warmth of the womb, which we'll get to later. But, you know, by the time the song gets going and accelerating by like a minute and 35 seconds in, it drops back down again at, at like two minutes and 10 seconds. And then the, in the, the guitar crunch here is so sweet and it's so good. But the song is so up and down. It, like it starts and stops and starts and stops and starts and stops. And before you, you get anywhere, it go, it's over. What do you think? Yes, that uh, absolute. I was going to say the same thing, actually. Yeah, yeah. It's like a stereotypical grunge song. Yeah. It's soft, and then it rocks hard, and then it goes back to soft, and it rocks hard again, and then it just, you're right, it goes back and forth, and it's like, make up your mind, which way is it? I mean, you can do that in a song, there's a right way to do it, but you're right, again, this is something else that Sam does more than one time on the album. I will say, I like Damien's guitar solo oh, in song, he definitely, he definitely kicks it up a notch, yeah. but yeah, the song's like a yo-yo for me yeah that's the thing about this album there's a lot of good seeds here in terms of music or riffs and even lyrics but like a lot of these songs are not fully developed it's, it's which it, is yeah which yeah. is shocking coming from sam because he's yeah. usually pretty good yeah. at putting a song together yeah but you know, Dave, like I always say to you, and I know I've said this on the podcast yeah. more than once, like Sam's albums are good for two or three songs. Right. Like memorable, decent yeah, songs. That's true. And then the rest you can take or leave. Yeah. And I think this album is an, is a good example of that. It is. It is. And, and we're on to the third song, which is Who Has the Right, which I think is a really fully, the most fully realized and well-executed song on the album. And here's a clip. From world conflicts to falling financial markets, natural disasters, and more. Wish the headlines would just stop? It's not a newsflash that life can feel like a pressure cooker. From managing work to building relationships, it's easy to feel overwhelmed. And for many of us, anxiety and stress are constant companions. But you are not alone. Support is out there, just waiting to meet you. And you can find it through friendly people at churchescare.com. At churchescare.com, we know that finding your community can feel intimidating. That's why we do the heavy lifting for you. Churchescare.com helps connect people like you to churches that can support and serve you. In your new community, you'll find a group of people ready to talk, listen, and help you navigate life through its twists and turns. All you have to do is come as you are. If you're ready to find your community, visit churchescare.com today. That's C-H-U-R-C-H-E-S-Care.com. We look forward to serving you. Sometimes life can feel like a pressure cooker. From our work life to our personal lives and relationships, there's so much to balance. It's easy to feel weighed down when you're experiencing anxiety, stress, or sadness. But guess what? You're not alone. You may not know it now, but support is all around you. No matter where you are, all you need to do is ask. Let us help find you a community at churchescare.com. Churches are communities of care. Go to C-H-U-R-C-H-E-S-Care.com to explore the possibilities. Help me. 
thought this one had real single potential, has a nice piano interlude. It has a ballad element, but it's not cheesy. It's well orchestrated. I think it could have been a hit single. It's very nicely done. Now, this is a fully realized song. I'm going to give him credit on this one. I think this one is a really fine, well-written song. What do you think of this one? Yeah, I think it's a, it's a decently crafted song. It has one of my favorite Sam lines, which is, who has the right when no one has the right? <laughs> and I'm like, Sam, I think you just answered your own <laughs> question. You know, that's kind of like, it's kind of like only time will tell if right. we stand the test of time. Oh my God. Now, I do like, I that's like a guilty pleasure of mine. Of I do course. like that line. Of course. But this one, it's kind of like, like, I get what you're saying, Sam, but like, Come on. But as far as a, a well-put-together song, yeah, it is well-put-together. It's, you know, it's it's decent. It's decent. Now, this fourth song, Would You Do It For Free, apparently is another dig at Eddie Van Halen. He's critical here of Eddie. This is sort of a money-oriented song, and I think this has some sort of financial squabble laced in between here. He's talking about lying accusations and all kinds of stuff like that. So I think this song is very cool. I like the groove here and the vibe. You know, it's very catchy, kind of sticks to the ribs. And here's a clip. enjoyable album track but two minutes in it gets into this kind of cool stevie wonder like breakdown which i kind of enjoy and but again i also felt like could have been a little more developed but i do like the groove of this song what do you think of this one so this song's a little different for sam oh, this totally. song yeah. to me is very funky yes and when you got bootsy collins on bass yeah. you know it's going to be funky. oh yeah absolutely absolutely uh, but it's a uh, Modern song for him, at least modern for 1997. There's a modern keyboard sound going through yes. that. It's really different for Sam. It breaks up the album nicely a little bit. It's not bad. It, it's it's not what I was expecting from Sam, but it, it's not garbage that I was getting from Sam. It was unexpected and somewhat of a pleasant surprise. Now, this next one is interesting because it is a Montrose reunion here, leaving the warmth of the wound has the original lineup of Montrose reunited, including Ronnie Montrose, who was alive at the time. And here's a clip. But this song is a bit confusing because I absolutely love the hard rock and portion here. But again, with the yo-yoing of the soft to the rockin' to the soft to the rockin' and it keeps going back and forth. It seems a little bit off balance. He starts it and it seems like he's setting it up for a real bluesy stomp. But then he gets there and he keeps going up and down and over and over until the song ends. So I feel like it needs a little more than all that ramp up. I need for the song to go somewhere. What do you think of this one? Well, first of all, I think we're going to reunite Montrose. 
You should have a flat-out rock song. Oh, totally. Just yeah. a very easy flat-out rock song, which right. Montrose did very well. Right. This is more of a slower-paced Montrose song, sure. which Montrose did do. Right. So it wasn't that surprising. But, yeah, the back and forth between the acoustic interlude and the rock part, again, it's too much. It's not a smooth transition between them. It's frustrating at times because they should just be rocking out the whole song. Whatever pace it is, they should be rocking out. Now, this one, the sixth song, Kama, this is obviously about his daughter. And here's a clip. It's a little too personal. There's nothing wrong with the song. It's just, I don't know, it doesn't really fit on this album. It's a beautiful song. It's a nice ballad that he wrote to his kid. It's very sappy. And it just doesn't fit into the context of this album. It stands out. I mean, if he wanted to record it and even release it as a one-off song, I understand that, but... And look, I know he loves his kid, and I'm sure she's a lovely girl, but like, it was his first child with Kari, and it's a nice song, but sappy as hell. Look, I have a daughter myself, so does Dave. We all love our daughters, but you think about like, the context and where this fits, it comes out of nowhere. I don't know, it just comes off as incredibly private. It's, it's a little, like, so personal, and, you know, I don't know, it, it seems a little too much. What do you think, Dave? It's definitely the ballad of the album. That's right. not my personal preference for songs. Right. So I was basically like, meh. Yeah, you know, yeah, it's very no, meh. It's very no meh. great shakes. It goes a little too long. Yeah, yeah. It's, which is it, it, actually a problem with a few songs on this album. Yeah, yeah. They're like a minute too long sometimes. You know, it's like cut out some of the fat. You already said everything you want to say, and that's definitely the case with this one, too. So, yeah, yeah it, it's not a go-to song for me and on this album. Yeah, you got it there. You really kind of drags the way this song... And what do you call it? I mean, it's like... It's, it's like almost like a something like a wedding waltz or something. It's really long. Number seven, on the other hand, and here's a clip. I like this song. It's a bluesy jam. It sticks with the acoustic kind of vibe going there. But by like a minute and 49 seconds, it starts opening up and taking off. And Sam goes into this one verse and it's really rocking. And then the song ends. And it's like, what the fuck? It's totally finished. And it sounds like a demo idea. This song reminds me of stuff from OU812, and there's a lot of stuff here on this album that has that OU812 rushed vibe, like, there's nothing wrong with the idea that's on the song. The song is a good idea, but it's, like, not fully fleshed, and you could almost feel, 
like him rushing through the album. I felt the same way with OU812. That whole album is very, very rushed. And they were under the gun. They went and did the 5150 album. They did the 5150 tour. Then they went right into Sam's contracted solo album. They went right into making OU812. Then they had to rush to get the album out to make the Monsters of Rock tour. I mean, it was like, it was a ridiculous schedule. This has that same sort of rushed vibe. And I love this bluesy jam. Damon Johnson, again here, a guest on guitar. Very cool. I think Sam works really well with that bluesy stuff. But again, song takes off and I want to hear more. It's over. What about you? This is the only time I'm going to say on the album, the song's too short. You're absolutely right. Like yeah. it kicks into gear and rocks like Sammy Hagar should. Yeah. But it takes like two minutes and the song's not even three minutes long. And then you're disappointed because where the rest of the song go? Yeah. What happened? It was extremely frustrating because I'm like, wow, that could have been a great song. Again, if you had shortened the intro to 30 seconds and rocked out the rest of the song, you could have had something. Very long Wasted intro, big build up, and then the song ends. I mean, it, it right. just, it's almost right. like he was like, all right, we got that one. <laughs> you have that yeah, kinda, but it's like, no, yeah, but it's like, you, like he spent, again, like we said earlier, he spent too much time on the intro yeah. and not enough time on the song song. Sure, absolutely. Number eight, both sides now. Here's a clip. solid song and i'm gonna say this sounds believe it or not like a song from later in his career it is the strangest thing it's almost like this song could fit on his like last album i don't know how that happened but this song both sides now it's got that very jimmy buffett-esque vibe to it However, I, I think this song, believe it or not, rocks in concert. This is a better song live than it is on this recording. And this, I thought, had single potential, too, but, you know, it didn't really go anywhere. What do you think of this one? Yeah, I think it was the second single or something was like it? that off was the it? album. I think so. But, again, it didn't go anywhere. And I love your Jimmy Buffett comparison. Yeah. I think you hit the nail right on the head. Yeah. That's the kind of vibe the song has i have to say that is one of the strangest feelings i ever got when you listen to an older album from somebody and it sounds more like something that they're more currently doing it is that is such a weird strange feeling i don't know how that happened number nine the yogi so high i'm stoned and here's a clip
Boy, is this a weird song. So this is another moody intro with the whispery vocal. By the way, that doesn't work well for Sam. Dave pulls that off very well. But Sam, that whole, he's trying to be like the cool smoky vibe with the riff here. And I don't think that really does well for him. That's not really his thing. But there's parts of this song that I really like. The music on the chorus where it's like, the difference is, different. that's really cool. There's some killer guitar playing. It's got almost like some Santana vibes on the guitar there, which I really like. The lyrics are horrible. This is bottom of the barrel Sam stuff here. When I get the yogi so high, I'm stoned. He screams, stone cold. Uh, that's, I don't know. What do you think, Dave? Oh, yeah. Lyrically, <laughs> this is, how do you say that? The Nader? Nader of the album? Oh, yeah. 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 <laughs> I mean, when I saw the title, I'm like, this is going to be as good as I think it's going to be. Wham, bam, right. Amsterdam. Right. So, you know, memorable title. Uh, the guitar work is good. I will give Sam that. Yeah. Oh, yeah, there's some really good Sam guitar work here. Because on most of this album, yeah. it's him playing guitar, including lead guitar. So while the songs aren't quite there, Sam's guitar work, including his lead guitar work, is good. It's, it's not bad at all. Right. And he always sells himself short on that. And I, I thought he did a good job on guitar on that. And you're right, the talking part. Not to do another Dave versus Sam comparison, right, right. even though I love them, but you went there. <laughs> yeah, it doesn't. Sam can sing, so he should sing. I understand he was trying to do something different for this song, and that's fine. Yeah. It's not like he did it badly, but it was like, Meh. I know, it, it just really. doesn't flow. It doesn't flow. Now, number 10, Amnesty is Granted. Now, this is so weird, this song. This is a great song where Sammy is lyrically putting in the effort. However, Sammy does not do the best version of this song. Sammy drags this song out. He doesn't really let it take off. Meatloaf does an incredible version of this song on his album that came out the same year called Welcome to the Neighborhood. Here's a clip of Sammy's version. Now here's a clip of Meatloaf's version. version really has that start and stop and start and stop vibe to it 
There's good writing here. There's the wrong presentation. But apparently this is a song about his marriage to Betsy, his first wife. And this is a very deep song. So I think when Sammy was making that comment in those interviews, obviously he's doing the song about his daughter, song about his ex-wife. There's obviously some more personal issues here. That's fine, but I think this is a really good song. The Meatloaf song is fantastic. Meatloaf really delivers on this song. Well-written song, but this Sammy is actually on the Meatloaf track, if you can believe that. That's kind of cool, but his version is not great. It really isn't. What do you think of Amnesty is Granted, Dave? It's okay. It's not bad. It's a decent song. The song is okay, mm-hmm. but that's like a lot of songs on the album. It's just okay. Yeah, there's a lot of like, okay. A lot of the songs, I'm not like, oh, I need to go back and hear that again. Right. They're just like, okay, and this song is, is another example. I appreciate that the songwriting craft that went into it. Right. And I will say, you know, the lyrics are good. I think Sam's lyrics on the album as a whole, for the most part, are decent. I mean, the Yogi's so high Yogi on stone, horrible, notwithstanding. Uh, but at least it's not all, you know, crap lyrics that right. Sam usually gets a bad rap for. Sure. Now, the 11th song is the title track, Marching to Mars. This is sort of a really interesting track because this has got very much an 80s pop song throwback vibe for sure. And here's a clip. Here we go. Of course, Sam is developing his alien theories here, which is all fine. I don't even care about that. But the gang chorus is a little over the top and hokey. Here's a clip of it here. But it peters out pretty quick, so that's not that bad. But I do like this song. It's got a nice bounce to it. It's totally different from a lot of the stuff on the album. It's definitely a different vibe. Mickey Hart from The Grateful Dead co-wrote this song with Sammy. He's also playing on this song. He had a strong influence here. I like this song. I, I really do. But again, it really adds to this very mixed bag of an album there's so many fucking there he's doing bluesy he's getting emotionally deep he's doing a pop song but there, i tell you one thing that's not on this album is like a straight like rocker you know what i mean like you had some like strong songs like who has the right and amnesty is granted sort of like a kind of a mid-tempo you know, lyrically driven songs. Then you got the emotional ballad, Kama. On the other hand, Little White Lie, kind of bluesy. Then you got some trippy shit with Salvation on Sand Hill and, and the Yogi So High. And then, you know, then you got this pop song. I mean, I don't know. I, I kind of like the bounce of this one. It's got kind of a, I tell you, it sounds like it's right out of a John Hughes movie. This whole vibe to it. What do you think of this one? I love this song. It's one of my favorite songs on the album. Okay. I was actually going to say, finally, a rock song oh, where okay. he rocks oh, okay. from beginning to end. This is the song he plays bass on, interestingly. <laughs> yeah, that's enough. right. That's right. 
like I said, it rocks from beginning to end. And the marching to Mars concept, I don't see it so much as him talking about aliens. I see it as a symbol for him going back to his solo career. Because Mars is the red planet. And Sammy (laughs) is the red rocker. So he is marching to Mars. He's going back to being the Red wow. Rocker. That's how I always look wow, at okay. it. That's a good Which is why I thought it was a great album title yeah. that he picked this song for the album title and also a great title for the song. That's where I thought he was going. That okay. was my interpretation. Well, I like anyway. that interpretation. I'm going to go with that. That makes me even all like right, it all right. more. And I, and I like the fact that he ended the album on a, on a strong Yeah, note. that have, is true. He should have done more songs like this, quite frankly. That's true. Now, I just wanted to mention this bonus track, which is on the Japanese version. Did you know the whole reason behind why the Japanese get the bonus tracks? I think I do. I think it was, at one time, because the value of the yen compared to the dollar was not strong. So you could actually buy an import album from another country, like the United States. If you were living in Japan and it was cheaper than buying the Japanese album. Well, this was a problem because the Japanese record companies were like, well, people aren't buying albums because it's cheaper to buy an import. So to entice people to do that, they would put bonus tracks on the Japanese album. So the Japanese music buyers would buy Japanese albums. Isn't that crazy? And meanwhile, we're chasing around for extra songs. It's hysterical. So there's this song called Wash Me Down. It's a bonus track on the Japanese album. There's another bonus track, which I could not locate, called Ether. I have not heard that. However, yeah, but I think that's only like a minute long or something like that. Is it really? That, so okay. I don't think they're missing much. Well, this is interesting. So this one is almost an instrumental song. There's vocals on it. There's vocals on it. But there's three solid minutes of music with no vocals in this track, and here's a clip. Massive keyboard solo from Jesse Harms. It's sort of a jam with a guitar solo in the middle there. It lets the song breathe a little bit, and it kind of sees where the jam goes. But it's it's almost like a glorified demo, to be honest with you, because it seems like an idea for a song, and there's a lot of jamming going on. It's fun to listen to. I enjoy it because it was listening to really the musicians really go off here. So it's kind of fun. I don't know if I would include it on the album, but, you know, considering that there's some other... I mean, I'd take it over k any day for sure, so I'm sticking on there. What the fuck? (laughs) (laughs) It is a fun jam. It is a fun jam. It it does go a little long, but I will say, like, the whole keyboard solo and, and the jam actually works. If you accept the fact that it's basically a jam with some token lyrics in there, so it's not a complete insult. It's true. But as a bonus track, it works. Right. Now, to sum up, this album feels, like I said, a bit rushed with some songs that are not even fully realized. I think Sam really wanted to make sure that no one forgot about him. Like, Little White Lie with Sammy getting his dig in. This record really didn't fully connect with Van Halen fans, for sure. 
and it really didn't spawn any big hits. Little White Lie did well in the rock charts when it first came out, but it was pretty quickly forgettable. In fact, it didn't represent well in the set list over the years. There there hasn't been much that Sam has called out. Like just recently on the birthday bash, did he bring back Little White Lie into the set list, which, by the way, I thought was odd considering Ed's death. I thought that was kind of odd that the song he wrote angrily about Ed, he puts in the set list two days after. From world conflicts to falling financial markets, natural disasters, and more, wish the headlines would just stop. It's not a newsflash that life can feel like a pressure cooker. From managing work to building relationships, it's easy to feel overwhelmed. And for many of us, anxiety and stress are constant companions. But you are not alone. Support is out there, just waiting to meet you. And you can find it through friendly people at churchescare.com. At churchescare.com, we know that finding your community can feel intimidating. That's why we do the heavy lifting for you. Churchescare.com helps connect people like you to churches that can support and serve you. In your new community, you'll find a group of people ready to talk, listen, and help you navigate life through its twists and turns. All you have to do is come as you are. If you're ready to find your community, visit churchescare.com today. That's C-H-U-R-C-H-E-S-Care.com. We look forward to serving you. From world conflicts to falling financial markets, natural disasters, and more, wish the headlines would just stop. It's not a newsflash that life can feel like a pressure cooker. From managing work to building relationships, it's easy to feel overwhelmed. And for many of us, anxiety and stress are constant companions. But you are not alone. You may not know it, but support is out there, just waiting to meet you. And you can find it through the friendly people at Church's Care. At Church's Care, we know that finding your community can feel intimidating. That's why we do the heavy lifting for you. Church's Care helps connect people like you to churches that can support and serve you. In your new community, you'll find a group of people ready to talk, listen, and help you navigate life through its twists and turns. All you have to do is come as you are. If you're ready to find your community, visit churchescare.com today. That's churchescare.com. C-H-U-R-C-H-E-S care dot com. We look forward to serving you. That, nothing against Sam. It was probably just more of you wanted to play the song and not so much the meaning, but that was a little odd. But he really didn't do like Marching to Mars all that much in the set list, even though that's kind of a fun, upbeat song. And he doesn't call upon this album. He doesn't play much from this album. He doesn't seem to talk about this album. Can't even find it in his catalog. So I don't quite know where he stands on this. What do you think? It's all very interesting. Yeah, really. The other thing with Sam is, you got to remember, this guy, you know, he doesn't release one album every 10 years. I mean, he releases albums regularly. So some capture his fans' imagination and fancy more than others. Right. And the other thing is, this one didn't really have a concert-going, Mastaquila kind of song that he can play. I, I mean, Marching to Mars could have worked. Could but have been, but it didn't, I, I don't yeah. know. I, and, and the other thing, uh, you know, maybe the other thing is, he didn't have the wobbles with him no, at the time. That wasn't happening yet, yeah. No, it wasn't, but that's the thing. It's like, it's not a Wobbles album. No. So maybe that he's kind of like, well, it's not a Wobbles album, so we're just going to like really focus on 
the music that the Wobbles play with me and that were recorded, you know? It so, certainly um, got lost in the shuffle over the years, that's for sure. And obviously yeah. not tended to. I find this a lot. I interview artists, and very often when I'm doing research, there's like one album that is lost. Like, it's not on iTunes. It's not on Spotify. No one knows where it is. For David Lee Roth, it's the DLR album. I just interviewed D. Snyder for something. D. Snyder has an album in his catalog, which actually is one of his strongest albums, which is the first Widowmaker album, Blood and Bullets. Can't find it anywhere. It's nowhere to be found. And I asked him about it, and he's like, ah, it's all tied up in legal red tape. And, you know, if I re-release it, then all the people come out of the woodwork to sue me. And, like, it's weird how product gets trapped in paperwork, and then it can't exist. Now, don't get me wrong. You can go on YouTube and listen to it. Or you can, you know, buy it on the used market and then have it and listen to it, and that's fine. But, like, it's just not readily available, and therefore it's not sort of in the public consciousness. So, I don't know. So, But it seems to happen from time to time. We're moving on to the next album, which is the Tribe of Judah album, which came out in 2002. This is the post-Van Halen 3 era when Gary Sharon left Van Halen, and this was his next project. Now, it was a lot different than Sam. There was years in between. Now, the post-Van Halen 3 era is quite murky. What we know is Van Halen 3 tour wasn't all that long. It started in April of 1998 in New Zealand. It ran through June 1998. It was 11 canceled dates within that tour. Then... It picked up in July of 1998 and went through November 2nd with six more canceled dates. That's 17 canceled dates, Dave. That's a lot. And that's all because of ticket sales, not because of sickness or anything. Then the band apparently went into the studio immediately and started recording new material. This is where it gets really murky because... There's this rumor, we've talked about this before, and we talked about this in depth with Martin Popoff when he was on, I think it was in December. They had this completed album that they submitted to Warner Brothers, which was the second album after Van Halen 3. Apparently, the rumor is it was called Love Again. How that could possibly be the title of a Van Halen album is beyond me. That sounds I don't like, think the album was finished and submitted to the record company. Well, what's out there is that it was submitted twice to Warner Brothers and rejected twice. I thought, at best, they got three quarters of the way through. Well, it's very shady because Eddie Trunk says he heard it and he says it was better than Van Halen 3. Then there is a guy by the name of Danny Korchmar, who is a producer who worked with the band. Patrick Leonard worked with the band. There's like all these different producers that came in and worked with the band. And, and if you ask Gary about it, he fluffs it off. Regardless, in November of 99, Gary exited the band. And I personally think, this is my personal opinion, I think Warner Brothers said... Listen, either get Dave or Sam back, but we're not releasing anymore with Gary. That kind of thing. I think they got called on it because the band was kind of cornered. Now, this led to Sharon exiting the band. Nuno Betancourt 
who is the guitarist for Extreme, was off doing his band, The Morning Widows, so he wasn't ready to reunite with Extreme. So Gary resurfaced in 2001 with a new band called Tribe of Judah. Now, the funny thing about the band is, it's basically Extreme without Nuno. You have Mike Mangini on drums, who had replaced the original drummer, from Extreme, and he's now the drummer for Dream Theater, and Patrick Badger on bass with Gary on lead vocals, and then he got this guy Leo Malais on guitar. The band released a four-song EP in 2001, which then turned into a full album, Exit Elvis, in 2002 on Spitfire Records, and it came out with very little fanfare. So the band did a limited tour, there was like nine shows. Dave, you went with me to Don Hills when we saw this, right? Yes. Yeah. Yes, we were hanging out yeah, backstage. backstage with Gary. Remember with that? the band, with, with a lot of other people, too. Yeah, and Eddie Trunk I was there. I remember Mike Mancini yep. was like, at one point he said, all right, everybody get out. Right, I remember <laughs> and that. that was it. And we, that was, and we left. Yeah. And he was getting pissed that everyone was just like, Right. That was like an interesting show because that was like a dank, dark place in Manhattan. That was like a fucking was hole that, in the Wait, wall. was that Manhattan or was that Brooklyn? No, it was Manhattan. It was Manhattan. Oh, was yeah, it? Yeah, yeah. Okay. Don okay, Hills in Manhattan. And it was the last known performance of the band. So the cover on this album, very weird and controversial. Three pictures of Gary. It looks like he's trying to shoot himself. It's very strange. It's not like him at all. That album cover. Oh, horrible. Is, well, for me, it's disturbing. Yeah, it's but disturbing. It's horrible. Of course it is. And those are like the only pictures in the album art. I know. Is that. I know. And it's, it's like, and so Gary is like an artiste. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And he likes to make statements. Yeah. And yeah. I get he's trying to like, you know, rattle the cage. Right. First of all, it didn't get any attention. No one cared. I don't think he got like any press because of that. You know, if he did, I'm surprised because the record company would be like, we, we can't sell this at Walmart. Yeah, it was but, just not a smart move. Now, meanwhile, Sammy, on the other hand, yeah. he's got Marching to Mars and he's got like the red pants with the shoes and the flames yeah, going. And yeah, that was sort he's of a... Marching to Mars, yeah, you know? Yeah. I mean, that yeah. makes sense to me. Yeah, right. I mean, I think Gary was making the statement, yeah, I was in Van Halen, and now I'm doing some solo stuff, and am I really just shooting myself by taking this direction that I'm going in with this album that we'll talk about? And But to me, I was just kind of like, I, just, I don't... It was highly too, negative. Yeah. It was yeah, just highly negative. Yeah. And the whole thing, this whole thing was a very artsy project that really blended rock with electronica. It was sort of a strange hybrid. However, when we saw this band live, it was much more rock-based than it was electronica, so which I preferred. And I thought, live, I thought it came off better than the album. Yeah. No, you're, you're right. It did rock more yeah. live than it did in the studio. Because it's interesting, because when you describe the band, you left off the keyboardists were, that were on the album. And, yeah. and for some reason, it alternates back and forth between two keyboards. There's Steve Frolazzo, who I think we saw live with the band. Right. And then there's also somebody else, Steve Catazone, or Catazoni. I'm not sure how you, how you pronounce it. But they have very strong influences on this album heavily but they're not so unique that you're like oh there's two different keyboardists on this album 
and it's like night and day, and you can spot it on the song right away. It's not like that. In fact, the album is, while it has different things going on here and there, it is remarkably consistent, which is interesting because it's done as a band project, Tribe of Judah. It's obviously Gary's album because he's the one on the cover. And while most of the people play as the core band, like I say, there's the keyboardists alternate back and forth and there's right. some other players. So it's not really as bandy right. as you would think yeah. it would be, especially after, you know, we saw them live and he had those people in the band and you're like, oh, okay, well, right. that, that's the band. I found this live concert way different from the album. This was way more like a, a rockin' live band, like extreme. So now, just to start off, I found a really interesting interview that our friend Martin Popoff did, Dave, with Gary at the time promoting Tribe of Judah. He asked him about the musical direction. He says, I was going to write the music and creatively go into an uninhibited lyric direction. It's not that Van Halen was restricting, but it was the entity itself, the preconception of what Van Halen should be. But with Tribe of Judah, I knew I wanted to write something as pure of heart as I could. There was only one prerequisite. I didn't want to join another three-piece rock band. He says it was a different canvas, and I wanted to do different things vocally on this album. So then when Martin kind of asked him about his freedom in Van Halen, this is what Gary had to say. He says, what was great about the Van Halen thing, which in hindsight probably led to why it wasn't a successful record, meaning Van Halen 3, was that Eddie and I really hit it off, and we didn't write a Van Halen record. It was just like when Sammy joined the band. It became a new Van Halen. When I joined, it became a new writing team, and I introduced him to a different lyric style. It was pure. The art was pure. But we ran into trouble when the record was done, and it wasn't the Van Halen record everybody thought was going to happen. But I never got pressure from the guys. They treated me great. Now, when Martin asked him about the gun cover, this is what he had to say. He says, the gun on the cover, it's a provocative image. I guess I want the person seeing that image to be disturbed, not for shock reasons, but to draw people into the lyrics and some of the themes that were going on, which are relativism, man being a measure, the moral relativism that each person displays in terms of right and wrong, and how we choose the paths we're on. So he's getting all deep on that. Now, when Martin... Man, that all went over my head. Now, I don't even know what the <laughs> fuck he's talking I feel like I, I'm in some college class that I shouldn't have been in. You know what it is? When I listen to music, I tend to focus more on the music than the lyrics. Like, Gary Sharon would look at me and be like, you're not my kind of fan. Like, you're not paying <laughs> know, close yeah. enough attention to the lyrics. Yeah, but I also think he's like a fucking cheesecake, this guy. It's so rich, so deep so thick it's like dude come on let up a little bit now martin went straight for it and not to say in this interview martin did an excellent job he got more out of gary about the van halen situation than any other interview we asked him about the breakup with van halen this is what gary had to say he says well success would have caused the continuation and he laughs we started writing and trying to do the right thing trying to make that right van halen record the personalities got along, but add the pressure from the record company and the lack of success of the other record, and the writing was on the wall. I remember having conversations saying, hey, 
I can stay in the band, but you tour with Dave. Give the people what they want. And they were like, no fucking way. That was actually contemplated at one time. I wanted them to get the Dave thing out of their system because it would have been a massive tour and people would have loved it. How shocking is that? I have never heard that. Wow, he's a good interviewer. I, I think he, uh... he, did a good, he did a good job. <laughs> then he says here, when he asked him about you know the kind of the Van Halen record everybody wanted, he says, "What is the Van Halen record everybody wanted?" I said to Alex, "Doing the right Van Halen record is doing it with Dave, and that would have been a death blow to me. I couldn't win doing Van Halen three. We wrote a few songs." That could have been hits. They were somewhere in between the Sam and Dave thing. But it started to get a little dysfunctional over time. We parted fine. I really wish the Dave thing happened for them. I had an opportunity to meet Sam. And I wouldn't rule out Sammy getting back in there. Which is so interesting. Because in 2002, another two years and Sammy's back doing a reunion in the band. So Gary's actually predicting it. In terms of the Van Halen 3 fallout, he says, I was kind of Eddie's new toy. Eddie was coming into himself as being a leader and in control and all that stuff. And that whole Ray Daniels thing is a mess. They fell out. And you know, when you're not successful with a record, you start pointing fingers. And they never pointed the finger at me. We knew what we were getting into. We knew that the record was odd and that it was going to challenge that perception. But live, we did give the people what they wanted. We gave them the catalog of music. I had no problem singing the old stuff. And I think fans appreciated that. So I go away with a good feeling in that respect. Van Halen was a band that always danced on the edge of not really writing anything. And that record went over the edge and it really had a lot of songs on it. I don't really listen to the record a lot. There were a bunch of seeds of some good songs, but we just didn't develop them. Some of it is really good, and some of it is glorified demo. I would have liked to have gotten a second shot, but I'm almost three years from it removed now, and the tribe is where I should be. Interesting, huh, Dave? I've never heard him talk that frankly about it. Maybe our Canadian buddy got him on a good day. Oh, I think he gave him some truth serum or something like that. I think, I think so. I just, he's the master interviewer. And now, so. now, to spin your head just a little bit more, just before we get into the album, when they asked him what exit Elvis means as a concept, now hold on to your hat here. He says, the underlying theme of this record is relativism, the death of God, man's free will, and how it relates to art and the meaning of life. How we view our origins determines how we live our lives. I hope I'm not getting too abstract. <laughs> you, you can't even read that without laughing. <laughs> I can't. I tell you, it's so deep, and it's so thick, and it's so rich, and it's so layered. It's so intense, and oh my God, Gary. It's like somebody give this guy a bucket of popcorn. Please. It's heavy, and the album is, so we're going to get right into the album here. Dave, just to start off, what was your kind of overall impression of the album when you first heard it? So it was different. It was, I don't know what you would call it. 
I don't know the right musical genre to describe it because I'm not a normal fan of the musical genre. It's industrial. I don't even know if that's the right word. It's not your typical guitar rock album. No. But having said that, I liked it. I liked it more than I thought I would. I listened to it quite a bit back in the day. In fact, I remember when the EP came out, Uh you were the one who gave me a copy of the EP. And I was really excited. I loved the songs on the EP. And I'm like, I think this guy is onto something. Even though it's not my typical musical choice, I really like the album. Exceeded my expectations and better than average. Okay. For sure. Okay, cool. Now, the first song, Left for Dead, this could be a killer track. I love this song. If this is left over from the post-Van Halen 3 sessions, this was supposed to be a track on that album. This is the one song that was definitely supposed to be on that post-Van Halen 3 album. And here's a clip. There's too many electronics on it, in my opinion, that's kind of mucking it up. The lyrics and the chorus are great and really, really strong. Many vocal effects and programming. I thought if Van Halen did this song, it could have really, really rocked. What do you think? Yeah, you know, and I always wonder and question about, like, how much of the song would have been a Van Halen song. Like, did Gary just take the lyrics and make maybe the vocal melody and then brought it into the band with a different musical backing, we'll never really know. Yeah. But when I hear the song, first of all, great album opener. I hear what you're saying about, like, all the electronic bits. And and for me, like, sometimes, because I'm not a a normal listener or fan of the genre, the songs kind of get samey-samey to me. Yeah, very much, yeah. Because of that. Mm -hmm. But I will say that, the album kicks off on the right foot with the song. Oh, totally. Yeah. And, you know, and the Left for Dead chorus is great. And it does make me wonder, like, I think if this was going to be on the second album that Gary had done with Van Halen, it could have been something, because I like this song a lot. But I will say, though, I don't think this is the only song that Gary took stuff from Van Halen when he left. Really? And we'll, yes, and we'll get into that okay. in a little while. Okay. So we're going to also note as we go through these songs which song was on the EP. So Left for Dead was on the EP. That's one of the songs that was on the EP. The second song, No One, that was not on the EP. This is on the album. And here's a clip. This has a lot of solid verses. I like this song as well. Vocal effect is sort of overused in the 90s with the kind of echoing on the kind of megaphone type of thing. I know he's going for high concept here, but there's so much layering. It's not really needed. It would be better if it had a bit of more of a, 
a roar sound. But there's some great guitar here, some really nice pieces, and, and the vocals are highly repetitive on the chorus when he's just screaming, I am no one, I am no one, I am no one. It's a little repetitive there, but it was good. It was good, though, for sure. Now, Dave, if I remember correctly, you're a fan of Waiting for the Punchline, right? The Extreme album? Yes. Yes, yes I am. Now, that I am. album I, that's the, is yes, tremendous. In fact, that's the only Extreme album I own, believe oh, okay. it or not. Okay, that's Extreme's fourth album, Waiting for the Punchline. came out in 1995, so right in the middle of grunge. Really didn't get the proper attention. That album is tremendous. That is a fantastic record. Yes, and, extremely underrated. I'm oh, with you all the way on oh, that one. Totally. Love that album. And there are songs on here that have that vibe because it's got that raw kind of feel, but it's kind of overdone and layered and buried under a lot of electronica, for sure. What did you think of No One, Dave? Well, before I get to No One, oh. it's interesting you talk about waiting for the punchline yeah. because I remember when we saw them live, they did some songs from Waiting for the Oh, absolutely. You know, absolutely. they did like two or three songs. A lot of it, like, yeah. Wow, these are pretty good. I'm going to go search for that album. Because so, Mike Mangini was on that album, and so is right. Patrick Patrick. So most of the band was on that album, and that album wasn't that old at the time. No, yeah. no, it was like a couple of years old or yeah, something Yeah, and it like fit that. well with the Tribe of Judah material. Yeah. Yes, it did. Yeah. But going back to No One, you're right. It is a thick layered song. Yeah. That's a lot of songs on these albums. Yes. On this album, rather. There's a lot of thick, a lot of layering. It, yeah, it's a little repetitive, but it does work. It's, it's a little funky in a way. It's not a complete duplicate of the first song. It has a different pace to it. But I don't know. I like the layering. I like the way it works. There is a lot of keyboards on this album, but it does not overshadow the guitar either. There's a decent balance on a lot of these songs. Yeah. And, 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 and on no one in particular. Right. Absolutely. The third song, East of Paradise, this is sort of acoustic guitar driven song. And here's a clip. Very haunting, this song. This is a very intriguing song. There's a lot of wild vocal melodies here. It, it kind of stays at one level. It really doesn't kind of go any crazy direction. But it is sort of sort of a haunting, sort of acoustic, balladly type of song, which is sort of an interesting interlude. Not like fantastic, but it's certainly intriguing. What do you think of this one? I think it is fantastic. Yeah, actually. you like it, huh? I, okay. Uh, yeah, I do. Now, was this on the EP? Yes, I'm sorry. I meant to note that. Yes, it's on the EP. Absolutely. Okay, right. So another reason why I was looking forward to the album. Haunting is spot on in terms of describing sure, the song. Sure, sure. Sometimes life can feel like a pressure cooker. From our work life to our personal lives and relationships, there's so much to balance. It's easy to feel weighed down when you're experiencing anxiety, stress, or sadness. But guess what? You're not alone. You may not know it now, but support is all around you. No matter where you are, all you need to do is ask. Let us help find you a community at churchescare.com. Churches are communities of care. Go to churchescare.com to explore the possibilities. Texting 
privacy policy in terms and conditions posted at textplan.us. Texting and rules for occurring automated text marketing messages. Message and data rates may apply. Reply stop, opt out. The pandemic has been hard on all our kids. New studies show more than one in three children who started school in the pandemic now need intensive reading help. That's right. Millions of kids in kindergarten through third grade in the United States cannot read at grade level. Here's the good news. Your child can be reading in just 30 days guaranteed with Hooked on Phonics. Even if your child has been struggling, Hooked on Phonics will teach your child to read in just 30 days guaranteed. And right now you can get started for just one dollar. Text the word grade to 323232 right now. Hooked on Phonics is highly effective and incredibly fun. And everything can be done right from home and in less than 20 minutes a day. For more than 30 years, Hooked on Phonics has been the proven learn-to-read program that kids love to use. Text grade to 323232 and teach your child to read in just 30 days, guaranteed. Text grade to 323232 right now and get started for just one dollar. Text grade to 323232 now. Text grade to 323232. Really like it. I think he uses the, the haunting effect. It's not like spooky haunting. But the way he sings and the way he's got the keyboards laid, like it really works well. But it does have a driving beat. It's not too slow. I think the song works really well, and it's definitely one of the better songs on the album. Yeah, yeah, it, it's definitely a good one, and that is on the EP for sure. Fourth song, Thanks for Nothing. Here's a clip. I love this song. This might be my favorite song on the album. I can't help but think that this is sort of a message to Eddie Van Halen. I'm oh God. If you think of the lyrics, it's almost like a little bit of Gary's frustration with the Van Halen situation. I don't know if that's true. I can't say if that that's just my own stupid interpretation. But I like this song. This one has real bite to it. And it has an energy that's very similar to Waiting for the Punchline. It has that sort of like driving, you know, thanks for nothing. Like it's got that sort of bite and strong uh, edginess to it. And I love this song. And I thought when they played this live, they really sounded fantastic. They have a live video for this song that's in black and white that I really, really like that showed them on that that very short club tour that they did i don't know if this was the single from the album it could have been dave i'm not a hundred percent sure but this was a great track probably the most relatable track i would say out of all the songs on the album in terms of for the rock fans for the van halen fans but this is a good one what do you think of thanks for nothing i agree that it's the most relatable song and the most accessible song for if you're an extreme fan or a van halen fan the song rocks Lots of guitars. It's a very angry song. Oh, yeah. And it's interesting that you say, well, perhaps this is a song for Eddie Van Halen. (laughs) Because I think this is a song he borrowed from Eddie Van Halen. Because if you listen to the opening guitar riff of Thanks for Nothing, Uh and then you listen to the opening guitar riff of Learning to See, I I think there are some similarities there. Could be coincidental. Maybe not. I'm not so smart that I'm the first person to bring this up. But wow. it's pretty close. That's all I'm saying. And Learning to See came out just a couple years after that. So here's a clip of Thanks for Nothing.
Now here's a clip of Learning to See. Wow. Well, I can understand you're, you're drawing that conclusion. That's, that's certainly interesting for sure. And we're moving on to track number five, which is Celibate. And here's a clip. love the music here, but I think the electronica here kind of works, but the song lyrics are a little blah, and the melody is sort of like, just sort of okay. There's like good parts here, but it's not 100%. What do you think of Celibate, Dave? Yeah, you know, like this is a song like I have to go back to, and I'm like, how does it go again? And yeah. maybe it's because like he doesn't have a chorus in there. Right. Like, thank for nothing. Like, he'll say a hundred times, yeah, yeah. you know, or no one. Right. But, like, celibate, there's no chorus. Right. It's something to hang so, your hat on, yeah. Right. The song is typical for this album. Guitars, layered keyboards, you know, decent, not bad. It's a typical song for the album. Absolutely. Now, you want to talk about Trippy. We're getting to Ambiguous Headdress. This song is overloaded with electronics. And here's a clip. I like Gary's vocal parts here when he gets kind of aggressive. I like that part, but this is some trippy shit. I'm not going to lie to you, hence the title. It's a little bit of a hodgepodge mess here with the electronics. What do you think of this one? I feel like I should be floating in a cloud when listening to this song. Yeah, I know. That's the kind of vibe it gives. So it is a little different than some of the other songs on this album. Within... The musical palette that he's painting various paintings with on this album. Did I say paintings like three times in a row? I might have. But anyway. Um, <laughs> this is like a fluffy white cloud. Nice clouds. Or, you know, what? What's, who was the guy who used to paint happy trees all the time? Bob Ross. Uh, Bob Ross. These are, well, I wouldn't say they're happy clouds. They're thinking clouds is what this song is. So, okay. <laughs> anyway. It's an interesting musical turn he takes with this song. Sure, absolutely. Now, In My Dreams, this is another song from the EP, the original EP. This is a very vibey track. It's kind of cool. It's very digestible. And here's a clip. I kind of like this one. Another sort of like interlude song. This is not like a real standout, but sort of curious. What do you think of this one? Well, after the last one, which was kind of like just like a consistent sound palette where you're floating, this one gets you back with more of a, a driving drum beat. 
and he's driving home the point in my dreams, in my dreams, repeating with the chorus. So it's a little more headspacey and more of like an Easter Paradise. Well, Easter Paradise starts off with like a mood, but yeah. this one kind of a little more down to earth after the cloudiness of the last one. Sure. The next one, two plus two. This is bizarre. This is not a song. This is a little girl, Kayla Cody, who is noted as the she devil. She's she's doing some little kitty lyrical rhyme. And here's a clip. What I'd do if two plus two didn't matter no more whether it were four. And if you told me it could be three, and I asked why, then why not five? Which is all cutesy and fine, but I don't know what that has to do with the whole album. Do you have any idea, Dan? No, I just thought it was like an introduction to the next song. I know, so, but it doesn't even connect. I mean, that's what's I, weird. I, I think, yeah, I just think it's... Oh, Again, yeah, it's getting, I think it's an artiste yeah. statement yeah. to do something. Yeah. And as time goes on with the album, it gets trippier and trippier at this point. So we're on to suspension of disbelief, and here's a clip. This is actually a good one. It's got a thick groove to it. It really has Sharon getting into his actory vocals. He's very theatrical in this song. I, I like this song. It's very entertaining. I love the vibe of it, for sure. But what do you think of Suspension of Disbelief? This is when we get to the dance part of the album. Okay. <laughs> um, although, you know, Left for Dead can make an argument that that's there. I don't want to say it has a disco beat, because that's not quite true. Right, right. But you can totally dance to this song i mean hats off to mike mangini who's a phenomenal drummer oh my god and cool, um yeah. it's keeping up with all these ideas that Karen i know is throwing down but that's i think this is like when you can actually start dancing to the album and i'm sure gary if he's listening to this right now is like but i spent so much time on the lyrics and like <laughs> i don't i'm not even talking about them and i apologize gary i'm just i'm more of a music person not a lyric person that's, sorry that's for sure and he worked very hard on characterizing his vocals almost like sometimes you didn't even know it was him it was bizarre you know he was so different sounding when we get to my utopia this is a song off the ep and here's a clip <laughs> Now, at this point, the record's getting a little samey-same. This sounds like the band Prodigy, with the electronica just takes over here, and it's layering of vocal effects. This one kind of made my head spin. This one was a little like, okay, all right, this is enough of this. And this got really, really out there. What did you think of My Utopia? Thank you for using the term electronica, because that's one of the words I was groping for okay. before. I feel like, you know, we should be in a warehouse somewhere. Right. You know, with tripping on Molly. Yeah, <laughs> tripping on something I don't that somebody handed me that I don't know what it is. Right. You know, while dancing to my utopia. Right. You know, right. So that's totally the kind of vibe I get. Again, we're at the dance part of the album. So yeah. I guess my utopia is a dance hall in a warehouse. So that's that is crazy. What can I tell you? 
Now, the 11th song is much like Sammy's. It ends with the title track, Exit Elvis. And here's a clip. is this an opus oh my god this song comes out of nowhere it sounds completely out of character for the rest of the album it starts off like a george michael song like kissing a fool it's got like a violin and some piano and then it starts getting heavy about a minute and 42 seconds and it switches back to piano then it throws in female background vocalists and clearly sharon is going for some big epic track and then about three minutes and 40 seconds starts opening up with some killer guitar riffs from leo malice and then it goes back to piano with violin with the background female vocals and i don't know if he's trying for some crazy trippy queen type of vibe here i'm not really sure but I have to say it's interesting, for sure. It's colorful, but it is everything in the kitchen sink, this song. What do you think of this one? I was going to say one word. Queen. (laughs) This this is a Queen-influenced song. You know, it's kind of like, you know, Bohemian Rhapsody is, you know, at least two different songs going on in the same song. That's what this is. This is totally like, let's throw all the ideas we couldn't think of into the last song. And it's a long song. Too. Oh, yeah. And I think it's one of the longest songs on the album. It is it, the longest. It's not yeah. the longest. Yeah. Now, does it all work? It doesn't fall apart. It's not a hot mess or anything like right, that. Right. I don't know if it 100% succeeds. Right. It's interesting. Yeah, like, sure. Like, for me, at least, you know, I would always keep listening to it like, Oh, where's where's it going now? Where's it going now? So it was interesting from from that standpoint. But yeah, you're right. It's all over the place and a very interesting way to end the album. It is. It's memorable for sure. Now, the bonus track on the Japanese version is Sublime. And here's a clip. This, much like Sam's, is almost like a demo. The music is nice, the vocal's a little light and meaningless, and then Sharon is like mumbling through the lyrics. And then they get into like some sort of spoken foreign language track, which makes it kind of pretentious. And I would say, all right, leave it for as a bonus track, because this one's not so great. What did you think of Sublime, Dave? Was this also the bonus track on the EP? It was a bonus because track there the was an acoustic track. No, I don't think it was. No, I, think I don't the think the bonus so. track on the EP 
Man, I have not listened to that EP in a long time. I know, I should have. forever but ago. I think it's, I think the bonus track on the EP is Need I Say More, which is a nice acoustic song. That's a totally um, a different, yeah, yeah. Yeah, that's a different song. Sublime, well, you know what? I, I can't even comment on it because I haven't heard it. Okay, while, okay, so no problem. I'll have to defer to you on that one. That's okay. So now, as a wrap up for this album, this was a very big artsy risk for Sharon, but the truth is, he really had nothing to lose at this point. I mean, the whole extreme thing was over, the whole Van Halen thing was over, so it was clear this was sort of his time to do his pet project that he always wanted to do. Soon after this, Extreme would reform after Nuno Betancourt and Gary to realize that they are better off together than apart. You know, you feel like there's like half a good album here. Much like the Sam album, there's like half a good album and you really need to look beyond the overproduction. But there are some good songs like No One and Thanks for Nothing, Left for Dead. There's a bunch of songs that are strong and they're interesting. Again, kind of a little bit too much electronica for my taste to kind of get through but because I like Gary so much and because I like some of the guitar I can kind of overlook it but it really kind of gets in the way a little bit it's definitely dated sounding because that early 2000s had that rocks mixed with electronica. It was a very brief period when that was going on this is kind of a post grunge thing where that kind of stuff was happening but this is definitely like one big art project for Gary. Different from the Sam album. The Sam album was definitely Sam kind of getting back in his solo shoes, but he's like not fully sure what direction he's going. And I felt like Sam purposely steered away from rock because of Van Halen. Now, Gary probably you know he's different like gary is not like sam and gary has all kinds of you know influences he's very theatrical he's very artsy this is definitely him kid in a candy store let's use every piece of equipment and i wonder how he looks back on this album i'm very curious about that i have to tell everybody here and we reiterated earlier in this conversation go check out Waiting for the Punchline, the Extreme album. That is better than Van Halen 3, better than Tribe of Judah. That album is Gary at his absolute finest. And I love Pornography, and I love Three Sides to Every Story, which is the two Extreme albums that preceded Waiting for the Punchline. But Waiting for the Punchline is balls out. I love that album. So definitely check that out. And I'm not saying don't check this out. This is available on streaming and this is available on iTunes and stuff like that. But this is an interesting album. It really is. And it's it certainly, you know, if Van Halen 3 left a bad taste in your mouth and you're not a fan of Gary, then maybe you want to steer clear of it. But I think it's interesting. I like it. There's a lot of interesting stuff here. What do you think of it overall, Dave? I like it, and I liked it more than I thought I would. Okay. Again, it's not my style of music, but he executes it very well. He does. And I listened to it quite a bit when it came out. You know, it wasn't like one of those things you listen to it two or three times, and you're like, all right, yeah, whatever. It was a go-to album for me when it came out. I think it's worth listening to. If it's not your style of music, hey, no problem. It wasn't mine either, but I, I still liked it despite all that. I um, find it shocking 
that you like this album this much and you really don't like Van Halen 3. That is shocking to me. I think this album is executed way better than Van Halen 3. Well, there's Van a lot, Halen yeah. 3 has half-baked ideas that just did not work. This album has ideas that are fully baked and work, and the songs are there, and the music is there. I mean, I'm not a lyric guy, like I said, but he's got the, the lyric ideas there. I think this album succeeds much, much better than Van Halen 3. Okay. And it, I think it succeeds better than Sammy's Marching to Mars album as well. I mean, the proof is in the pudding. I bought this one. I didn't return it. I listened to it a lot. And I never bought Sam's album either. But the person who takes the prize for having the best album... After leaving Van Halen, it's someone we haven't even talked about yet, okay. and that's because we already talked about his album on a previous podcast. Right, right. But I have to give it to David Lee Roth mm -hmm. and Eat Him and Smile for having the best album after we left Van Halen. Because for me, it's not a podcast unless we have a Sam versus Dave conversation. Of course. And now we get to throw in Gary, too? Yep. Oh, I'm ecstatic! <laughs> so, well, I have yeah. to say, I think Dave's album was very well tailored to who he was. For sure. And who his fans were. And yeah. Who, he knew who his fans were. Yeah, but I think if you look at his album, Eat Him and Smile, came out in 1986, it's got flavors from crazy from the heat on there he's got van halen flavors on there he's got some covers on there like he has a real mix of everything i love that album and and the band is so good that band is one of my favorite bands it's ridiculous yeah that band is good he's got a mix but you see that mix works sam had a mix and it did not work yeah but the difference is is Dave is definitely very detail-oriented with presentation and stuff like that. You know, he's very artistic in his way, and he knows how to use a, a little green, a little yellow, a little purple. Like, he knows how to mix it. It's like he, he knows how to put together a good mix. This is why I always say, Diver Down, which, by the way, I think Edom and Smile is closest to is Diver Down. It's got that same kind of vibe. Little bit of this, little bit of that, little bit of rock, little bit of covers. It's got that same kind of vibe. And it's a party album, and it's a fun album, and it's an album you can throw on and listen to beginning to end, and it's tight and right, and it has that kind of cohesiveness. And Dave was heavily involved with Diver Down. I agree. I agree. It has that party element to it. There's something of the spirit of Diver Down that is similar to the spirit of Eat Him and Smile. It's hard to put a finger on it. They're kindred spirits, those albums, for sure. That's definitely for sure. I mean, and don't get me wrong, I love 1984 too, but I'm just saying that Diver Down album, and everybody always 
fucking shits all over it, which is so ridiculous, because that album is really, really fucking good, and there's some great stuff on there, and that is not any less than with the other albums. I think it stands right in there, and I love it. It has a real fun party vibe to it, and a little vaudeville in there, a little hard rockin' covers, good originals, solid as hell. It's hard to compete with Eat em and Smile. I feel even bad comparing Eat em and Smile to Marching to Mars and Tribe of Judah Exit Elvis. I do. I feel kind of bad. I mean, it's got great videos, great cover, great title, great band, great everything. I, I, I don't feel bad at all. Oh, I know. The you love to pound. The topic, of course. Of course. <laughs> the, the topic is the album you released after you left the right, band. Right. So Dave gets the gold. Gary yeah. gets the silver. <laughs> Sammy gets the bronze. <laughs> okay. And we will leave it at that. And we are on to our interview with Billy Sheehan. And, oh, we, we feel very sorry for Billy. He just lost his lead singer of Talis, which is Phil Naro, which is so sad. Phil just passed away, and they just recorded a new Talis album, and we're going to do a very deep and very memorializing interview with Billy about that, and that is coming up next. Take a listen. I don't ever want to do the same thing over and over again. Like, you know, a reality show is just like, oh, my God. I, I get so bored with the cameras being in my face all the time. Um, but I do like the idea of moving into a different type of celebrity, you know, instead of going out and trying to make it as a singer, songwriter, musician, rock star. Sometimes life can feel like a pressure cooker. From our work life to our personal lives and relationships, there's so much to balance. It's easy to feel weighed down when you're experiencing anxiety, stress, or sadness. But guess what? You're not alone. You may not know it now, but support is all around you. No matter where you are, all you need to do is ask. Let us help find you a community at churchescare.com. Churches are communities of care. Go to C-H-U-R-C-H-E-S-Care.com to explore the possibilities. Texting privacy policy in terms and conditions posted at textplan.us. Texting and rules for occurring automated text marketing messages. Message and data rates may apply. Reply stop, opt out. The pandemic has been hard on all our kids. New studies show more than one in three children who started school in the pandemic now need intensive reading help. That's right. Millions of kids in kindergarten through third grade in the United States cannot read at grade level. Here's the good news. Your child can be reading in just 30 days, guaranteed, with Hooked on Phonics. Even if your child has been struggling, Hooked on Phonics will teach your child to read in just 30 days, guaranteed. And right now, you can get started for just one dollar text the word grade to 32 32 32 right now hooked on phonics is highly effective and incredibly fun and everything can be done right from home and in less than 20 minutes a day for more than 30 years hooked on phonics has been the proven learn to read program that kids love to use text grade to 32 32 32 and teach your child to read in just 30 days guaranteed text grade to 32 32 32 right now and get started for just one dollar text grade to 32 32 32 now text grade to 32 32 32 I feel I look stupid doing that right now. You know, I do it out of love that I love to do it and for my fans. But to go out there and like act like I'm trying to make it and trying to, you know. Texting privacy policy in terms and conditions posted at textplan.us. Texting and rules for occurring automated text marketing messages. Message and data rates may apply. Reply stop, opt out.
The pandemic has been hard on all our kids. New studies show more than one in three children who started school in the pandemic now need intensive reading help. Here's the good news. Your child can be reading in just 30 days guaranteed with Hooked on Phonics. My first grader was behind in reading and this program has made a huge difference. She's now reading above grade level. I use it for my kids nightly reading for school. We love it and it's super easy and quick to do. My kid who just turned four years old and has been using the program since January of this year can now read. Thank you so much, Hooked on Phonics. Even if your child has been struggling, Hooked on Phonics will teach your child to read in just 30 days, guaranteed. And right now, you can get started for just $1. Text the word KID to 323232 right now. It's fast and easy. Text KID to 323232 and teach your child to read in just 30 days, guaranteed. Text the word KID to 323232. Text KID to 323232. You know, become, you know, some big rock star or something is like embarrassing to me it's like I'm, I'm sorry folks i'm i'm sorry i'm still doing this because i really do like it that's why i'm doing it you know i don't need money i swear you know need a laugh check out the funny how comedy podcast which focuses on upbeat conversations with legendary comedians it's free on spreaker and itunes check us out on facebook at funny how comedy podcast on twitter at funny how podcast on instagram at funny how comedy podcast or email us at funny how comedy podcast at gmail.com hey this is photographer mark weiss you're listening to dave and dave unchained hey folks i'd like to introduce you to the classic rock album by album podcast Welcome to the Classic Rock Album by Album Podcast, where no stone is left unturned in the show's epic quest to review and dissect every single rock album ever made. Join self-proclaimed rock authorities Chris Carson and Lee Bowie on their epic journey to uncover the true classics. You can find the Classic Rock Album by Album Podcast wherever podcasts can be found, including Spotify, Stitcher, Apple Podcasts, and Google Podcasts. Our website address is classicrockalbumbyalbum.libsyn.com. That's L-I-B-S-Y-N.com. And we can be reached on Facebook at fb.me slash classicrockalbumbyalbum. See you soon from the Classic Rock Album by Album podcast. Wake up, you know. If there's something you want to do, do it right now. Don't wait till tomorrow. Okay, Billy, how are you, man? I'm sorry... So, so sorry about Phil. We're heartbroken about it. Yeah, it was a tough break. He was a really wonderful man and uh, loved by everybody. Absolutely. Dave and I saw you guys at the Iridium. I guess it was March of 2019, right, Dave? Yeah, yeah. That was a night Dave and I waited for. Dave, it's got to be 20 years, right, that we waited for that night because we never saw Talis. We've seen you with Mr. Big. We've seen you with Dave. We've seen you in, oh, my God, uh, Sons of Apollo, Winery Dogs, everything, but we never got to see Talis because we were too young at the time. Dave and I are roommates from college. We used to listen to the Talis album in college all the time, right, Dave? That was like one of our regulars. Oh, my God, it, it was. I think it was Relativity Records released the Talis year. Yes. Which had the last 
Palace studio album and then the live album with Phil. Right. I mean, that was a go-to album. Oh, big time. That was our party album. That's when we were really celebrating. We'd put on the Talus album and blare it to the the rooftops. That came out, I think, uh, you know how record companies are. They were capitalizing on Billy's popularity with Roth at the time. Also, Mr. Big, I think both were right around... 88, I think it was. So, and yeah, uh, yeah, so, yeah, yeah. So that was the album. So this is unfortunate circumstances. So tell us, in terms of Phil's passing, was it expected or was it sudden? Well, we knew there was a big problem. You know, anyone that's gone through this knows you can't start to clarify and verify that yes, this is probably going to be the end. You know, you don't say that, you don't speak it. We kept it quiet with everybody other than the inner circle, you know. And of course, you don't want Phil to hear that either, you of know. Course. Even though he may know it, he may feel it, and may the doctors may have told him, but you don't want to, you know, it's just not the way you want to go. So we kept a positive spin on everything with Phil, and he was a positive guy, and he had booked a show <laughs> uh coming up about, uh, I don't know, I think maybe sometime this month or something. Wow. You know, he booked it, you know, on the hopes that he could do it. You know, he was that enthusiastic. When I know there's no way he could have gotten through an evening of singing. It's like running a marathon, you know, it's tough. Of course. But in his mind, you know, that's the kind of positive person he was that he said, you know, full speed ahead, I'm going to keep going. And, And he did. So everybody around him that knew how serious the situation was, was quite taken with that and quite inspired by that, uh, that uh, someone in that situation would just say, hey, I'm not letting anything stop me. I'm going to go. And he had just finished doing all the vocals for the new Talos record. And while he was doing it, I knew he knew. He knew I knew. We didn't bring it up as a subject to talk about. But you know, I could tell that it was weighing heavily on his shoulders because he had a, you know, had a tough time remembering lyrics and would make... The kind of mistake someone whose mind was elsewhere would make. His pitch was great, his timing was excellent, but he would make uh, make a lot of mistakes that were just not the kind of mistakes a singer would normally make. It was somebody whose mind was occupied, but he just would step up to the plate and swing again and hit it, and you hear the vocals on the new record. Uh, it's quite a tribute, more than anything, uh, to Phil's determination sure. than anything else. And all of us in the band... Our whole point of view on this record is it's all about Phil and his legacy. I don't care about much anything else other than that and have people know how great Phil was and uh, what a spectacular performer he was and the kind of inner strength that he had that a lot of people don't. It's pretty amazing. That is true. You know, it's interesting, Bill, when you say that there's the video out there of him singing one of the songs. Yeah. And, you know, you're on the screen helping him along. and you would never know that there was an issue, you know, that he had been diagnosed with cancer. Sure. The way he was singing, I, I mean, you would have no clue because he was like knocking it out of the park and giving it his all. It's just- yeah, he was hitting his notes so great. And uh, the quality of his voice, you know, the first time I ever heard him and just kept him in the back of my mind. And then when Dallas made a change in 83, he's I got a hold of him right away to work with him because I just thought he was just a great singer and frontman. Quite amazing that he uh, could could pull it off the way he did. We see these examples once in a while where somebody 
just goes above and beyond human endurance and limitations and just keeps on pushing. And that's exactly what we witnessed here. I think it's great. He has two wonderful sons. And I think this will be an inspiration for the rest of their lives with their dad. He didn't back down. He didn't back off. He kept pushing. He didn't let anything stop him. Again, quite amazing. Now, when was the last time you spoke with Phil? I don't recall, but I know we were talking back and forth about what we were going to do for the record, the things we wanted to put in the, in the cover and various things, we cover art and things like that. So we, there's so much work goes into putting out a record. Of course. And now with, with the COVID thing, everything is on one-third speed, so it takes forever Normally it takes a long time, but now it takes a really long time just to get anything done. But we're surrounded by people who love Phil and love the band, so we're getting a lot of incredible favors from people. The gentleman doing the cover art is just amazing. We had two guys mixed the record, two different versions, and they're both fantastic. And everybody that worked around us, the young lady Lisa in Rochester, who's been with the band and stayed with Phil's family and close to his mom, just didn't went the extra mile. So we had to speak about a lot of details about getting things done. And he was never down, you know, pretty amazing. I, I, I don't know what I would do in that circumstance. I, I was blown away. I mean, what do you do if I told, you know, some doctor called you tomorrow and said, hey, your test came in. and you got about three months left, bro. Yeah, oh, yeah, what? oh in, in the meantime, could you sing on a record? Yeah, that's <laughs> yeah, holy yeah. shit. Uh, it's unbelievable. So, uh, yeah, he was always a, a positive guy all the time. I mean, all through the years. And it was so great. I posted about him, of course, when the, the next day and gave my little tribute to him for people to comment on, uh, on Facebook and Instagram and all. And the flood, the ocean of people saying how they knew Phil and met Phil or met him after the show or, sure. you know, came to see him and how great he was and how gracious he was. And, I never heard anybody, yeah, that, that jerk, uh, he would, never, never with Phil, just never. We Billy, all have a bad yeah. day once in a while. Yeah, but, no. But I, I haven't heard about any of those. Well, you know, Bill, you've been in the business for so long and you've done so much and you've seen so much and worked with so many different people. You know when you put love out, you get love back. And that's always been the way. When you saw Phil perform, you knew he was just loving it. I mean, when we saw him at the Iridium, it was like Christmas morning for him. He was so thrilled. Even the fans were, were just so thrilled that Talos is back together. And I'm sure those shows at the Iridium must have stood out to you because they were really warmly received. And that was a tight yeah. room. And it was really great. Oh, we had a blast there. Tight little room, sounding great. Band loud, but not overwhelming. We he's played in New York City so much. Right. Back at the Lamore days and the Rising Sun and all out on Long Island, all over the place in the area. So people came in from all over. People came in from Japan, from Korea to see the band. Flew in from Germany. Unbelievable. And uh, it, was, it was great, great. A lot of musicians know this, but maybe some don't. When you put a record out, it goes everywhere. And there's people in Afghanistan that have it. That's so true. It's quite a, an amazing phenomenon I've been witness to with several of the bands I've been with. But since Talos has been around for such a long time, uh, you know, it spread far and wide. So a lot of people were so wonderful, too. And we're so grateful they spent the time, effort, energy, money, and everything to come to New York City to see the band. And 
Uh, we, we, and we had such a great time after the show talking with everybody. Yeah. It was so great. And, and a special thanks to Ron, uh, Bumblefoot. He came up and jammed with us yep. every night. And oh yeah. Great. Because he, he was a big Dallas fan. We yeah. knew he knew the songs. Learn them. That's right. Sound checks I've done with him in the past. Prior to this reunion thing, you know, he started playing Sink Your Teeth and that. And I, how do you know that? When he goes, oh, I see you guys all the time. <laughs> so now what is the plan for the album? When is you're looking to release it? What stage is it at right now? And do you have a title? Uh, it's been mixed, and we're looking to get it mastered. We do a, a special mastering from vinyl. Okay. And a lot of the vinyl mastering places are backed up five or six months. But I think we have an in with a wonderful place that's going to enable us to get it done quickly. So that's good. I'm not at liberty to say the title yet, so it'll probably leak out eventually. We're trying to hang back as long as we can. Okay. There's no secrets in this world of the Internet. But the title is exactly what the record is. It's a, it's a snapshot of where we were when when we last played together okay. back in the day. We thought about these songs, and these are songs that were never properly recorded. Some were on the live record, but they, we never did any of them in the studio for real. So we wanted to take those songs, and we thought, well, maybe we should do some rewrites and spruce them up and fix some lyrics. And I thought, eh, let's, let's leave it the way we sure. and make it a real honest thing of us, how we did it then. And here we are, how many years later, 30-some, 40 years almost mm-hmm. later. And so let's do it like we did it then. Because so many people from that era love that time. They love that whole area in, within the 80s. That meant so much to them. So we wanted to try and be as honest with that as we possibly could. So, yes, it's recorded digitally. So we didn't okay. put it on tape. Okay. But we did do it playing in a room together and putting it together and really singing and really playing like like it was back in the old days. So we uh, hope to have it out as soon as possible. Like I said, it's it takes a while now with everything. But I'll post any info of the moment it comes to me everywhere, mm-hmm. I'm an open book as far as that goes. Again, I, I'm not looking for anything from the record. I'm not looking to get make any money off it, that's for sure. Right. <laughs> but sure. I just want this to be Phil's legacy. You know, I want this to be a part of what people remember about him because he did such a great job on it. The vinyl notwithstanding, do you think the album will be released, say, this summer? Very possibly, yeah. Okay, but most likely this year, though. Yeah, for sure. Uh, yeah, be... I wouldn't let it languish any longer than that if I have to go to the record company and steal the files back and post them <laughs> anonymously. <laughs> I will. I'm kidding. I wouldn't do that. No, okay. but, uh, but that's how I feel about it. Sure. And they do, too. Metal okay. Blade has been wonderful in this, and they kicked in a little more money for us Excellent. just to make things uh, easier and better for everyone. So we were very pleased about that. Uh, the initial deal we had was microscopic. Uh, they were very kind. And before Phil's passing or anything like that, they they were very excited about what we had, and they upped the ante quite a bit to help us get things rolling and pay people who needed to be paid. Not the band, incidentally. We, we, none of us have gotten anything out of it. We're, we're really doing it as a labor of love. And that, that's a fact. I'll show you my tax returns to, to prove <laughs> I didn't make any money. <laughs> what about returning to Talos? This is the first time you're recording with Talos in I don't know how many years. What has that journey been like for you? Because you reunited with the band with Phil years ago at this point. And how did that come to be, and what's it been like, this new version of Talos? It feels like it felt when we did it 
long ago. Mark Miller, a key, key element, the drummer, uh, was just a spectacular player. Hasn't slipped by one molecule in his ability to play. He is killing. And you guys saw him at the Iridium. You know mm-hmm. what I'm talking about. He's frightening. Oh, monster. He's, he's he was a, a monster. Wonderful guy. Yeah. yeah, he's frightening to watch the play, and his drum set is frightening to watch, especially because he put it together. He built that thing, right? And yeah, yeah, yeah. We and then we recorded the record in the house that Mark built. Also, actually oh. built the house from the ground up. Oh, and wow. he is uh, one of the sweetest, most wonderful, nicest guys in the world, and it's just a spectacular player. Few people know, but when we first put Eat Him a Smile together, David Lee Ross flew Mark out okay. to try out for the gig. Before we got Greg this and that, yeah. But Mark's heart wasn't in it because as much as Mark loves to play, he's just not part of the rock and roll scene or party lifestyle. You know, he's a wonderful father and husband to his his wife who passed away sadly. And he's got wonderful kids. And he just wasn't into that part. And I could tell when he came out for the tryout, I knew his heart wasn't in it. I knew he wasn't looking to, to tour the world in some big rock band and go crazy. It's not him. He, <laughs> you know, he'll have a sip of wine at dinner, you know. And we have a riot together. We always did, all of us in Dallas. But sure. He's just not that party guy. So I knew even though Dave was kind enough to fly him out, I knew Mark really, he didn't have that in him. So fortuitous to us that we found Greg Bissonnette, who turned out to be the perfect guy. Yeah, he was quite a phenomenon. Carmine uh, Apathy came out to see him play. And I know the first photo of the first Dream Theater rehearsal with Portnoy and bass player and guitar player, Mike is wearing a Dallas shirt because <laughs> he used to come to the, to Lemoore's to see us That's play. Right. That's right. That's right. Of course. Ray Legier from Corn tells the story how his buddies used to take a VHS tape recorder into the clubs in Pittsburgh near where he lived and they used to sit around the TV and watch the shaky, wobbly, digital distortion versions of Mark Miller because they were all big fans of his. So he left his mark on a lot of players. Pretty amazing. So having him there is a supremely important element. And we also got Mitch Perry to come and do uh, two songs, the two songs he brought into the band. He left the band about halfway through. We got a guy named Johnny Angel. Johnny's out in California, unfortunately. He couldn't travel to come and play on the record. And he, I think he had a little a hand injury at the time we were recording. And sadly, he's okay now, but he's 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 still, you know, he's part of the gang still. So we had another guy, uh, this guy named Kerry out of Rochester, who's worked with Phil and Mark a lot, and he did a bang up job on the record. So it was a a positive, wonderful laugh fest and great time uh, when we did the record initially. Phil's mom would cook for us over at Phil's house. Wow. And we'd rehearse down in the basement, and it was uh, just like it used to be. Pretty awesome. What started Talis up again? Who was the one who pulled everybody together and decided to restart Talis up again, and when was that? Well, I had done a reunion with the version of Talis before. Okay. Three-piece ones. It did just sink your teeth into that album. We did a couple shows, huge shows, 14,000 people outdoor show in Buffalo. But th- those guys, they kind of stopped talking to me, and there was some kind of thing going on that I didn't fully understand, and I didn't hear from them anymore. And I, well, there was no, I didn't have any bad blood or anything like that. So one day I'm playing with the winery dogs in Buffalo, and Mark Miller comes to the show, and he's with his daughter. All of a sudden it dawned on me that, oh, man, I lived in L.A., and I'm far away, and I, right. I, I 
it's so hard when you go leave your hometown and go across country and it's all new friends and I keep in touch with as many people as I can but there's only so many hours in the day right it's just some of those relationships suffer unfortunately so I realized that Mark lost his wife and Mark's wife passed away wow and his kids had never seen him play wow and I thought hold on a second this is just I can't allow this and in another way, another young lady in, in Buffalo, Jesse Galanti, she uh, was a singer. I went out with her for a long time. When I left, we split up. We still stayed friends. She ended up marrying the guy who produced the very first Talos record, uh, Larry Swift. I found that he passed away oh my before God. that, too. And I thought, you know, so I started this Christmas show every year so we could all get together and not lose touch with each other back in Buffalo. So everybody could come out, all the musicians, and just, you know, because... You know, it's hard to keep in touch and know what's going on. So that was kind of the spirit in the air. So when then Mark showed up at our show and, and I realized, oh, his wife is in with him because she passed away and his kids had never seen him play. So I thought, you know, we should do a show. Why not? So Lisa, the young lady I mentioned, she got a benefit show for us to play for free. Uh, Barnard, New York, right outside of Rochester. Barnard Fire Department. They had the summer series concerts. And we got up there and a couple opening acts, and we played, and it was jammed. Wow. And we had a riot. So I thought, hey, we could do more of this. Why not? This was fun and easy. We had a blast, and it was cool. So we ended up doing a, a couple other shows here and there and booked the Iridium gig and some shows in Buffalo and did the Cheap Trick opening slot two summers ago, I think it was. And it was going great. So I said, you know, we got all these songs that we left behind. Why not record them? So that was about what happened, you know. So that started back in, what was it, 2017? I believe so. Okay. okay. I believe it was 2017, yeah. And, and when did you first meet Phil? What was the first time you and Phil met? The three-piece Talus broke up and got back together several times. We were at a moment where things weren't going well, and I went out to the local club because people said, you should see the singer from his bed. And I went out and thought, ooh, man, he was he killed His voice is great. He's a, you know, just a great front man. I keep him in mind. So sure enough, the band split up. I knew Mark already because I heard a tape of Mark doing a cover version of Billy Cobham's Stratus. And it was about a third faster than the record. And Mark annihilated on it. It was so great. And I was a huge Billy Cobham fan. So I got those two guys together and we uh, eventually got Mitch Perry in the band. That's how we launched. That was back in 83, I think. Wow. 83 or early 84. Sure. Now, how would you describe Phil's vocal style? He has a unique way of singing. He reminds me, in some ways, doesn't sound like Steven Tyler, but he reminds me of Steven Tyler because he doesn't really do a lot of heavy vibrato. He just hits that pure note and holds it. He's good at that. The girl from Evanescence is another one that does that. She just hangs on that note, and it's right in pitch without having a vibrato. It's just a particular style that I'm, not a lot of people do. It's instantly recognizable and his pitch is right on we went over tons of old tapes looking for the different versions of the songs that we recorded for this record they're all live tapes just from the board with the mics get up in the air no fixes no no digital nothing and phil was right on the money i mean he's, he's just nailing it and the harmonies are righteous and you know so it was a it's quite a unique thing like that. I've been lucky to play with some great singers. When we first started out with Eric Martin, we've got, and Mr. Big, we've got old, old show tapes. And man, he's, he's hitting it right on the money. Sure. And even I thought Dave Lee Roth, I love Dave's voice. Still like his voice. Mm -hmm. you, know? Uh, you know, in the day, there's early Van Halen 
things similarly. It's right on the money. Live, no in-ear monitors, no nothing. So it's Richie Costin in the Winery Dogs. I don't know a better singer than Richie, for sure. I did some work with Glenn Hughes a few times. He's as good as it gets, and he's amazing. Phil is right up there with everybody. He's really just got a great voice, and his stylizing is brilliant. He's tireless and so filled with energy. Add that to an accurate, righteous voice, and it's a combination that you can't beat. It's true. Now, when you were working with Phil and got him in Talos, had you made up your mind to change Talos from a three-piece to a four-piece? Or when you saw Phil, you were like, you know what? I'm going for a four-piece band because there's no way I'm not having this guy not be in my band. I felt bad that the three-piece split up. I didn't want it to. You know, they left and they didn't want to be in the band anymore. So I had, it was less sound and lights to pay for, rent on the truck, crew guys that all needed a gig because we were a pretty big band. So I thought, well, I better snap to it here and get it going. I, I sing lead, but I don't know if I can't carry a whole show. Maybe I can now <laughs> after all these years, but that wasn't in my mind. You know, I always had other singers in the band. So it was pretty much by necessity, you know, I, I was left holding the bag. And thankfully, Phil stepped up and was amazing. Mark Miller came in and annihilated. Mitch Perry came in and was spectacular. And bang, we were off and running. I got very lucky. And it's happened to me a couple of times where I'm in a situation and suddenly I'm surrounded by guys that are pretty great. I'm very grateful for it. Talis always seemed like they were on the cusp of, you know, getting a record deal or breaking. <laughs> Right? We, you were, we sure and, were. <laughs> and you were like this close when you got the call from David Lee Roth to join his band. What happened when you had to tell Phil, like, I got the dream gig and I can't go on with Talis anymore? Well, the funny thing is, our first show on the Ingve tour, our U.S. tour thing, which really was a breakthrough for the band. Every place we played, we scored. People had heard about the band, came out to see us. It was just really, our stock went way up. We were doing great. But prior to that first show in L.A., I went out to Dave's house, and he asked me to start a band with him. But I was sworn to secrecy. So the whole Dallas tour, as much fun as I had, as great as it was, in the back of my mind, I'm going, uh-oh, I'm going to have to tell these guys at the end of the tour that I'm gone. So imagine, you know, having that, having in that situation. Yeah, it was that's pretty tough. precarious. That's oh, tough. man. I know. Yeah. And I love those guys, too, you know. And I... I knew they would understand, because I would have understand if any one of them had said, you know, Billy, I got a chance to play with so-and-so. I go, go for it, bro. Yeah. God bless you, do it. And that's how they were towards me. You know, I said, you know, we'll stay in touch. Anything I can do for you or with you, whatever, I'll let you use the name Talis. And I think there was some legal thing where they gave me a dollar for the rights to the name. You know, it's a, it's a legal thing that happens a lot. We give somebody something, but you want to sure. make sure it's... It's legal, so they have to actually pay you something. So you make it one dollar, <laughs> so it makes it legal. So they had the name. They got a couple guys. They tried a few things. Unfortunately, it just didn't hold together. Plus, it was a time that the clubs were falling apart because they raised the drinking age to 21. So a lot of clubs, yeah. their attendance got cut in half or less, and it was a real tough time for bands and bars. So it didn't continue on. But I left them with the band to continue on. And they also, there was some semblance of a deal. But once I left, the deal was kind of shaky. So it didn't turn out to happen. But I always said there's only one band I would ever leave Dallas for, and that's Van Halen. So when Dave called, I said, eh, sorry, it's close enough. <laughs> close enough, that's right. That's right. Did you buy the band name back for a dollar? 
yes, it did eventually come came back to my uh to my possession. So if anybody wants it, we're selling it for a dollar twenty now. <laughs> so now, in, in terms of the new album, can you give us a peek of the songs that you're using, or some of the old ones that you threw on the album? Sure, Intermountain Flame, Power to Break Away is on there. Don't try to stop me tonight. I'll take the night. Feel any better is on there. Lone Rock, Close to the Killer, which is a song that was only available. It was only on demo. I don't think we ever performed it live. But I remember there's a guy at Capitol Records who loves the song. And every time I see him, oh, close to the killer. What's going on with that? <laughs> Someday, maybe, who knows? So we put that on there and a few others I can't recall. It's all the set list that we were doing when okay. we stopped playing. Right. You know, a continuation right. of those days. So. Do you have an idea of what you're going to go with for a single? No, but uh, there's one new song on it. Oh, there is. Thankfully. And fortuitously, and by the grace of God, is one of Phil's songs. Oh. It's a beautiful song. And he had his son sing along with him. We had no, we, we didn't anticipate that when we made that decision. We thought it would be cool to have Phil's son with him. And he sang harmony and a bunch of stuff on the record. So I was so glad that we made that decision in light of what's happened now. So we're, we got really lucky and made that decision at the time. And I think it's the perfect thing that his son is singing with him on the record. What's that's, the name of that that's one? That's really cool. Uh, that's Black and Blue. Is that a, a ballad or is it a rocker? It's kind of a mid-tempo. Mid-tempo, it's a, okay. It's kind of a beatle type thing, but Phil was a huge Beatles fan. And I thought it really exemplified a lot of what Phil was about. The lines here of the song were songs were written by myself in Tallis, so I, I wanted him to have a song on there for sure, so he's represented on there, and he he really shined. And oh, uh, also his song "Feel Any Better," which was on the live record, but we never did a studio recording. Right. Is there one song on the new album that you think Phil really shines on? If you were to give an example of where he really nailed it, "Intermountain Flame," he got killed on okay. that. And "Don't Try to Stop Me Tonight." Right. And "I'll Take the Night" too. A lot of night uh, uh, motifs here. <laughs> he killed his, and he hit notes. Just, just great stuff. He, sometimes he reminds me of Roger Daltrey. Sometimes Stephen Perry. Sometimes Rob Halford. Wow. And uh, and but always Phil. You know, always yeah. he's got his signature stamp on that. What are the three albums you're working on now? I just finished a record with a gentleman named Brett Helling. He's an artist who he's a great singer and songwriter. We were hired to do a record with him. Myself, Kenny Aronoff. Richard Fortas, and Tommy Hendrickson. So we just came back from El Paso tracking that. Okay. I'm doing a record with Ray Lugier, which is just bass and drums. Really? Uh, yeah. It's a wild trip. I'm in the middle of about 10 different tracks right now for clients around the world who send me their stuff and want me to play bass on it. Yeah. And then my friends from Buffalo that I mentioned, the young lady, Jesse, and another guy, uh, Bobby LaBelle, they do the Christmas show with me every year. We do a whole set of rock songs and originals and stuff. So we're going to do a set of songs that they wrote and also going to do a Christmas record with a full horn section, too. Wow. So that happens next weekend. So I'm going to pull all that together in four days. So I'm working my ass off here trying <laughs> to, to memorize songs and get ready for that. So there's a few other that I'm sure I'm, I'm forgetting about. And I just produced a, a singer-songwriter here in Nashville named John Statham, a really great tunes. Ray Lugier played drums. I played bass. And, nice. Uh, Use a lot of Nashville mus musicians on it. Have you and Ray uh, traded Dave stories yet? 
Oh, we sure had. <laughs> we, uh, but we both love them. You know, we, uh, most everybody that's worked with Dave, you know, yeah. we all got a lot of stories to say. But universally, I love the guy. He's a phenomenon of nature and I'll never forget what he did for me and how grateful I am, no matter what. And sure. I still love him completely. Sure. I just heard you on the new Arnell Perneda track, Abracadabra, the cover that he did that just yeah. came out. That was fantastic. You guys did a killer job on that. Well, oh, thanks a million. We did a track on me and Phil X, Doug Pinnock, and Ray Lugier did a, a remake of Tin Lizzy, Boys Are Back in Town also. Wow. That, that was out recently. So we do a lot of those things. That's amazing. That's, that was a lot of fun. Now, you lost Pat from Mr. Big. And Phil uh, from Talis, the, these are huge blows. What kind of impact has this had on you and coping with these huge losses of these two guys that were very big in your life? Uh, to appreciate life. Yeah. And cherish every day and cherish your friends and cherish your family. And don't fret about all the bullshit. Let it go and enjoy yourself. And, you know, this is a, we only get one life here, you know. And uh, Yeah. Let's make the best of it, you know. I see people so petty, pissed off, you know, upset about shit that happened 40 years ago. You know, let it go, man. Yeah. You know, it's, it's, it's all good. That's true. Great lessons to learn. That's true. Now, do you think in any capacity, will you tour behind the Talis album, or is that sort of put to bed? Nah, there's no plans. I'd like to try to do some tribute show somewhere and gather a whole bunch of people, but at this point, we can't plan anything because of the pandemic and there's no venues either so right but at some point similar to the van halen situation they can't do a tribute show for eddie yeah yeah of all the all the nonsense but uh same thing we would like to do a show in tribute and memory and fulfill so we will eventually at some point i'm sure and obviously eddie's passing in october took the rock world by storm how did you find out about that and was that a shock to you we knew it was coming but it was still a shock, and a friend of mine called me and told me, and that was a pretty dark day. I can imagine. For everybody, I for the imagine. world. As you well know, Wolfgang is launching his career, and I was wondering if you got a chance to hear any of his music and what your thoughts were on it. Not yet, but I'll bet it's going to be great. It's in the genes. I'm sure he's going to do fine. He's a wonderful young man. Yeah, it's a, you should take a listen. He released five tracks. It's really tremendous. I will. Yeah, I wanted to ask you, in terms of the winery dogs, is there a future with that band? Is there any talk of another album? It's been our intention to get together and record. Now, unfortunately, we got a setback due to the pandemic, but that's been the plan all along. Because we didn't want to just do album tour, album tour, album tour, album tour. We did an album, a tour, another album, a tour. Then we take some time off and go live life. So when you come back to write songs, you got something to write about. And that's why so many bands have the sophomore curse. They spend their whole lives writing these songs. They do the first album, it's great. Then they get six months to do another one. Well, that's, that's not as great. We've taken our time, and I think it's a wise way of doing it. So when we get back together, it'll be almost like when we first got together. Right. With that excitement, a lot of stories to tell, and a lot of songs to sing about. Now, the guys in winery jobs are always involved in something else. Oh, my so God. Is that like a big scheduling challenge for you guys? Not really. We make room for it because we, we, we start scheduling things six, eight, ten months, almost a year in advance. Wow. So we, we know what's coming up. Right. You, know, you have to. That's what it takes. And when Sons of Apollo, you guys were just gearing up to get the bolt. You actually started your tour when the pandemic hit, and you were released an album, and you were out on tour. I believe you you were in Europe, weren't you, when, when the whole thing came down? We did, our, I think, our 
third or fourth show in Europe. And it was going great. The record was on fire. People were excited about it. And couldn't have another worse time. Everything was, was great. Uh, so, uh, sadly. But I love that band. I love those guys. And uh, people really took a liking to it right away. I got lucky. Two bands in a row that have done really well. Winery Dogs and Sons of Apollo. So, I'm, I'm very grateful. What's the plans for Sons of Apollo? Are you going to resume that? Or is there any plans? Because you really didn't really get to support that album yet. Well, we have shows booked in January in South America, but everybody's got shows booked, but nobody knows that they're actually going to happen. So hopefully they will. And in terms of Steve Vai, Greg Bissonette, and Brett Tuggle, do you keep in touch with these guys? Absolutely. We're like we're all like brothers. <laughs> and listen, I said to Steve, because I spoke to Steve recently, and I said if there is one bucket list thing that you have to do, I said, you guys have to do a record, even if it's not with Dave, but just the band itself. You guys have such an incredible chemistry amongst the four of you that it has to happen at some point. Have you thought or talked about that, even without the whole Dave portion? Not so much. Um, the, the thoughts have crossed our mind. We'd love to do it with Dave, of course. Who knows what tomorrow may bring? I don't do a lot of planning. Things just kind of happen. Right. And nature takes its course, you know what I mean? Right, absolutely. Have you spoken to Dave lately at all? No. But like I said, I still love him dearly, and I'd play with him in a minute if you wanted to. Well, we hope that happens. Bill, you want to thank you so much for your generous time. We are so very sorry to hear about Phil's passing. However, we are excited to hear the new album whenever you get a chance to finish it and release it. We urge all our listeners to get that new Talis album when it comes out. It's going to be a wonderful tribute to Phil. Again, of course, our sincerest condolences on his passing. Much appreciated, my friends. I hope you enjoy the record. And uh, again, I think the only reason behind it, the energy behind it is, is for Phil. So that's what we care about. Yeah, thank you so much for uh, your time and talking about the record. And it means a lot to all of us, and your concern means a lot to, to us as well. Whoa! How about that for Rock Video Music fans? Live all day, all night. You know what you need. Only right here on Dave Check us out on Facebook at Dave and Dave Unchained, a Van Halen podcast, on Twitter at DD Unchained, on Instagram at DD Unchained Podcast, and you can email us at DD Unchained Podcast at gmail.com. This is Top Jimmy James from the great state of Alabama. Nobody rules the podcast world like the Atomic Daves. I live my life like there's no tomorrow. That's why I listen to Dave and Dave Hey dudes The tide is high And so am I You guys keep waving that flag High and proud For the mighty Van Halen
up, Jimmy James. The pandemic has been hard on all our kids. New studies show more than one in three children who started school in the pandemic now need intensive reading help. That's right. Millions of kids in kindergarten through third grade in the United States cannot read at grade level. Here's the good news. Your child can be reading in just 30 days, guaranteed, with Hooked on Phonics. Even if your child has been struggling, Hooked on Phonics will teach your child to read in just 30 days, guaranteed. And right now, you can get started for just one dollar text the word grade to 32 32 32 right now hooked on phonics is highly effective and incredibly fun and everything can be done right from home and in less than 20 minutes a day for more than 30 years hooked on phonics has been the proven learn to read program that kids love to use text grade to 32 32 32 and teach your child to read in just 30 days guaranteed text grade to 32 32 32 right now and get started for just one dollar text grade to 32 32 32 now text grade to 32 32 32 Texting privacy policy and terms and conditions posted at textplan.us. Texting rules for recurring automated text marketing messages. Message and data rates may apply. Reply stop, stop, stop. The pandemic has been hard on all our kids. New studies show more than one in three children who started school in the pandemic now need intensive reading help. Here's the good news. Your child can be reading in just 30 days, guaranteed, with Hooked on Phonics. My first grader was behind in reading, and this program has made a huge difference. She's now reading above grade level. I use it for my kids' nightly reading for school. We love it, and it's super easy and quick to do. My kid, who just turned four years old and has been using the program since January of this year, can now read. Thank you so much, Hooked on Phonics. Even if your child has been struggling, Hooked on Phonics will teach your child to read in just 30 days, guaranteed. And right now, you can get started for just $1. Text the word KID to 323232 right now. It's fast and easy. Text KID to 323232 and teach your child to read in just 30 days, guaranteed. Text the word KID to 323232. Text KID to 323232.